Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and and Stitcher as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. All right, so we've made it to the fully loaded slash Monday Night Raw mega episode. So as usual, I had to enlist the help of a special guest co-host. Joining the Raw Attitude podcast for a fifth time from the Rundown Wrestling podcast, he is none other than... Sal, and Sal, since it's been a while, would you care to update the fans on the rundown? Absolutely. First of all, Henry, thank you so much for having me back again. Of course. I believe right before your hiatus, I helped send the people uh, into the wilderness to fend for themselves because I was on the King of the Ring episode right before you took your break. Very Uh, true. It's wonderful to have you back. The, The podcast world needed it. And as you mentioned, I am on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast. Every week we talk about the goings-on that happens in WWE, NXT, and AEW. I also have a series of a bunch of retro podcasts on the same feed where I talk about SummerSlam and Survivor Series and NXT TakeOver. And it's a good time. It's a good time, so come give it a listen. But I'm excited to be here tonight. Awesome, awesome. And I, fi- I actually have a note about one of your spinoff uh, shows there on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast uh, a little bit later on. I'm sure we'll get to it in just a little bit, but um, I, do, I do give a plug to you there for reasons that will become obvious. But yes, absolutely, listen to the Rundown. Be sure to check Sal out at, at Sal out on it, I should say, and friend of the show, Adam, as well. Sometimes hosting together, sometimes not. All depends on how it shakes out, right? That's right. There you go. Well, on that note, Sal, are you ready? To dive into the show. Oh, I am ready. What a time in the world of wrestling. The summer of 99. Oh, just you wait. I'm going to make you feel super nostalgic for the summer of 99 in just a few minutes here. Just you wait. All right. I can't. I, I'm looking forward to it. Yes. But, but before we get into the pay-per-view itself, there is an episode of Sunday Night Heat to cover, and it has a surprisingly noteworthy moment. So stay tuned, folks at home, and you're going to see what I mean there. And I also have to note, interestingly, Sal, this very episode of Heat is the final episode of the show, which is available on Peacock. Why? Honestly, I'm I'm not actually sure. I can't really find a reason for this other than WWE only felt like uploading the first year's worth of Sunday Night Heat. And in case you're wondering, they put these first 52 episodes of Heat up on the network back on May 7th, 2018, and we haven't gotten a new episode since. Four years and counting, Sal, will we ever get those other episodes? I highly doubt it, but for the sake of this podcast, I certainly hope so. There wasn't a network reason why they did that, was there? Like, is it because they went to MTV and maybe they don't have the rights to those episodes? You know, I looked that up, but they're they're actually still on the USA network. So they don't go to MTV, I I think it's until maybe 
next year in 2000 when they go to MTV. So it's all still USA Network. I think it was basically just like the WWE was like, we'll put up the first year's worth of shows, and then they just never got around to to doing any more. I don't know. That's my only guess. Uh, You know what I think happened? I think that they probably at some point released their uh, digital VOD library guy, and nobody's been adding anything since. (laughs) Right, exactly. Or also, maybe they put up the first year's worth of episodes, and they're like, well, this is right around the time that we debut SmackDown and Heat becomes a third-rate show, so nobody's asking for it, so we're just not going to put them up. Kind of wouldn't blame them. (laughs) Yeah, it's fair. That's fair. But anyway, we open the show with a montage of the rivalry between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon over the past year and a half, featuring all the usual fantastic highlights, the Zamboni, the hospital attack, Bang 316, etc. And the key phrase for tonight is the end of an era, because depending on the results of tonight's main event, we have two possibilities. Either Stone Cold will never again be allowed to challenge for the WWF title, or Vince McMahon will never again be seen on WWF television. Truly, some some very high stakes here. So after that recap, we queue up the Sunday Night Heat credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And don't worry, I will indeed be sure to list off all the offensive signs in the audience. I'll just save that for when the actual pay-per-view starts, so fear not. And also, in case you're wondering, our hosts for Heat are the duo of Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly, serving as the opening act for Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, who will join us later. Now, Sal, did you have any issues with the Cole-Kelly combo? Uh, not particularly. Michael Cole very early in his career here. And Kevin Kelly always did a decent job. And you know what? I'll give this to Kevin Kelly. He was always a good sport. He got made fun of a lot. <laughs> yes, especially by The Rock in those later years. Yes. All right, so after that opening crowd scan, we go right into the action for our first match of the night, Val Venus versus Mean Street Posse member Joey Abs, who is accompanied by Rodney and Pete Gass. And in a sign of the times, here you go, taking you back to the summer of 99, Val's pre-match promo is about how the big Valbowski is actually nothing like Hillary Clinton, who is currently running for senator in New York State, where they are tonight. Topical. In my personal opinion, though, I think since he's fighting a member of the Mean Street posse, he should have talked about how he gets a lot of Mean Street put, but never mind, never mind, we'll, we'll skip that. As for Joey Abs, by the way, he's wrestling while wearing an eyebrow ring and several earrings as well, which just seems ill-advised. I know, obviously, wrestling is a work, but even even taking out the fact that wrestling is a work, I would still be worried, Sal, if I were you, that somebody gives me, like, a stray errant punch and it accidentally rips off one of my eyebrows. Would, wouldn't you agree about that? Yeah, completely dumb to be wrestling in that. E- even if you know you're going in there for a squash match, Why? If you rip that piercing hole, you're going to have to have it redone, or it will never heal, and you'll never be able to have that piercing again. So why bother? Exactly. I, I think clearly Draws and Prince Albert were busy backstage with uh, with Joey Abs's face. <laughs> but so, after a couple minutes of action, Rodney and Pete Gass proceed to make their presence felt from outside the ring, tripping Val behind referee Teddy Long's back. And when Val turned around to confront them, Joey Abs then clotheslined him over the top rope and down to the floor, where they proceeded to put the, vo- the boots to bat. Boots to Val, there's a tongue twister, while Joey Abs once again distracted Teddy Long. But unfortunately for Rodney and Pete Gass, though, that interference caught the attention of Test, who proceeded to run out from backstage and beat the crap out of both of them. 
Tess clotheslined Pete Gas over the barricade and into the crowd, and he threw Rodney over the commentator's table. And meanwhile, back in the ring, Joey Abs got distracted by his Mean Street posse pals being destroyed by a large, angry Canadian, which enabled Val Venus to sneak up on Joey and hit him with, of all things, a blue thunderbomb. Val made the cover, Teddy Long made the count, and yes, that was good enough to give the victory to Val Venus. And by the way, in case you're wondering, no, I have never seen Val finish a match with the blue thunderbomb up to this point. It's almost always the money shot from the top rope. That was quite a little surprise there. And somewhere, a young Sami Zayn was clearly taking notes. Clearly. I was just going to say, I was surprised that Teddy Long was, was here this early. I thought he was still in WCW at this point. Yeah, he came back, I think it was tail end of 98. I don't know if he's kind of like the full-time ref yet, but he's definitely in several of these matches. And once the three count was registered, by the way, Tess grabbed a steel chair and entered the ring, and he then put the chair around Joey Abs's ankle and went to the second rope, presumably with the intention of pilmanizing it. But Rodney and Pete Gass then reemerged with chairs of their own, so Tess rolled out of the ring. Now, with that being said, Sal, what did you think of our opening contest of Val Venus versus Joey Abs? <sighs> Who cares? <laughs> Fair. Also... Val, I mean, one of the hottest acts in wrestling in 1998. Now you're on Heath. You, know, you don't seem to be anywhere near the Intercontinental title like you used to be. It's just it's kind of sad. Yeah, he'll get back there at some point. But yeah, he's mostly been, at this point in time, he's mostly been um, tag teaming with The Godfather, which is actually a team I like. Their matches have actually been pretty enjoyable, especially like the the sort of like group, I don't even know what you would call it, the, the little... Brothel. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to see the tag team moves they do together where, like, Godfather hits the pimp drop and then Val comes off the top rope. It's a good combination, but, you know, obviously they haven't quite uh, achieved their heights in the tag team ranks yet. But will they get there? Uh, probably not, but I did enjoy the team when they were together. But Val getting a singles win, getting back in the win column in the singles side. Good little win over uh, Joey Abs. Yes, the one member of the Mean Street Posse who was actually a trained worker. You can kind of tell. He hits the ropes like a trained ro- worker. He, he he moves around in that ring like a trained worker. And it just kind of shows you how novice the other two are. Yes, especially when there's one moment when I think Pete Gass, he goes to like do a run-in uh, on some spot. It might be the Royal Rumble, and he just basically like chokes himself on the bottom rope. He's like running at full speed and just kind of like whiplashes himself. So you can tell it's, you know, not not the best. Not the best. But Joey Abs, obviously. He, Joey Abs has actually been around for a while under various other names, including picking up a victory over Steve Austin back in 96 somehow. But, you know, wow. ancient history. <laughs> it, in, in fairness, the British Bulldog did interfere in that match. But still, he does have a win over Steve Austin. Well, not many people can say that. <laughs> That's true. Especially these days. And after our first commercial break of the evening, we then get the Rock's classic Gettin' Chefy With It commercial for Chef Boyardee overstuffed ravioli. Now, Sal, have you ever gotten Chefy With It and eaten overstuffed ravioli from a can? Uh, not, no, I, I don't think I did. <laughs> but but I, I did remember the commercial. Oh, sure. And and I was, I was uh, feeling pretty, pretty nostalgic for this. I feel like they could have actually made, like, Chef Boyardee jabroni. It sounds it sounds close enough like an Italian dish, you know, like beefaroni. So, I don't know. They never did. Missed opportunity in my book, if you ask me. 
So if you're watching on Peacock, Sal, by the way, when we come back from break, it looks like we join an interview already in progress with Jim Ross, Road Dog, and X-Pac. And as it turns out, the reason for this is because we actually had something edited out from the original Sunday Night Heat broadcast. And what gets caught, cut out, I should say, is a montage of Degeneration X's past antics from when, when the group was still a whole unit. So why did they remove this montage from Peacock? Now, I will say I don't know for sure, but my guess would be because NBC has notoriously been scrubbing moments which are, shall we say, a little bit questionable when it comes to the area of race. And this clip features footage from DX's infamous parody of The Nation of Domination, where several of them dress in blackface, a segment which has since been edited out entirely from the original broadcast back in July of 98. And on top of that, we also get a clip from when DX invaded New York City, where Triple H walks up to a taxi does a phony Middle Eastern accent and asks the driver to take him to Pakistan. So again, I don't know for sure that those are the reasons why that recap got edited out, but I think it's probably a safe bet. Yeah, I would say that's that's pretty safe bet. Also, I want to take this opportunity to remind everybody, especially for those who may not have been alive in 1999, maybe you're a little bit younger or maybe you were just, you know, a little, little kid. It was still offensive back then. Yes. Right? It wasn't that people didn't find offense in it. It was just that nobody really did anything about it. Exactly. Other than, like, the, you know, the parents' right group, whatever, that Vince would end up parroting pretty soon. Yes, the PTC, yeah. Yeah, but nobody, but everybody else was also offended by this stuff. Yeah, and, and pulling back the, per- the curtain a little bit here, Sal. So we're recording before my before episode 83 goes up, the one that covers the go-home episode of Raw. Yep. And on that episode, I cover the episode of Nitro that goes head-to-head with it. And on that episode of Nitro, you have Buff Bagwell in blackface imitating Ernest the Cat Miller. So that's not on Peacock, by the way. They do edit that out. That is edited out from Peacock. But this was basically a—this was a very common occurrence in wrestling at the time for some reason. I don't know why, but— there you have it, folks. Yeah. That's because it's carny bullshit. I mean, let's be honest, yeah. Yeah. But, you know. Anyway, though, so we, we go back live where Jim Ross is with the two remaining members of D-Generation X, Road Dog and X-Pac. Nothing too noteworthy here. They say that DX was never about the money, but rather it was about being a brotherhood, and clearly that's something that Triple H, Billy Gunn, and China never cared about. And from there, we then cut to elsewhere backstage, where Jerry the King Lawler is with Billy Gunn and China, and they both pretty much confirm what Road Dog and X-Pac said. They can have the loyalty, but Mr. Ass and China would rather have the money. And as a reminder, in their match tonight, the rights to DX and all of the sweet, sweet royalty money that goes with it are on the line. And I will say, though, Billy Gunn actually had a pretty amusing line at the end of his promo here, which is something you can't say too often for him. So after Billy says they'll win the match and take back the rights to DX, he says that Road Dogg and X-Pac can take solace in the fact that the Job Squad name isn't trademarked. So pretty clever. I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) And from there, we then cut to Terry Runnell's dressing room, where she's standing in front of a mirror and putting her dress back on. She tells a towel-wearing meat that he was good, but it wasn't his best effort, and she then reminds him that he has a match coming up next. Now remember, folks, being a sex slave may look glamorous, but it's a very difficult job. And after another commercial break, we once again get... Were you going to say something about that, Sal? I don't get this. Everyone make fun of me. Terry and Jackie fucked his brains out. Now he's a little bitch. Yep. What? (laughs) 
he had too much sex. <laughs> yeah, that's why we should feel sympathy for him because he had too much sex. Clearly, but they also made him. It also came off as like let's make fun of him. <laughs> I, right. I don't get it, but go ahead. It's a it's a very nuanced gimmick, as you can tell. Uh, I can tell. <laughs> And after another commercial break, we once again get the Millennium Countdown, which is now down to 362 hours and change. And Sal, actually, I'll I'll ask you this. Without revealing too much as to who it was, did you have an idea as to what the countdown was leading up to at this time back in 1999? When I first saw it, I immediately discarded it as, oh, yeah, you know, year 2000. I think it was a week or two after the first one aired that, that somebody told me, like, hey, if you add that up, it, 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 it's not right. And I'm like, hmm? <laughs> hmm. So then, you know, you, you manually add it up and you, and you realize the date. And you're like, oh, what's going to happen on that day? So it was it, it definitely held my intrigue for, for a good while before I started hearing rumors. Yes, absolutely. I, I'll get to it when we actually... Uh, when the countdown actually goes off. But I did have an idea just because I was kind of on the internet at the time. I was a little more dialed in. But when we get there, it's it's a very noteworthy moment. It's, it's a very, very good moment. I mean, you know, the person who it leads up to is uh, you know, not, not exactly thought of as highly in the present day. But at the time, it was a very, very good moment. Oh, but I was going to say, at the time, it, it rocked the wrestling world. And Big time. I um, I really dug this... Because, you know, as long as we've been watching wrestling, we, we've seen vignettes of people when they're about to debut. I really liked the way they did this. It was it was really intriguing. Like, oh, my God, we're getting closer. Yeah. Something very basic, but it just it really kind of captivated everybody. Yeah, very mysterious. It's, just, it's literally just a countdown clock. So it could have mm-hmm. been anything in theory. And then it was funny because everybody got the date, but it wasn't until like a week or two before that people started being like, hey, wait a minute. That's just in the middle of Raw. Yeah. And spoiler alert, it is indeed in the middle of Raw when it happens. So next up also, we get something I haven't seen the WWF do in a while, by the way, Sal. They interview fans outside the arena and ask them who they think will win tonight's main event between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker. And I couldn't help but be a bit puzzled by this fan's response. Uh, just kidding, folks. But of course, I'll find any excuse to play that clip. Fun fact, by the way, I always thought that child was a boy, but the now fully grown kid actually did an interview about a year and a half ago, and it turns out she's actually a girl. So there you go. Who knew? Who knew? (laughs) But anyway, we then go back into the arena for our next match, Sunday Night Meat, who is accompanied by Terry Runnels and Jacqueline, versus The Godfather, who is accompanied by five Buffalo Hoes. And when The Godfather makes his entrance, I'm going to give you an exact quote from Michael Cole here because I thought it was incredibly stupid. Quote, The Godfather is fun-loving, and boy, oh boy, does he love to have fun. You just, you you literally, you just said the same thing twice. And yet, Michael Uh. Cole, still employed 23 years later. In fairness, he he does get a lot better, though. He does get a lot better. Sometimes. (laughs) Yes, he has his moments. And before the match begins, the Godfather tells his opponent that normally he would offer him the hose, but the tired-looking Meat is clearly too worn out from his sexual exploits with Terry, and indeed, Meat is kind of walking around as though he were in some sort of stupor, so hey, more power to Terry Runnels there, I suppose. She's clearly got the goods. And sure enough, 
Meat doesn't end up putting up much of a fight, as this one only lasts for a few minutes, and the finish comes when the Godfather nails his running hoe train splash, followed by the Death Valley driver finisher that he calls the Pimp Drop. He makes the cover, Tim White makes the count, and that is good enough to secure the victory for the Godfather. And as soon as the match ends, an angry Terry Runnels goes over to the commentary table, grabs a pitcher of ice water, and proceeds to pour it down the front of Meat's tights. But really, though, I mean, if his Johnson is that worn out, frankly, I think she might have actually done him a favor there. But anyway, so what did you think of The Godfather versus Meat? Uh, well, I guess Terry Reynolds and Jackie should find somebody better because he needs to be winning matches and satisfying them. So can't be one or the other. It's got to be both. Yes, finding somebody better, and by that do you mean literally anyone else on the roster? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, there, there aren't too many people a little like lower on the pecking order than meat around this time, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, it is what it is. This is this is a lot of this Sunday night stuff is like purely angle advancement. Like, well, we don't have a match for Godfather, we don't have a, Val, a match for Val Venus on the pay per view, so we'll just stick them in singles matches, and there you go. Which I mean, is fine because the crowd still loves the Godfather shtick, so. Get him on the show oh, yeah. for the fans at Heat. That that works. But now I'm thinking, like, wouldn't, wouldn't Val Venus make a perfect little slave for Terry and Jackie? But then I thought, oh, wait, I think they've tried that before. And it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, they went there when it was uh, when Dustin Runnels was doing his uh, preacher gimmick, mm-hmm. when uh, Val Venus stole Terry Runnels from and, him. And he made the movie The Preacher's Wife. The Preacher's <laughs> Wife, yes, exactly. But then he walked out on Terry when she got pregnant, so I don't know if she's she's too eager to take him Allegedly back. Allegedly pregnant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we don't need to talk about how that whole angle ended with a with Terry faking a miscarriage. That was just fantastic stuff. <laughs> yeah. And after another commercial break, we get what I thought was a really good montage of the ongoing feud between The Rock and Triple H, kind of framing them as both former cornerstones of their respective factions, you know, Rock with the Nation, Hunter with DX. And in their strap match tonight, there is some pretty high stakes because the winner of the match will become the number one contender for the WWF title at SummerSlam next month. And after that montage concludes, we cut to a pre-taped interview from two days prior where Triple H is sitting down with Jim Ross. And Sal, this is the noteworthy moment that I alluded to earlier because, well, this is the interview where Triple H introduces us to his new nickname for himself. You asked that China not be involved in this interview, and I'm just wondering why. Why? Everybody wants to know why. You know what? Because this one is about me, JR. It's not about China or anybody else. It's about four weeks from now. It's about 28 days from now. It's about me getting what I want out of this business, and that is becoming the WWF champion. So you're saying that in four weeks at SummerSlam, you will become the WWF champion without China's help. Right. I don't need anybody else, JR. This is about me. I don't need to be in a clique anymore. I don't need to be in DX anymore. This is about me. It's about me reaching my goals. You know, and while we're at it, this goes back a long way, JR. This goes back to the clique. This goes back to Madison Square Garden. Me walking in the ring and saying goodbye to my friends. That's four years ago. You're damn right it's four years ago, and every day it's eating a hole in my f***ing stomach, JR. 
every single day. Watch your language a little. What, you, you want me to shoot with this interview? I'm going to f***ing shoot with it. I'm going to tell you how I feel, whether you like it or not. It's about four years ago, Madison Square Garden, I walked to the ring to say goodbye to my friends, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Shawn Michaels. Who got punished for that, JR? Me. I did. You know why? Because you didn't have the Nobody in the office had that to do it to anybody else. They did it to me. Why? Because I was the easy one. I was the one that would take it. Good old Triple H, he'll rise to the occasion later on. Don't worry about it. He'll come through. We can take care of that now, punish him, get rid of that. He'll come back later. Well, you know what? That makes me sick in my stomach. Every time I look at you guys, it makes me sick to think what you did to me, holding me back. You guys talk about being students of the game. I am the f***ing game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. And now it's my time to prove that to the world. SummerSlam is my time to take what is mine, and that is becoming the WWF champion. You know, Hunter, SummerSlam's uh, about a lot more than just you. It's about the WWF title. It's about Jesse Ventura officiating that matchup. To hell with Jesse Ventura. To hell with The Rock. To hell with Austin. To hell with The Undertaker. I own all their asses. Jesse Ventura, I could care less. You want to promote SummerSlam around him? Go right ahead. But when it's said and done, SummerSlam is about me. It's about nobody else. It's about me. It's about me getting what I deserve in this business. And that is what I want. And that is becoming the WWF champion. Yes, Sal, this is the very first time that Triple H refers to himself as the game. Truly a historic moment in wrestling lore. I have to say, though, I didn't recall that most of the promo prior to his unveiling of that nickname was basically him complaining about being punished for the curtain call. And just for the record, Hunter and JR say the curtain call incident was four years ago when it was actually only three years ago. But apparently Triple H has been motivated to stick it to everyone in the front office ever since then because they've been holding him down. So, Sal, did you enjoy Hunter's promo here? It's a little off-putting watching it back as an adult, thinking, cringing, like, ugh. Is this the moment that the business died? Like, the caping thing. It's a little weird. It gives me a little weird feeling in my stomach. In fact, it, it does make more sense to me as an adult, though, because as a kid, I didn't know that JR was the current head of talent relations. But there were things that Triple H said in this, in this interview where he pretty much alluded to that. Uh, you know, you were the one who were keeping, uh, you made these decisions. I did think it was fun that JR was like, well, that was four years ago. And he's like, you're damn right, it's four years ago, and I'm still mad about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And it, it actually kind of, so there's one of two ways of looking at it. One, you could say that, okay, Triple H is setting up to be, you know, a title challenger, but he's never going to be a real champ. Like, you know, one of those, like, B-show championship opportunities. But I don't know. I feel like I feel like Triple H did enough here to come across as a main eventer for the first time there you go and i'm glad you say that because i do actually mention that a little bit later on because at this point in time triple h eh, he's not he's not quite there yet you know what i mean he's still he's kind of been like another guy in the corporate ministry for a while so i'm glad you said that to think that that you think this actually does work for him to kind of elevate himself that's good so we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on because i do want to touch on just a little bit more on that particular topic 
But on that note, by the way, I also want to quickly address a different topic, kind of a rumor that's gotten a bit of traction online over the years, because somehow it got out there that the game nickname was originally meant for Owen Hart, but Hunter took it instead once Owen died. And well, in an interview with some online heavy metal magazine called Loudwire back in 2020, Hunter was actually asked about this, and here is what he said last one for you today it says that the game nickname was originally intended for owen hart hmm. that's not I, true it's a funny thing i have no idea where that rumor came from hmm. okay the game was never a nickname that was intended for anybody i legitimately said it in a promo right off the cuff an unscripted promo with jim ross gotcha we were backstage it was an unscripted promo jim i mean literally came in and said i'm gonna ask you these questions answer how you want hmm. it was right when i was turning i, I was really becoming the hard-edged heel and um the, the a big term then was student being a student of the game yeah. like if you really want to be good at this business you got to be a student of the game just like anything else you want to you want to be a, a great nba player you got to be a student of the game you got to watch the people that came before you you got to study everything all of that it was said a lot in our business sure and in that promo i and it, like legitimately use the f word and they had to beep it out. They, the promo was so good that they were like, we're going to keep it. We're just going to beep out the, the F word. But it, I didn't think anything more about it than that. And then the following week on TV, when I came out, there were signs that just said Triple H, the F in game or Triple H is a game, whatever it was. The game thing stuck. I remember distinctly walking out on stage and seeing like six or seven signs and thinking like, like it took me a second to go like, oh, that's right. I said that last week in that promo. Like, <laughs> but that stuck. Mm. That's it. Yeah. And I and and then that became the thing and I went backstage after and was like, Hey, the game is is it now, like it's everywhere out there and I buzzed JR, JR started saying it on commentary. You know, a lot of that stuff then was organic. So there you go, Sal. Apparently the rumor about Owen Hart becoming the game was complete fiction. And honestly, I do believe Triple H here because if you listen to that promo where he talks about being the game, it really is just kind of like a one-off line that he tosses in there. It's not like he repeats it several times to try and get it over. It seems like something he just said off the cuff that just kind of stuck. So no, Owen Hart was never going to be the game, but as they say, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Now, had you ever heard that rumor, Sal, about Owen Hart being the game? I did, and when I first heard it, it didn't make any sense. Because it just wasn't the arc that his, his character was doing at the time. Yeah, or you mean being the blue blazer, he couldn't go around calling himself the game? Uh, that wouldn't just, make any sense? <laughs> what sense would that have made? It, it didn't. So, I, I always felt that that rumor was, was just that, a rumor. And and like you said, in this promo, he doesn't. he's so focused on on shitting on the the curtain call thing and and how he was held down that it really was just a throwaway line it wasn't something he emphasized or he ended his promo with it was just yeah i'll, I'll say it yeah it was like uh, people talk about the game i am the damn game yeah. it was it was just kind of like he only says it once in the entire promo i think so yeah but what do you know it catches on and so from there, we then cut to a shot of Stone Cold Steve Austin backstage pouring himself a cup of coffee, and then in a separate area, we cut to The Undertaker and Paul Bearer arriving at the building. And I found it interesting here, Sal, The Taker is pretty much out of character because he's wearing a baseball cap, sunglasses, and a black WWF attitude vest. It's not often at this point in time that we see Lord of Darkness Ministry Taker just waltz on into an arena carrying his duffel bag. So it was this shit that led us to fucking Biker Taker. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <sighs> I hate it. 
this it was a slippery slope from here. Yeah. And by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't also point out the fact that because he's wearing a vest and no shirt underneath, we can clearly see the tattoo on Taker's stomach, which says BSK Pride. Now, Sal, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Are you familiar with the story behind BSK? Isn't that the uh, Bone Street crew? You are exactly right, the Bone Street crew. So for those of you at home who aren't familiar with this, yes, BSK is Bone Bone Street crew, and yes, crew with a K. Basically, a backstage clique that was comprised of The Undertaker and his buddies, and the bone in question is not actually human bones, it's just the game of dominoes, which is nicknamed Bones, and apparently the crew really enjoyed playing that game backstage. So I pulled up a quick list of all the people who were members of the crew over the years, Sal, so here you go. Undertaker, Paul Bearer, Yokozuna, who was actually the one who founded the group, Crush, Henry O. Godwin, Midian, Mr. Fuji, The Godfather, Fatu, Samu, and Savio Vega. Now, Sal, does that sound like a crew you'd want to party with backstage and play some dominoes? It, it might be kind of fun. <laughs> sure. Especially with Mr. Fuji up in there. Yeah. Well, he might uh, he might pull a very nasty prank on you at some point, that's, which that's he tended true. to do. I, although I'm really disappointed that it, it's a domino reference. I, I, I thought it was such a badass, ooh, Bone Street. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, oh, it's because he's a biker in real life. And then you tell me that, no, it's because they used to play dominoes backstage. And I'm like, that's so lame. <laughs> we could come up with our own crew if it was eating dominoes, I think. Now, that'd that's be a true. crew that I'd be. Sure. Yeah. Eating dominoes crew, EDK. The EDK, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've been part of that crew for quite a while, just unofficially. That's fair. And I do actually have a tidbit for you about this, Sal. This is I mentioned earlier about one of your spinoff podcasts, because in a 2020 interview with Wrestling Inc., Savio Vega claimed that there were talks of actually turning the Bone Street crew into an on-camera faction, but Vince McMahon shot the idea down. However, if you go back to the 1995 Survivor Series, mm-hmm. one of the teams on that night was the Dark Side, which was composed of the seemingly random group of The Undertaker, the aforementioned Savio Vega, Fatu, and Henry O. Godwin, all four members of the Bone Street crew. So that's pretty much the closest we ever got to seeing the group together on WWF television. And I mention that because you obviously do the spinoff Survivor Series show on the Rundown Network. So there you go. In case you were wondering, Sal, why we had that very random pairing, it was probably because the Bone Street crew wanted their own little group at Survivor Series. I was wondering, and I guess that makes more sense now that I know that, because I shit all over it during that episode. <laughs> yeah. And rightfully so, because why the hell would The Undertaker hang out? The Undertaker character on camera, why would he hang out with Savio Vega, Fatu, and Henry Godwin? That's the thing. It doesn't seem to make sense. This is a guy, at this point, who's one of the most popular baby faces in the company. His merch always sells top-notch, and he's with Henry Godwin and Savio Vega (laughs) and Fatu. Like, why? It, it, It just didn't fit. It just felt like... It was like if you put The Rock with the job squad. (laughs) Right. So, yes, after a commercial break, we come back to more interviews with fans outside the arena where they ask who will win tonight's first blood match. More people rooting for The Undertaker than I would have thought, quite frankly. And after that, we then flash back to the GTV segment, which aired on this past Monday's episode of Raw, where GTV somehow caught hidden camera footage of Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo, Paul Rubens, and Kel Mitchell, the stars of the upcoming movie Mystery Men. And in case you need a reminder, they plug their movie in the most obvious way possible, and Ben Stiller tells the world that he is obsessed with Deborah's puppies. 
spoiler alert, you may want to remember that little tidbit for when we get to tomorrow night's episode of Raw. Just saying. And from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is quite the pairing. Viscera versus Christian, who may or may not be a member of the Brood, because it's still ambiguous as to whether or not the group has broken up. And speaking of the Brood, when Viscera makes his way to the ring, Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly inform us of a very interesting turn of events from last night's house show at the Sky Dome in Toronto. WWF Intercontinental Champion Jeff Jarrett was scheduled to face Ken Shamrock, but Shamrock ended up having issues with his flight, so instead, Shamrock was replaced by native Torontonian Edge, and Edge actually defeated Jeff Jarrett for the Intercontinental title at this untelevised house show in Toronto. Now, Sal, I tried to find if there was actually footage of this anywhere, because sometimes the WWF would send their cameras to a house show if there was going to be a title change, but I could not find any visual evidence. However, just last year in April of 2021, Edge did an interview with, of all places, Loudwire, yes, the very same online magazine I mentioned earlier that interviewed Triple H, and Edge actually talked about this title change during that interview. We, we called them house shows, non-televised shows. It was, it was at the Sky Dome in Toronto, my home, hometown, completely off the cuff. Um, I think it was maybe Ken Shamrock missed a flight, got stuck at the board or something. I don't know what it was. And they need an opponent for Jeff Jarrett. During the match, we did this thing where I pinned them, and the crowd thought I won, and then they were going to reverse it. But then Jack Lanza, who was the, the road agent at the time, walked out and said, uh, go get your belt. And I went, what? <laughs> we're calling an audible here. Right. Okay. And uh, so my first title was in my hometown, which oh my pretty, God. pretty amazing and spectacular, especially as I look back on it now. And then from that, I'll never forget Howard Finkel doing that what only his voice could do that iconic and new mm. intercontinental champion, you know, and I, I will forever have that you know, lodged in, in the brain. So there you have it, Sal. The reason why there is no footage of edge winning the intercontinental title appears to be because they did not plan for there to be a title change, but when they did the false finish and it got a huge reaction, road agent Jack Lanza apparently called an audible and said, you know what? Let's give the kid a nice moment in his hometown. In his hometown, and so the original finish stuck. And Edge is your new Intercontinental Champion. So, what do you think, Sal? Do you like the call to have Edge win his first belt at a house show? I mean, I like it because, you know, like Jack Lanza said, let's give this kid a moment. In a completely unrelated note, it looks like Jack Lanza was fired the next day. <laughs> You're right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least it makes more sense because it it really didn't of why they would just put the belt on edge out of nowhere at a house show it, it really confused me because i was just like did that what we do with the ic title now we just throw it around like but also when when this match started of viscera versus christian my note for this match was really this is already jobbing to christian <laughs> mm-hmm. well on that note so with the match being Christian versus Viscera, I have to say, how crazy is it that both of these guys are still active today, 23 years later? Christian still competes occasionally in AEW, while Viscera still wrestles under the name Keith Lee. So it's pretty amazing. Oh, that's not nice. <laughs> no. I love Keith Lee. I know. He's just a bigger guy is all I'm saying. Sure. Anyway. But as soon as the match begins, on that note, those classy Buffalo fans decide to let Viscera know how much they appreciate him by chanting, you fat fuck. 
<laughs> this from the city that invented buffalo wings. I'm just saying, people in glass houses probably shouldn't throw stones. This is true. I'll give you that. And yes, as you might expect, this was another short match. The finish came when Viscera nailed Christian with a Samoan drop, and at that point, it looked like things were pretty much academic. However, Gangrel then ran down to ringside, and while referee Jimmy Corderas' back was turned, Gangrel sprayed blood, no, pardon me, he sprayed red, viscous liquid into Viscera's face. Christian then dropkicked Viscera into the turnbuckle and rolled him up, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three, although, to be honest, I'm pretty sure Viscera actually kicked out before the three count, but Corderas counted anyway, and so your winner of the match is Christian. So yes, Sal, it appears as though Gangrel is still trying to remain pals with Christian, even though he has had a falling out with Christian's brother, Ed. So what did you think of this wonderful match? It is interesting the way that they alluded to Gangrel saying he wanted to get rid of the get rid of the dead weight in the brood, and that dead weight ended up being Edge. <laughs> right, nice little, nice little swerve. That guy has no future. <laughs> but obviously, at the time, you would be like, "Oh, they they don't like Christian. He's stupid." <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, no swerve, bro. But then again, like five hundred pound viscera losing to Christian. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Those two both of these guys, by the way, I was talking about meat earlier. These guys are not much higher on the pecking order than meat around this time either. No. Especially not Gangrel. No, no. To the point where I'm just like, he's still here. <laughs> Going back and watching these old episodes, it really surprised me because I thought there was a time where Gangrel was kind of like actually booked as a threat, but no, pretty much as soon as he came in, he was pretty much turned into a jobber within like maybe two months. So I think it was just maybe the really cool entrance that made me think otherwise. Initially, when he first debuted and they were doing the goblet and the ring of fire entrance and the bloodbath, he was getting TV time. He kind of assumed like, hey, this is a new character. They're building him up. And then it went nowhere. I don't think he ever had a feud other than Edge. Yeah, not really. I'm trying to think, too, because like because the entrance is legendarily awesome, right, coming up through the fire with the goblet. I'm trying to think if there's like been a more disparate ratio of awesome entrance to shitty wrestler. You know what I mean? Like, is there another wrestler you could think of where they had like a fantastic entrance, but it was like, oh, this guy's just a fucking jobber? Because I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I'm sure there is one, but I don't know. I can't think of one, but it will come to me. I promise you during this recording, it will come to me. For those of you at home, tweet us at Raw Attitude Pod if you can think of a bigger difference between Great Entrance, Shitty Wrestler. Chris Masters. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, that was. That was a good entrance, yeah. That was a really good entrance. That whole friggin' pyro set up, and he did the whole Atlas thing, and like... Yeah. And then the bell rang, and it was just... Uh... <laughs> did, did he have a cape that he would take off yes. or something like that? Yes, he would yeah. throw the cape like the narcissist. <laughs> yeah. Great inspiration, clearly. Mm-hmm. And after another commercial break, we go back to even more interviews with fans outside the arena, asking them who is going to win tonight's main event. And I couldn't help but notice that the last fan they interviewed appears to be tailgating with a beer and a hot dog in his hand. Ah, tailgating before a wrestling event. I feel like that probably doesn't happen too much these days, but really, it should. Are, are you saying that they were having a nitro party at Raw? <laughs> oh, yes, pretty much, actually. Well, not Raw, but you know what I meant. Because that's, I mean, if I were to believe Lee Marshall, that's how people watch wrestling. They have these big parties, and everybody comes over, and they all huddle in front of the TV, and they're all like, ooh, wrestling's coming on. 
If only. <laughs> I mean, hey, for, for Nitro, I would believe it in 1998. I wouldn't believe it so much for 1999, <laughs> but fair. definitely for 98 for Nitro. But but on that note, though, for you non-football fans out there, since we're in Buffalo tonight and I'm mentioning tailgating, I'll let you know another quick wrestling connection here in the present day, because when fans of the Buffalo Bills football team tailgate for a game, it has now become a tradition for someone to be put through a table. So yes, Bills fans are keeping the spirit of the Dudley Boys alive, by slamming each other through tables in order to uh, help the team win, I guess? Who knows? But now it happens before every Bills home game. So once again, wrestling has permeated another form of pop culture. I approve. I approve of that. I, I've seen the videos of that, and yeah. I didn't know it was a thing in every every event. I just thought, oh, that's a dumb guy. <laughs> it's a thing. Sometimes they actually, I've seen some, I think, where they actually do flaming tables, too. So they're all in on Don't. this. Don't do that people <laughs> if anybody is listening if you want to put yourself through a table that's that's your prerogative that's fine that's something you'll get up from in the next morning fire there's so many things that can go wrong yeah just ask cody uh-huh. still had those scars on his back and he probably still will when he debuts in wwe relatively soon yes which by the way the fact that this episode is going up much later uh, will be a completely dated reference because he will have debuted by the time we say this. But, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. And we then go to the announce table with Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly, and we get one of my favorite traditions from these old WWF pay-per-views. Sal, if you mail in your cable bill to show proof that you purchased fully loaded, you can get free merchandise. And this month, your freebie is a wrist rest mouse pad, which simply says, WWF, get it? And by the way, I never realized they actually used get it as a marketing slogan. I thought it was just the line that Vince McMahon delivers at the end of the Super Bowl commercial. Right. So shows what I know. But on that note, Sal, would you have wanted a WWF Attitude Era mouse pad? No. <laughs> Here's the fucked up thing. I remember this so vividly. And, and we never got every pay-per-view. But I would get, like, you know, the big four, maybe maybe one out of the here or there. And they did this a lot. And I remember always being really excited. Fans, if you send us your cable bill, we'll send you. And I'd be like, oh, maybe I should tell my father about this. And they're like, a mouse pad. And I'm like, no. No. Or it would be like a stupid hat that said like fully loaded. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) See, but I was always like, I was always a sucker for this. Because if like, if I was looking through a catalog and I saw a WWF mouse pad, I'd be like, fuck this. I don't want this. But then when it's like, if you mail your cable bill and it's like, oh, I can get something for free. I'm in. I'll do it. I, I I get that mentality, but if it was, if, if the prizes were just a little bit above, you know, rewards program status, <laughs> yeah, from like from the like your Target gift card, yeah, I think it was pretty much like all the shit that wasn't selling that they were like, well, we'll give it away for free if you just you know mail in your cable bill. Yeah, I have a feeling that's correct. Yeah. And from there, we then segue into a very well-done recap package chronicling Stone Cold Steve Austin's feud with The Undertaker and Vince McMahon over the past month. And if you still hadn't called your local cable company to order Fully Loaded at this point, I think there's a chance this may have been able to convince you. And once that concludes, we go to Jim Ross, who is backstage with his buddy Stone Cold. But before Austin can even get that many words out, the vest-wearing Undertaker jumps him from behind, and he then proceeds to throw Stone Cold face-first into a concrete pillar as Vince and Shane McMahon look on nearby. And as a result of Taker throwing him into that pillar, once again, Stone Cold's forehead has been busted open. I'd say that's a pretty wise strategy by Taker, though. Continue to make Austin bleed so that the wound will be fresh heading into tonight's first blood match. Very smart. 
And that is how Sunday Night Heat goes off the air. So, Sal, did you enjoy this final segment, and did you enjoy Sunday Night Heat as a whole? Sunday Night Heat was all right. It went by pretty quick. There wasn't anything too boring or egregious. Obviously, the Triple H interview was was really cool. Mm -hmm. And I got to be honest, this was very classic. It's very basic, but it's how you build drama for the pay-per-view. Oh, my God. Taker just busted Austin open again. Mm -hmm. How's he going to keep that wound closed going into that match? Yep. It's it's so smart. As a kid, I would absolutely have bought into this. Like, oh, no. Oh, Austin's going to bleed all over the place. Yeah, and actually on that note too, I think it's I think it was since King of the Ring, it's been three out of four Raws where Undertaker has busted Austin open, and now he's done it again. So, and I think the only one where he didn't bust Austin open, the only episode he didn't, he busted Big Show open instead. So Taker has been going Austin, on, go. yeah, he's been going on a, a massive bloodying streak here. But yeah, it is it is really smart. It's a first blood match, first one to bleed loses. So I mean, hey, there, there was also the cool visual on one of those where Austin was like lying on the mat and Taker literally grabbed Austin by the skull and squeezed his forehead and they and he started bleeding yes. off of that so kind of gross but also a very cool image but yeah so right. very good strategy by the undertaker we'll see if it pays off tonight and one final note about heat here just before we move on this episode did a healthy 4.1 rating and just for comparison's sake sal monday nitro hasn't hit a 4.1 rating since april 12th a full three and a half months ago. So yes, even the WWF's secondary show is handily clobbering their Monday night competition at this point, in case you were wondering about the current state of WCW. However, though, if you wanted to flip over to HBO tonight, Sal, instead of this pay-per-view, you could watch various WCW personalities on the sports agent sitcom Arliss. So that's nice, if you wanted to. I'm Yeah, not my thing. Um, <laughs> okay, so... I thought about this the other day because I was listening to a retro podcast and they were talking about Nitro and, oh, you know, I used to switch the channels and I used to uh, go back and forth. And I started to think, like, I really wanted to think. Cause I, I was such an avid wrestling fan that I, I needed to watch both, all of both. Even, you know, I recorded it so I would make sure to watch every segment. And I'm tr I had to think about it because especially at this point, I'm almost 40 years old. I'm 39. It was a long, long time ago. When did I give up on Nitro? Interesting. Because okay. I, I remember all of 98. And I'm like, even though the NWO was pretty fucking stale and WWF was pretty fucking awesome in 98, I still watched. When did I... Did, when does my memory of Nitro just go away? And it was, not kidding you, the week after the finger poke of doom. Oh yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. <laughs> and I don't even think I did it on purpose. I was just like, what is this shit? Yeah. And and then Hogan was with the new NWO, the the red and white and black. I, yeah. And I was just completely put off. And at that point Mick Foley was champ. Mm -hmm. They were running hard with him and Rock. I just lost it was like instant. I just lost all interest. I mean, it was going bad for a while before that, but I think that was the one that made me go, yeah, you know, I don't really care what happens in Nitro anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and honestly, it, I know people like this kind of become like a joke, but that really does make sense because, yeah, so literally Hogan wins the title back by doing literally nothing. But on the other show, 
that moment where Mankind wins the title, which happened on the same night, is a fucking all-time moment. That is one of the craziest crowds you will ever hear, and it's because Mick Foley is fucking awesome, and the people love Mick Foley. So it wasn't just like, oh, you know, finger poke a doom, and there was nothing going on on the other channel. People wanted to go to Raw to see Mick Foley and see Mick Foley's title reign. Like, they really—I was interested. It obviously didn't end up being a very long title reign, but, I mean— that Mick Foley-Rock feud was also really carrying the company for at least like a month or so there. Like the Austin feud with Taker. Austin was off TV for a while at the time for a little bit, and then yep. he was kind of with Taker. So it was a real testament to the depth of their roster at that time that you could be like, yeah, Mankind and Rock is the main feud now, and we're going to kind of you know have Austin do something else. So yeah, I mean, it was. I, I definitely can see that being a time period where a lot of people were like, screw it, I don't need to watch Nitro anymore. I don't need to be slapped in the face yet again. Let's take it back because... I think one of the th reasons people really got upset was, lest we forget who Kevin Nash won the title off of, mm -hmm. he ended Goldberg's streak when everybody knew, even me at the time, that he was involved with the booking decisions. Mm -hmm. And it was like, of course he ended Goldberg's streak. What a fucking asshole. And then to turn around and do that, it was like, wait, they ended Goldberg's streak just to put the belt on Hogan? What kind of bullshit is that? I think at that point, too, a lot of us who had watched for so, so many years were like, you know what? I am so sick of Hulk Hogan as champ. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm done with Even as the NWO, I'm just sick of it. That's all WCW has done for the past three years at this point. What you say actually makes a lot of sense, too, because it was, yeah, like, like you were saying, it's not just the finger poke being a slap in the face. It's not just Foley's title victory. But you're right, the fact that Goldberg... His streak is over, so it's like that's a huge thing where you would tune in week to week to be like, oh, is this the week Goldberg loses? Obviously on Nitro, it's probably not going to be, but I mean, you actually had that war where it's like, holy shit, he's 174-0, and and once that goes away, it's kind of like, well, that's one less reason to watch, and like Goldberg yeah. was a huge reason to watch, so yeah, didn't really make much sense at the time. In fact, it tapered for me. It tapered for me after Goldberg won the title, because like you said, now that's over. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I, I remember kind of watching more sporadically. Like, oh, I'll just read read it. I'll read it on the internet. Like, yeah. The results are... Which also, they never went back to Goldberg winning the title ever again. He had that one run from, like, July to December in 98. Yeah. And they never went back to Goldberg winning the title ever again, which you would think, with all the struggles WCW was going through... You would think they might want to try to put it on, like, the one guy who was their, one of their homegrown stars who was kicking ass and people fucking loved him. But no, they never did. They never went back to Goldberg as champion. Just that one reign. It's kind of crazy. I thought they did something with him and Brett. Or was that not have anything to do with the title? They did. Brett had the title, but... Oh, Brett had the title. Okay. Yes. And he, he, he won thanks to, I think it was a screw job at Starcade 99. I think it was, like, Roddy Piper as the ref, maybe? So, even though Goldberg... Uh... Yeah, even though Goldberg concussed the shit out of Brett, he still did manage to win the match. So, good times. Uh, and then I think it might have been literally on the next episode of Thunder was the moment when Goldberg put his hand through the limo and almost got so injured that he almost had to have his hand amputated. Yeah, and then he was out for several, several months at a, at a time when WCW probably could have used him. So, yeah, that was yeah. not good. Not good times. And also right now, not good times for WCW either because they're getting their asses kicked. And the quality is, is declining rapidly. Which is funny because this pay-per-view is not anything to write home about, but no. we'll, we'll go through it. Yeah, That's a perfect segue, actually. So on that note, are you ready to get into Fully Loaded 99? I am. Then let's do it. And by the way, for those wondering, 
Somehow, Fully Loaded 99 is rated TVMA on Peacock, and I legitimately have no idea why. I guess maybe you could make the argument it's rated mature because somebody has to bleed in the main event, but people have literally been getting bloodied every single week on Raw leading up to Fully Loaded, and none of those shows were TVMA. In all honesty, Sal... My guess would be that the people rating this show confused it with Fully Loaded 98, which had the handprint sable bikini. That's the only thing I could think of that would make any sense as to why this would be TVMA, but oh well. I mean, there was a lot of blood. There was. There was a lot of blood, yeah, in the main event. And even after the main event, which is strange. Right. So that could be, like, you know, there might be a certain cap to blood on your screen for them to be like, now we can't. We can't do this TV-14. No. Yeah. <laughs> It's a 9.0 on the Muda scale, so it has to be a TV. <laughs> so yes, it is Sunday, July 25th, 1999, and we are live from the Marine Midland Arena in Buffalo, New York, in front of a healthy crowd of 16,605 fans. And some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include a whopping 15 episodes of Raw, 10 episodes of SmackDown, 3 episodes of Nitro, and quite a few pay-per-views, including Armageddon 2008, where Jeff Hardy won his first world title by beating Edge and Triple H, Night of Champions 2011, where Triple H went over CM Punk and tried his damnedest to kill all that summer of punk momentum, and Battleground 2013, where Daniel Bryan and Randy Randy Orton fought for the vacant WWE Championship, which was being held in abeyance, and it remained in abeyance because Big Show attacked both men and the referee, so it ended in a no contest. Now, Sal, do you remember any of those uh, legendary shows? Oh, I remember them. <laughs> I wasn't happy with any of them, especially Triple H beating Punk, but I've, I've beaten that horse to death over my podcast life, so I'm not going to go there. Were you happy when Jeff Hardy won the title for the first time? Yes, yes, um, but I was also disappointed because at Survivor Series... He then lost it to Edge, and I mm. went to that Survivor Series. Oh, nice. Was that in Boston? It was in Boston, and I was really mad because they took the title off of Jeff Hardy. Oh. But also, I just realized, and I know I, I know I complained about it at the time. There was another guy that was doing the rundown with Adam. I forget his name. He'd been relegated to being called Co-Ghost. <laughs> but I, I, I do remember that they had reviewed that, and I, I can't believe it, but... In a pre-network time period, 2013, they went into a pay-per-view that people had to shell out money for with the title in abeyance, and they ended the pay-per-view with the title in abeyance. What a fucking jip! Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember at the time people being, like, not, obviously not just the Buffalo fans who were there in attendance, but people who ordered the show were very, very mad about that. I would be! <laughs> Absolutely. I'd be fucking pissed. Was this the time? I don't even remember what they did after that. I don't remember how who got the title after that. That wasn't when they did the Orton and Cena. Was it a ladder match where they unified the titles? I don't even yes. remember. Was that it? It was in December. They did a ladder match. Oh, mind you. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's uh, go back for a second because before the December pay-per-view, Survivor Series featured Randy Orton defending the title against The Big Show. Hmm. That was atrocious and boring, and I ordered it, and I was really mad about that. I don't know why I ordered it, because it was in Boston. That's why I ordered it, and I was like, if I can't be there, I might as well see it on TV, and it was awful. I, you know what? I actually, my vague memory of this, because I was not ordering the pay-per-views at the time, I was just kind of like watching Raw occasionally, but I remember yeah. at the time, because I think, if I recall correctly, that show 
was in it was in the fall, like you were saying, it was around Survivor Series. So maybe it was the October pay per view. But I remember thinking, if they're going to keep holding the title in abeyance, do what I have wanted them to do for so many years, which was put the title on the line in the Royal Rumble. Just do it. Yes. Put the title on the line. Whoever wins the Royal Rumble is the champion. And especially if they were going to unify the titles anyway, that'd be a perfect way to do it because then you'd have both Raw and SmackDown people in the Royal Rumble. Obviously, they didn't do it that year. They did that bullshit a couple of years later where Roman was the champion and he defended the title going in, which was really incredibly stupid. But I just thought that that was like the perfect time. If you were going to do this whole abeyance thing, just have the winner of the Rumble do it. Do, do the old Ric Flair 92. Funny, the guy who used to be in the rundown said the same thing back then. Yeah, that guy's, that guy's a pretty wise person, I must say. I wonder what ever happened to him. Ah, who knows? Yeah. Podcast lore, I guess. R.I.P. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the best part of it, is they do the unification. And because of all this shit with Daniel Bryan, remember they announced the unification, they have Cena and, and Orton in the ring at the same time, but oh. so are all the other wrestlers. And they're in Washington, so the entire crowd is just chanting Daniel Bryan. I do remember this, yes. And meanwhile, Stephanie's like, my husband, Triple H, the best wrestler of all time. And Punk's in the background just cracking up. Yeah, making faces, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So basically what we're trying to say is Buffalo really got shafted on a lot of these pay-per-views, essentially. Just like a lot of their Super Bowls. Oh! Oh, oh four in a row. Painful memories. Seriously. They're a lot better now, though. They, they probably could have won it all last year. Could have. But they didn't. You know what they got to do? Got to put more people through tables. That's the answer. That's right. That's the answer. So we officially kick off Fully Loaded with a very strange opening video, I thought, which features a woman singing with a German accent for some reason. She sings like, I'll be missing you when you go. And we see black and white clips of the Austin McMahon rivalry, along with some other random clips like soldiers heading off to war and Lou Gehrig delivering his retirement speech. This was certainly... A choice. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's something. But once that ends, we kick into our second pyro display of the night, along with even more scanning of the crowd. And some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight, and there were a lot of them, include... We're fully loaded. My ass is better than Billy Guns. It burns when I pee. China is my mother. I'm here to whip Austin's ass. Hung like a horse with an arrow pointing downward. I toss their salad with arrows pointing to the left and right. Bring back the berserker. Do you smell what the roids are cooking? I want a piece of ass, man. I'm watching your kids. This guy farted with an arrow pointing to the right. Perplexingly, the undertaker is a fat woman. Holly, I want you hardcore. Austin, 100% puss ass. The real big show is in my pants. Mustache rides five cents. Mr. Ass Hole. Shane is a big floppy donkey dick. (laughs) Stephanie loves the third input. (laughs) And on a related note, Stephanie Hart's test ickles. Hey, Rock, you, me, bubble bath match. A sign with the initials WCW, but it stands for Women Beaters Championship Wrestling. And I know that sounds bad on its surface, but that fan is clearly referencing the fact that WCW literally just did an angle where Randy Savage was abusing his girlfriend, Gorgeous George. 
And finally, in a true sign of the times, Woodstock sucks. And this is where I'm going to take you back to 1999, Sal, because yes, as this pay-per-view was airing, the disaster that was Woodstock 99 was just coming to a close, only about three hours away from this arena in Rome, New York. And in case you really want to feel like you're back in high school, Godsmack was performing on the West stage while Creed was performing on the East stage right as Fully Loaded was kicking off. And honestly, it gives me a really warm, fuzzy feeling to know that because these events were so close in proximity, there were almost certainly people who attended both Fully Loaded and Woodstock 99 that weekend. So on that note, Sal, do you have any fond memories of Woodstock 99? Oh, man. Everybody blamed Limp Bizkit. And I, of course, was a Limp Bizkit fan. <laughs> to the point that my father, who hated modern music at that time, despised it, turns to me as he's watching the news and goes, aren't those those friggin' assholes you like? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I, uh, mm, oh. I'm like, oh, fuck. Why did they have to cause a riot? <laughs> But, Dad, the song was called Break Stuff. They had to break stuff. <laughs> I remember thinking that, and I was right, I, I remember thinking when all this stuff came out about, you know, what happened with the chili peppers and the riots and the water, and I'm like, you know, the idea of Woodstock was great in 69, or mm -hmm. whatever they had the original one, and I understand that they just brought it back in 94 because they thought they'd make some money off of the name. Mm-hmm. But I think they did one too many. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I remember the one in 94. I think that was when Green Day became a big name because it was like, yes. oh, they're having mud fights with the fans and all this sort of thing. And Which they... apparently was cool, but let's be honest, that was the preload to setting shit on fire. Right, yeah. It's all Green Day's fault. That's who we have to blame. That's true. By the way, Sal, on this note too, on the note of Woodstock... ICP, the Insane Clown Posse, just debuted on Nitro on Monday, and then just days later, they performed at Woodstock 99. So again, another little connection there where Woodstock 99 ties into the wrestling world. So we have ICP there, and we have, as I was just saying, fully loaded, just literally three hours away. So Wait, my timeline is really screwed up then, oh, because okay. why, or when did they um, join up with the um, the circus people? What were they called? They had Kurgan in it. Oh, the Oddities. The Oddities, yeah, that was it. Yep, that was the year prior. That was summer of '98 because they do. Uh, if you go back and watch SummerSlam '98, they're Shit. doing they're doing the theme song and the crowd's going crazy. It's actually pretty cool. So to they see. were in WWF first. They were. Yep. See, I misremembered that. I always thought they were in WCW first. No, I think they might have also been in ECW maybe before this as well too. So they definitely made the rounds before creating their own promotion called Juggalo Champion Shit Wrestling, if I recall correctly, which is of course classic. <laughs> so yes so yes Woodstock 99 was this same weekend as well and again anybody out there if you attended fully loaded 99 and or Woodstock 99 definitely reach out at raw attitude pod because I'd like to hear that story for sure and so once that scanning of the crowd concludes they reshow the footage from heat a few minutes ago where the undertaker attacked stone cold backstage and bloodied him and we then go live to Austin who is being tended to by an EMT and that EMT tells the angry Stone Cold he's going to need stitches, and we then cut elsewhere backstage where Vince and Shane McMahon are watching on a monitor. 
So Michael Cole asks Vince about Taker's attack, to which Vince responds he had nothing to do with it, but he guarantees that The Undertaker will defeat Austin tonight and win back the WWF title. And by the way, for those of you scoring at home, Vince is now on crutches instead of being confined to a wheelchair after his real-life motorcycle accident, just in case you were wondering, and also that kind of comes into play later on tonight. And so we go back into the arena for our first match of the pay-per-view, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental title, your brand new champion Edge versus Jeff Jarrett, who is accompanied by Deborah. And when Edge is doing his customary entrance of making his way through the crowd, we do actually get some still photographs of him winning the title at last night's house show at Sky Dome, so there is some proof that it happened, albeit not in video form. And quickly, by the way, on the note of Deborah's outfit tonight, it is... Truly something to behold. So she's wearing a lime green bra and a lime green thong, both of which are barely concealed by a lime green suit coat. So pretty bizarre, but back in 1999, you probably thought you already got your money's worth for the pay-per-view right off the bat. And speaking of Deborah, before the match begins, Jarrett grabs a mic and says that no one is going to see the puppies because they belong to him, to which I say, uh, Jeff, did you happen to notice what she's wearing? Because we can kind of see them already, but I digress. And early on in the match, Jerry Lawler is, of course, talking about the puppies, and he tells Jim Ross that he also likes other animals, such as chicks, har har, and then Lawler just flat out says, quote, I love beavers! And he also mentions pussycats. So, you know, the king is not exactly known for subtlety, but this may be the least subtle he's ever been. Good lord. Actually, you know what? Maybe this is the reason why we're TVMA tonight. Uh, It wouldn't exactly shock me. Uh, Okay, so... (laughs) Yeah, Deborah. Deborah was quite, quite a sight to behold. I'd like to behold her. Nah, <laughs> I'd like to be beholding her. There it is. Yeah, but but Jerry Lyle being like, oh, I like beavers. I was like, oh for fuck's sake. <laughs> and actually, on the note of animals, by the way, Sal, I don't know if you saw this, but at several points when the camera is focused on the action in the ring. We can clearly see that a bat is flying by the camera. If you want to timestamp on Peacock, the first instance is around 12 minutes and 55 seconds. But it happens at least one other time during this match as well. So clearly, they left those arena doors open a little bit too long. And I'm sure now, probably uh, you know, 10% of the audience got rabies. <laughs> as for the match itself, at one point, Edge went for a spear, but Jarrett sidestepped him and tossed Edge over the top rope and down to the floor. And then the lights went out. And the Broods music played, the usual procedure for when someone is about to get a bloodbath. However, when the lights come back on, we saw that Edge had actually knocked Gangrel down to the ground, and there was a puddle of blood off to the side, which Gangrel clearly did not pour on Edge. So yes, as if Gangrel wasn't already made to look like a total jobber, he just failed to give Edge a bloodbath, even though he had the element of surprise. Yikes. I wrote, so that's all anyone ever had to do to avoid a bloodbath? <laughs> yep, exactly. Just step out of the way. Just step out of the way and, like, punch Gangrel so he can't, like, can't jump you. Yep, exactly. <sighs> and so because of that, because Gangrel didn't do anything, our Intercontinental title match continues on, and Edge actually does manage to hit Jarrett with a spear this time, but Jarrett had been working over Edge's shoulder throughout the match, so Edge didn't immediately cover Jarrett because his shoulder was in pain. But, of course, as was the custom for Jeff Jarrett matches at the time, Deborah then got up on the ring apron and tried to distract Edge. And while she was doing that, Jarrett punched Edge in the face with Edge's momentum causing him to fall backwards right into Deborah, knocking her down to the floor. 
A concerned Edge then went over to check on Deborah, but that allowed Gangrel to reemerge, and he dropped Edge neck-first onto the top rope while Jarrett was distracting referee Earl Hebner. From there, Jarrett hit Edge with the still-unnamed Russian Leg Sweep Facebuster. He made the cover, Hebner made the count, and yes, that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and the new WWF Intercontinental Champion, Jeff Jarrett. And by the way, Sal, we have some history here. This is Jarrett's fifth Intercontinental title reign, which means he has now surpassed Razor Ramon for the most IC title reigns in WWF history. So funny enough, that fluke victory that Edge got one night prior actually allowed Jarrett to pad his stats a little bit. Mm. And by the way, also, just to close the loop on Edge's one-day title reign here, in that same Loudwire interview, he was asked if he was bummed out about only having the title for 24 hours before having to give it right back to Jarrett, and Edge's response was that he actually felt good about it because he saw it as an acknowledgement that the company was willing to get behind him and actually let him have a singles title. So there you go, taking a, a positive perspective. But anyway, Sal, the segment is surprisingly not over just yet. But before we get into the next part, what did you think of Jeff Jarrett versus Edge? It was okay. I mean, the, the Edge was starting to get a little bit exciting at this point. For those who don't remember, before he was the rated R superstar, he was the plucky babyface that people got behind, and and he fought his ass off in his matches, and kind of played like the Kofi Kingston role before the <laughs> New Day, where he never was like a main eventer, but he was good to have like a good mid card feud, right? But this was the start of it, which I thought was kind of nice. I was surprised that Jeff won it back because I thought Jeff was on his way out the door. Hmm, coming soon. I was going to say, I might be just a couple of pay-per-views off. Spoiler alert. But yes, you are correct. <laughs> but yeah, I liked the match. I thought it was solid. The only, my only tiny little nitpick about the booking was you have Gangrel fail, but then stick around and ultimately cost Edge the match. But why not just avoid the whole bloodbath spot and just have him do what he did anyway? I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if, he, if he gave him the bloodbath. Would that be grounds for a disqualification? Might be grounds for a count-out if he did it on the outside of the ring. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I wonder if they ever do that. I, I, I'm guessing they probably don't, but, I mean, if somebody tries to give a bloodbath during a match, does the ref just call it off? I feel like he probably should, but anyway. I guess we'll never know, presumably. But yes, so Jarrett gets the victory, but while he's putting on his newly won Intercontinental title, we cut backstage where Steve Austin is getting bandaged up by an EMT who tells him that the stitches in his head will only stay closed for a little while, and Stone Cold then storms out the door, and yes, he makes his way to the ring, and just like he did two weeks ago on Raw, he then proceeds to interrupt Jeff Jarrett and hit him with a Stone Cold stunner right in front of his real-life girlfriend, Deborah. Austin then grabs a mic and says if he's going into the main event with stitches in his head, then it's only fair that The Undertaker does the same, and so he's going to head backstage, find Taker, and bloody him up before the main event as well. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. So Sal, did you enjoy this impromptu Steve Austin promo? Oh man, was it good to hear an original Steve Austin pop in 1999. Mm. Man, that brings me back. That fucking crowd gets loud for him. In fact, this whole show felt like, oh my God, I can't wait for Steve Austin to come back on the screen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it wasn't, I'm not even knocking the, the, the rest of the card. I'm just saying that that's the type of presence he had still at this point. Oh yeah, he he is the big reason for for the show, for watching the show at this point in time, for sure. When he said, 
if I'm going to be bloodied, so is The Undertaker. Or, you know, if I'm going to have stitches, so is it. I was like, oh, hell yeah. Go back there and find Taker. Beat the fuck out of him. From your couch, you gave him a hell yeah? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I guess we'll see if he will be able to do that by the time the main event rolls around. Hmm. We shall see. Hmm. And from there, we head into our next match, and it is for the WWF Tag Team Titles Champions, the Hardy Boys and Michael P.S. Hayes versus the Acolytes, and in a bit of advantage for the challengers, this match will be contested under quote-unquote Acolyte rules. And by the way, yes, you heard that correctly. Even though this match is for the tag team titles, it's somehow a three-on-two match with Michael Hayes teaming with the Hardys. Okay, then. Henry? Oh, yes. I understand that that the original Freebird rule was was from Michael Hayes, but... Can you explain to me how this came about, having not watched the Raw before this? Why is it a three-on-two match? There's no explanation whatsoever. I didn't even know until I came <laughs> on the show. Like, I knew the I knew the Hardys were facing the Acolytes in an Acolyte rules match, but it was never stated, at least not on Raw, it was never stated, oh, it's going to be the Hardys and Michael Hayes. I just assumed it would be the Hardys. So, right. whoops. But actually, on the note, speaking of Michael Hayes, though, before the match even begins, he gets some mic time backstage where he says that he took the Hardys from being, quote, curtain jerkers to the tag team titles under his leadership, and tonight he's going to lead by example. So, to no one's surprise, Michael Hayes, bit of a dick. I would like to take this moment to point out that my 15-year-old brain was going, why is Doc Hendricks so angry? <laughs> <laughs> He was always so smiley before. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so we get off to a hot start here as the Acolytes actually attack the Hardys and Michael Hayes in the aisle before they can even get to the ring. And early on, we see that Michael Hayes may be a little bit rusty when it comes to selling because Bradshaw hits him with a clothesline from hell, but Hayes kind of turns his head before the impact. So Michael Hayes ends up selling a clothesline by landing face first on the ground. So... I guess he was always more of the promo guy in the Freebirds as opposed to the workhorse. But on the other hand, the Hardys quickly take to the sky for some of those high-flying moves they've become known for as Jeff dives over the top rope and hits a somersault plancha onto Bradshaw, and Matt then follows up with a moonsault from the top turnbuckle onto both Acolytes down on the floor. Really good stuff. And interestingly, shortly after that, Jeff Hardy actually hits... Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, just just going to have to point out that so good in fact that they're still doing the same spots 22 years later that's right Tw- 23 years later 23 actually. that's right <laughs> and yes actually after that by the way though here's what i found was interesting too jeff hardy hits a swanton bomb onto farouk which jim ross actually calls a senton splash but obviously wasn't quite jeff's finisher yet because farouk kicks out at two and if you want another highlight from this match at one point Bradshaw himself actually went to the top turnbuckle and hit Matt Hardy with a top rope ba- top rope back suplex. So yes, JBL, aerial expert. However, Jeff Hardy broke up the pinfall attempt before the three count could be registered. And by the way, I also have to note here that the acolyte rules apparently just mean no disqualification, but nobody took advantage of that stipulation until probably about 10 minutes into the match when Jeff Hardy hit Bradshaw in the head with Michael Hayes' cane, and Hayes ends up using the cane one, one other time in the match, and that is literally it. The match was billed as acolyte rules, and it basically ends up being a standard tag match where a cane gets used twice. And in fact, the team who the match is named after 
never even took advantage of their own stipulation. So, really bizarre. To be fair, when you see the rest of the card, you understand why these guys didn't go that crazy. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. We do get a little bit more craziness later on, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But from there, we got the spot which probably received the biggest reaction of the match. The Hardys set up for Poetry in Motion with Jeff getting a running start and leaping off of Matt's back. But when he did that... Bradshaw nailed Jeff with a clothesline from hell while Jeff was in midair, and that actually looked pretty awesome, and it even caused Jerry Lawler to ask for a replay. And shortly after that, we go right to the finish. With Matt and Jeff recuperating outside the ring, Michael Hayes was left alone with Farouk and Bradshaw, and they proceeded to nail him with a spike powerbomb. Bradshaw made the cover, referee Tim White made the count, and ladies and gentlemen, we have new... WWF Tag Team Champions. The Acolytes are now two-time champs. We've had two matches so far here at Fully Loaded, and both have resulted in title changes, so certainly off to an interesting start. Sal, what did you think of our Tag Team Title Acolytes rules match? It it was fun seeing the Young Hardys uh, do their thing against a team like the Acolytes. It was very confusing to (laughs) see Michael Hayes get pinned, and the Acolytes call themselves the new tag jams. Yeah. That's fucking dumb. The Acolytes don't need, like... That's something you do for a heel like The Miz. Right. I feel like the Acolytes are big bruisers. They don't need uh, a cop-out like that. So that just kind of felt weird. Yeah. This struck me as, like, going in. This struck me as the old, like, oh, you know, welcome to the big leagues, boys. Now we're going to put you in with Farouk and Bradshaw. I, I thought it was a pretty entertaining match. The addition of Michael Hayes, I guess, was probably a way of, you know, maybe protecting the Hardys because they can say, well, Michael Hayes lost the match, and I yeah. guess we'll see where that goes if Michael Hayes ends up paying a price for that. But this also surprised me, too, because I think I've mentioned before, I don't remember the Acolytes having any title reigns, at least not until they go into a new, you know, their their other incarnation, which happens, mm. I think, within the next year. So it was a surprise to me that they have now won the tag team titles twice in the span of about two months, so... You know, good for them, I guess, but good match. I'll note this as well. I note this, I think, in the next match as well, that even though the crowd is getting some pretty solid action here, they're pretty much silent for most of this show, which is really off-putting, but oh well. But from there, we go backstage where Kevin Kelly is with D'Lo Brown, who says that it's been nine long months since he last held the European title, and he's actually right about that time frame. D'Lo lost the belt to X-Pac at Judgment Day last October and hasn't held it since, although obviously it was deactivated for a while. And I will say, Sal, I don't know about you, but when I think of the European title, D'Lo is usually the first wrestler I think of. Do you agree or do you think of somebody else? Probably D'Lo, yeah. I mean, a little bit of uh, X-Pac too, but, but definitely D'Lo. Yeah, that makes sense, because they were, they were kind of feuding and going back and forth with the belt last fall. When I picture the European title, I picture D'Lo and his, you know, being billed as from Helsinki and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, good in times. In later years, I will say that Regal also got a stake in that. Yes, but, um, yes. But yeah, initially, yeah, you think of D'Lo. Yeah. And so that interview with D'Lo provides a fitting segue, because it is now time for our European title match, champion Midian versus challenger D'Lo Brown. Now, for the record, I don't have many good things to say about Midian, but I do enjoy the fact that his wrist tape and finger tape are colored green to match his shirt and boots. That's something. It at least looks unique. Sure. But on that note, it's probably not a good sign that this is the third straight match where the crowd is silent the entire time. And like I was saying, the Buffalo fans are usually a rowdy bunch. But tonight, well, let's just say that they find the undercard underwhelming. 
And I'll be honest with you, when I saw that we had a Midian match on the card, I assumed they would keep this short, but not really because this ended up going for just over seven minutes. And I'll be honest, for me, it felt a lot more like 17 because Midian was controlling the pace the entire time. Obviously, I I love D-Law. I mean, I named my son after him, but Midian is just, he's just not a good wrestler. So apologies to you Midian fans out there in advance, but... Eventually, though, we came to our finish. D'Lo ducked a clothesline from Midian, and he then picked him up for his sky-high powerbomb. And from there, he hit a leg drop, then went to the top rope and drilled Midian with his low-down frog splash. D'Lo made the cover. Referee Mike Kyoto made the count. And yes, your winner and the new WWF European champion for a record third time is indeed D'Lo Brown. And that victory did get a very nice pop from the crowd. So now we have had three matches on this card, and we have had three different title changes. Does that bode well for The Undertaker later on tonight? I suppose we'll see. But Sal, what did you think of Midian versus D'Lo? Was I being too hard on this one? No, and and the crowd didn't help it at all because my note, my only note was, oh, yay, new European champ, (laughs) three title changes, and all three of them fell flat. Yeah, it's true. It really felt like a bad start to this show and you would think three title changes oh wow this is a crazy show not really Mm-mm. this match specifically like you said maybe it was only eight minutes in actuality but oh man was i bored this was the match where i started being like oh should i get a snack should i grab a drink like yeah yeah midian is anytime he's in a like a singles match i always assume like they need to keep this short because he's he's just not that dude you know he can't really especially on a pay-per-view when you obviously are given more time. Having Midian wrestle on a pay-per-view in a solo match, later on he ends up teaming with Viscera, I believe, and they have a little tag team. But as of right now, don't uh, don't trust Midian to carry a match by himself because it's just not going to work. Exactly. So after that match concludes, we get a brief but funny moment backstage. Since Stone Cold had vowed to find The Undertaker and bloody him up before tonight's main event, a cameraman is following Austin around on his search, but apparently the rattlesnake doesn't appreciate that, so he shoves the cameraman onto his ass. Simple, but effective. And then from there, we go elsewhere backstage where Michael Cole was with WWF hardcore champion Al Snow and Head, who, as a reminder, has a railroad spike through her head, courtesy of Draws and Prince Albert giving her a quote-unquote piercing. And in case you want a synopsis of this interview, Al Snow is now crazier than usual and is hearing Head constantly screaming because of that aforementioned piercing, so okay then. And that segues us into our fourth straight championship match of the night, WWF Hardcore Champion Al Snow, accompanied by Head, versus The Big Boss Man. And much like the Acolytes earlier tonight, Al Snow decides to head up the ramp and meet The Boss Man there before he can get to the ring. And similar to what happened last week on Raw, Al Snow essentially begs Boss Man to put him out of his misery, and Boss Man says that he will, but he's going to make Al Snow suffer first. And the way Boss Man does that is by taking his nightstick and whacking the railroad spike in Head's... uh, Head which in turn causes Al Snow's head to hurt as well. And no, I also cannot believe that I actually just had to speak that sentence. But as it turns out, Bossman's strategy backfires because now he has pissed Al Snow off, and Snow, and so the fight is on at the top of the ramp. And early on, strangely, Bossman actually manages to put Al Snow into some sort of box, which is presumably supposed to be hauling equipment, but he forgets to lock it, so Al escapes. 
And then, as you could probably guess, because this is a hardcore title match in 1999, we quickly take the fight backstage, where various foreign objects are utilized, including the dreaded cookie sheet. Although, so I have to say, their trip backstage actually did provide me with one of the highlights of this show so far, because when they're brawling, you can clearly see a random dude wearing a fanny pack walking over to a payphone in the background, and when he realizes what's going on, he just turns around and walks away like, nope, I'm out of here. <laughs> that was pretty funny anyway. That was good. And shortly after that, Al Snow grabs a pitcher of hot coffee, and then he delivers a line which completely confused me, quote, we're not in a porno, and then he throws the coffee into Boss Man's face. I am 99% sure that's what Al Snow said there, but if someone wants to go back and double check, by all means, feel free to do so. I am very sure he said, we're not in a porno, and I don't know why he said that. <laughs> I, I, I... 100% being honest, I didn't catch what he said, so I, I, I'll I believe you. <laughs> yeah. I know he said something, and I just couldn't pick it up. I remember my note from this was, no, not the hot coffee. That was it, yep. That was the coffee spot. The, the quote-unquote hot coffee. But yes, then, of course, because this pay-per-view was already going so well... Bossman threw Al Snow into a metal gate, and he then hopped into a golf cart, and it looked like Bossman was preparing to drive the cart into Al Snow, but he couldn't get it to start, so he had to abandon the idea. Ladies and gentlemen, fully loaded 99 in a nutshell right there. I wrote, stupid golf cart doesn't know how to work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so from there, they actually end up heading outside, where Bossman delivers a bulldog on Al Snow right onto the sidewalk, but somehow that only gets a two count, and then for good measure, he also hits Al Snow with a brick, and yet still only two. And at this point, they start brawling into the street where a car has to jam on its brakes so that it doesn't hit them. I'm pretty sure that was a planned spot, but still, it did, it did amuse me nonetheless. But then we get to our finish, and it was truly stupid. So Bossman proceeded to pull out two pairs of handcuffs, and he then cuffed both of Al's arms to a nearby gate, and Bossman then took out a baton and hit Al Snow in the ribs and the face with it. Al collapsed to the ground, but because his arms were cuffed to the gate, he was literally sitting on his ass because he couldn't lie on his back. So even though Al Snow was in a seated position with his back resting against the gate, Bossman put his foot on Al's neck and referee Jimmy Corderas counted to three. Let me repeat that. We got a pinfall where the person who got pinned was literally sitting on his ass. Doesn't that literally violate the very first rule of wrestling? I mean, I don't mean to be hyperbolic here, but whoever came up with that finish should also have a railroad spike driven through their skull, just like Head did. But regardless, your winner and the new WWF Hardcore Champion for the second time is indeed the big boss man. And so our streak continues. We've had four title matches so far and four title changes. Truly historic stuff. And Sal, at this point, I did a little research to try and figure out which WWF slash WWE pay-per-view featured the most different title changes in one night. And I say different because in the future, there are going to be shows where the hardcore title itself will change hands multiple times in the same night. Right. And actually, the show, which appears to have set the record for most title changes, happened only a few years ago. WrestleMania 35, our final pre-pandemic WrestleMania, because on that show, there were nine title matches, and eight of those matches 
featured new champions being crowned. So I guess that's how you keep people interested during a seven and a half hour show. And in case you were wondering, the only champion who kept his title on that night was Samoa Joe, who beat Rey Mysterio in under a minute to retain his United States Championship. So a little trivia for you there. But anyway, Sal, getting back to tonight, what did you think of Al Snow versus the Big Boss Man? And were you as enraged as I was about that ridiculous finish? Well, I, I will say this, that this was the first point of the night that I actually was interested in the match. Not mm. not really because of the feud, but visually it was great. You know, they, they spill out into the street. The car spot was great, even if it was planned. It was just, it, it worked for this fight. I wasn't mad at the pinning against the fence. I was just confused because, granted, and I will say this, when Bossman pulled out that retractable baton, I've seen those things before at Hampton Beach. They are no fucking joke. They will they will beat you to death if someone were to hit you with one of those. So when he hit Al in the head and Al went out, I think it would have been better off if, if uh, the referee was just like, He's out. I'm calling this match. Mm -hmm. Like, don't mm -hmm. even do a pinfall. Just award Bossman the hardcore title. Or, or don't bother cuffing Al Snow's arms first. Just beat him with the baton and then pin him on the sidewalk or something. Well, I think they wanted to cuff his arms so he couldn't protect himself. I think that was the gimmick. That's so true, that yeah. it, it looks like, oh, my God, Bossman's just going to murder him now. So they did a good job with that. But like, like you said, if you can't make the cover, then don't do the cover. Just have, just have the ref stop the match. And I understand it's a hardcore match, but... I don't know. He's like, he's out. He's knocked out. There's no point in continuing. Yeah. I do agree with you, though. Aside from the, the finish, which obviously I was not a fan of, it was a very entertaining hardcore match, especially, like you said, the going in the street and the, the goofy backstage brawling with the coffee that was not from a porno. Yes, there was some good stuff there. Oh, and, of course, the guy with the payphone who was, I think, not supposed to be on camera and was just like, oh, I got to go. So there yeah. was some good stuff there. But yeah, I don't think I have ever seen a wrestling match where someone got pinned while they literally were like at a 90 degree angle sitting on their ass. So more history being made at fully loaded 99, I suppose. The other thing, too, is at this point, I felt kind of overdid it with the amount of title changes. Because in my mind, especially since Austin got cut before the pay-per-view started... I'm thinking, you know, they're really laying it on thick here. Like, ooh, every title has changed hands. Is mm -hmm. Austin's going to change? And that's too much because then you know, well, obviously Austin's not going to lose. You know what I mean? It felt like there's too many title changes. You're stacking the deck too much, and it's obvious. Mm -hmm. Well, you never know. We'll see what happens. That's true. And so we move on to our next match. And Sal, this one is not for a title. It is the Big Show versus Kane with special guest referee, the Big Shot, Hardcore Holly. And Holly actually gets some mic time backstage with Kevin Kelly before the match as he says that neither man better step out of line or he'll beat both of their asses. Okay promo here, but I have to say, Sal, I didn't remember Hardcore Holly's Big Shot phase being so entertaining. He's actually pretty amusing in this role, so kudos to that curmudgeonly bastard for entertaining me. And we have an interesting wardrobe choice for the Big Show tonight, by the way. He's wearing black tights with the Big Show written on the ass. And I bring this up solely because it was a very strange sight to see him wearing trunks with anything on them. Usually they're just plain black, and frankly, it was very jarring to see. But what was even more jarring to see was a spot which occurred shortly after the match started. Kane just about 6'10 and a half, maybe 6'11. Big Show 7 feet 2. <laughs> Oh, my. This is... No, I, can you believe that? Oh, my God. Good God Almighty. Can, 
just military pressed a 300-plus pounder in Kane and then threw him right over the top rope to the floor like Kane was a small child. Yes, what you heard there was the Big Show picking Kane up for a press slam, which is pretty damn impressive to see. But of course, I thought Show was going to just drop him down to the mat. But no, with Kane being held high above his head, the Big Show threw Kane over the top rope and down to the floor with Kane landing back first right on the ground. I mean, holy shit. I don't care what else happens on this show. That's the spot of the night right there. Seriously, go back and watch this because it is fucking brutal. I mean, Kane just lands with an absolute thud right on the ground. Unreal. And of course, I think the reason why this spot turned out that way is because it was unintentional. I'm pretty sure Kane was trying to grab the top rope when Big Show was about to toss him out of the ring, but he wasn't able to get a hold of it, and so he plummeted to the floor. I'm guessing he was supposed to land on his feet because once Kane falls to the ground, instead of selling it as he probably should have done, he just gets right back up to his feet after only a few seconds. So 1999 Kane was indeed one tough dude. 2022 Kane is a bit of a fucking idiot, but that's a, whole, that's a completely other story. And in yet another sign that the crowd for this show is completely dead, you can actually hear Big Show yelling at a fan who's heckling him. Show says to him, and I quote, Kiss my ass, fat boy. Eat a salad once in a while, you pudgy bastard. <laughs> I kind of laughed at that. <laughs> yeah. Although, spoiler alert, only about a year after this pay-per-view, Big Show will be demoted down to Ohio Valley Wrestling because the company wants him to lose weight. So perhaps it is he who needs to eat a salad once in a while. But anyway, getting back to the action, I have to say, Sal, I was surprised that Big Show pretty much dominated this entire match. It went for just a little more than eight minutes, and I'd have to guess that Big Show was probably kicking Kane's ass for about seven of those eight minutes. I kind of expected more of a back and forth between these two because they're both huge monsters, but no, it was pretty much all Big Show. However, Kane did manage to eventually mount a comeback, and at one point he grabbed Show by the throat with the intention of choke slamming him... But then your special guest referee, Hardcore Holly, chop-blocked Kane's knee from behind. And I have to note, Holly had been impartial up to that point, but he finally tipped his hand. And so that enabled Big Show to grab Kane by the throat and hit a chokeslam of his own. He made the cover, and Holly amusingly made a very fast three-count. And so your winner of the match is indeed the Big Show. A rare pay-per-view victory for show at this point. He's been in the company since February, and this is literally the first time he's gotten a singles victory at a pay-per-view. He did get a win as part of the union at Over the Edge, but he was actually eliminated during the match, so he still ended up taking somewhat of a loss even during a victory. Quite the bumpy ride for him so far in the WWF. But Sal, before we get into the post-match shenanigans, what did you think of the big show versus Kane? Well, I do have to comment on on what you just said there. I, mm. That is atrocious. You bring in a guy like the size of Paul White, and he, this is his first win, and he needed help to do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Holy shit, and we wonder why this guy couldn't get over. Anyway, <laughs> I I couldn't believe the press slam because of the noise it made as we yeah. heard during that clip. Oh, my God. There's 328 pounds of cane just going thud. From about mm. 10 feet, 15 feet in the air. Oh, my, and you got to figure, Big Show himself is 7 feet tall. He's going to lift his arms straight up in the air. That's 10 feet. And then you're not going to the mat. You're going to the floor. So, <laughs> yep. holy fuck, what a bump that was. Side note, Big Show in trunks. Gross. <laughs> yeah. With lettering on them. Trunks you with lettering on them. never, ever do that. No, no. It doesn't work. Singlets 
or nothing. No, I no, not nothing. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, not not nothing exactly. That's a different Big Show era. Well, as, as that fan in the crowd who had the sign in the front row said, the real Big Show is in my pants. So there you go. But yeah, I'm I'm glad Big Show won because it would have made no sense if Kane just beat him like a bitch. But no, that was the previous month at uh, King of the Ring. That's when that happened. That's true. <laughs> But yeah, that, again, not a great match. And like we were saying, when, when you can hear Big Show's, when you can completely hear everything Big Show is saying to a fan, probably an indication that uh, the fans aren't too interested in it. But as soon as the match concludes, though, we get some interesting antics afterward. So let's take a listen to how this all goes down. So there was a lot to take in there, but here's the general summary. Since Hardcore Holly screwed Kane out of a win, the Big Red Machine's tag team partner, X-Pac, immediately ran down to the ring and kicked Holly in the face, 
But shortly after he did that, The Undertaker also came to the ring, and he proceeded to chokeslam X-Pac, presumably as payback for Kane siding with X-Pac on Raw last week instead of him. And then The Undertaker and The Big Show actually worked together and put the boots to Kane, but it appears as though this was a situation where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Although, with that being said, though, when Taker left the ring, he actually gave a bit of a look to The Big Show as if he was giving him his approval. Very interesting, but Show hasn't fully turned heel yet because he actually does the noble thing and he helps his pal Hardcore Holly to the backstage area. So that was sweet. But speaking of the backstage area, as you heard there, as soon as The Undertaker went through the curtain, Stone Cold Steve Austin jumped him. And because turnabout is fair play, Austin threw Taker face first into a concrete pillar. And yes, because of that attack, The Undertaker is now busted wide open. And so going into the first blood match, both Stone Cold and Taker have fresh wounds on their forehead. So I guess we will see which competitor will be able to take advantage of those weaknesses. And from there, it is now time for our next match. And it is an Iron Circle match, Ken Shamrock versus Steve Blackman. Now you're probably asking yourself, what in God's name is an Iron Circle match? Well, truthfully, the concept sounds a lot cooler than it actually is because an Iron Circle match pretty much just means that a bunch of cars are parked in a circle in a parking garage and various wrestlers are standing around banging on their hoods and honking their horns. And the first man to leave the circle is your winner, or at least that's what Jim Ross tells us. More on that in just a moment. And Sal, I couldn't help but wonder if the WWF was inspired by the Junkyard Invitational that WCW had just done a few weeks prior at Bash at the Beach, since this pretty much has the same concept and rules, but instead of spending $100,000 and putting it in an incredibly dangerous junkyard, they just said, eh, fuck it, film it in the garage. Just a couple things here. When Big, when Taker came out and started and helped the big show in the last segment, oh yeah, sure. I instantly thought, oh, is this when they started teaming up? Perhaps. More on that later. Yes. Second thing, they did a really good job here. Because as Taker is is in the ring, I'm thinking, where's Austin? Austin said he was going to bloody him. Where is Austin? Mm -hmm. And they they got me. Because I thought this was a missed opportunity. Austin, uh, Taker's right here. And then Austin attacked him in the back. I'm like, yes! Perfect! Once again, Steve Austin brings the show back from the dead. and, And the crowd is on their feet as he bloodies the Undertaker, and it's good storytelling because, like you said, here we are. Now both men are going into the into the world title match with fresh wounds. Good stuff. Very first thing about this match with Shamrock and Blackman. My first note: What the fuck is an Iron Circle match? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Second note: Oh, it's a parking lot brawl. <laughs> yep. the The name sounds a lot cooler than what it actually looks like. Yes. Yes. Hundred percent. But actually, on the note of that, at the start of the match, we do get some fun spots here as Shamrock and Blackman kind of take turns trying to hit each other, but the person would move out of the way and something would get broken. So, for example, Blackman moves and Shamrock smashes a windshield, then Shamrock moves and Blackman ends up kicking out a window. So, so far, so good. And Sal, I don't know if you noticed this, but one of the wrestlers who was standing around next to a car during this whole ordeal was none other than Kurt Angle. He's still a few months away from his official debut, but he gets a front row seat to watch Shamrock and Blackman smash up some vehicles. Oh, it's true. It's damn true. Did you notice Angle being there? I didn't, and now I want to go back and watch that. (laughs) Do it. Check it out. That's awesome. It's a short match, and I I was actually pretty entertained by it, but I'll get to that in just a second. But yeah, Kurt Angle is there in the parking garage. 
So since Blackman is kind of being portrayed as a weapons expert around this time, by the way, it should come as no surprise that he introduces several weapons early on in the match, most notably a metal chain and a tire iron. Unfortunately for Blackman, though, he's not able to connect with either one. But on the note of that metal chain, it doesn't take long before Shamrock grabs it for himself, wrapping the chain around his fist and punching Blackman in the face. And then from there, Shamrock takes the chain and chokes Blackman with it until he passes out. And at that point, we can hear a bell ringing back in the arena. So apparently the match is over? Because because JR said that the winner must exit the circle, but no, it looks like the match has ended because Blackman has been choked into unconsciousness. So, okay then. And in case you at home think I'm glossing over anything here, this whole match lasted less than four and a half minutes. I kind of expected it to go significantly longer since they took the time to set up those cars and film on location in a garage. But no, Shamrock wins in very short order. But then again, maybe I'm just bitter because I was actually enjoying this brawl before it came to an abrupt conclusion. But maybe that's just me. Sal, what what did you think of the Iron Circle match? Well, after the abrupt conclusion, I, I wrote, that was pointless. And like you said, I, I was kind of into it, and then it just stopped. So I'm like, oh, all right, fuck, fuck that then. <laughs> yeah. It struck me as very surprising that they would take all the time to set this whole thing up and then just be like, eh, you guys got four and a half minutes. Good luck. Yeah. Also, I was very confused by the bell ringing and JR being like, yeah, we're, we're done here, folks. I'm like. Yep. While Shamrock and Blackman were both still in the circle, despite yeah, JR saying I you had to you escape. I thought you had to leave the circle. <laughs> yep. I feel like they should have swapped the time. Like, I feel like Blackman and Shamrock should have been given the seven minutes, while D'Lo Brown and Al and, uh, and Midian should have been given the four minutes, you know? Kind of like maybe swap those around a little bit. That would have been a lot yeah, better. Probably. So, yeah. I, I want more Iron Circle match. Hopefully they'll do another one, but uh, I'm guessing they, they probably don't. And from there... Jim Ross kicks it over to Terry Taylor, who he, of course, refers to as Rooster, because Taylor will never be able to live that down in his entire career. Nope. No, and nor, nor should he. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Rooster is with a still-bloody Undertaker, who tells him that the most dangerous type of animal is a hurt animal, and then to prove his point, Taker throws Terry Taylor into a wall and walks away. I approve. <laughs> Poor Terry Taylor. He got tossed. Well, well, actually, by the, on that note, now the rooster is a hurt animal as well, so it all, it all comes full circle. It all comes iron circle. <laughs> and we then go elsewhere backstage where Michael Cole is with Billy Gunn and China, and Cole says that X-Pac is in rough shape after getting chokeslammed by The Undertaker a little while ago, but Billy and China don't appear to have much sympathy for him. And by the way, Jim Ross later clarifies that the doctors have said that X-Pac may have been given a concussion from The Undertaker's choke slam earlier, but because it's 1999, get on out there and wrestle, you big puss. It's only a brain injury. Don't be such a bitch. And that segues us into our next match, and it is for the merchandising rights to D-Generation X, current DX members, the Road Dog Jesse James, and X-Pac, versus former DX members, Billy Gunn and China. And as an added FU to Road Dog and X-Pac, Mr. Ass and China actually enter to the DX theme music. And not only that... But they're wearing matching thong tights, which is pretty good. Always good to coordinate with your tag team partner. So in case you want a quick synopsis of how this match went, Road Dog played the face in peril for about five minutes. Then he made the hot tag to X-Pac, who cleaned us for a little while, only for the momentum to switch once again. And then X-Pac played the face in peril for about five minutes until he made the tag to Road Dog. And at that point, 
The match turned into a bit of a schmoz, with X-Pac hitting the Bronco Buster on China in one of the corners in a preview of their sex tape, which would come out five years later. So China then rolled outside the ring, but while she was doing that, Billy Gunn got a running start and prepared to splash X-Pac in the corner. But unfortunately for Mr. Ass, though, China grabbed X-Pac's foot and pulled him out of the ring right as Billy was about to hit the splash, and so Mr. Ass completely misses and went headfirst into the ring post. So essentially, China accidentally caused her own partner to miss his move. And once Billy's head hit the post, Road Dog took advantage by putting him in position for the pump handle slam, and yes, in case you were wondering, he did indeed pretend to bang Billy from behind before he hit the move. Mr. Ass, indeed. But from there, Road Dog hit the slam, he made the cover, referee Tim White made the count, and so your winners of the match, and still the sole owners of the D-Generation X name, the Road Dog Jesse James and X-Pac. Your reigning King of the Ring Billy Gunn taking yet another pinfall loss, his third in the past month since he won the crown, hashtag strong booking. And to further rub it in their face once the match was over, Road Dog grabbed a mic and told Billy and China to suck it once again and to hit their music. So, Sal, what did you think of current DX versus old DX? Well, first of all, I could do without Billy Gunn's little see-through fucking trunks. And I understand they were matching China's, but that doesn't mean I need to see that. He's Mr. Ass! Yeah. At one point, Road Dog caught Billy with the boot to the mount in the corner, and Billy's cell was to leap off the top turnbuckle. <laughs> nice. I I will say this. As dead as the crowd was tonight, they were there for this match. Yes. Crowd was into it because I think of who was in it. And I was happy that X-Pac and Road Dog won, although it doesn't really make sense, since X-Pac came in there after getting his ass kicked and a concussion. But, right. Sure. And like you said, this is a guy who just won the King of the Ring, and he loses so much. Yeah. Booking is so confusing. Did they want Billy to get over? Did they really want Billy to get over? Doesn't seem like it. Especially what happens in the next pay-per-view, but... Oh, yeah. One of the greatest calls of Jim Ross's career, I'll say that. But yeah, it just seems like they have no interest in actually doing anything with Billy Gunn. I mean, I can't say I blame them, but still. Yeah. On that note, too, of, of the crowd being up for this match, Road Dog really, surprisingly, is very, very over. I shouldn't say surprisingly, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, obviously the Outlaws were over, but Road Dog, anytime he shows up, the crowd, the crowd just loves the Road Dog. He's obviously not the strongest on, in the ring, I should say, but, you know, when he does that intro, people, people fucking love the Road Dog, man. And I'll also say, too, Sal, you mentioned the, the part about um, Road Dog and X Pac winning doesn't necessarily make sense. There was a line after the match where Jim Ross says something like, now when you buy that DX merchandise, you know the proceeds go to Road Dog and X-Pac. And I was thinking, like, were they legitimately worried that, like, merchandise sales were would go down, you know, if if Billy Gunn and China won? Like, you know, fans would be at the merchandise stand like, well, I don't want to buy DX merchandise because it, it goes to the bad guys, you know? You never, that could be a reason, sure. Maybe. I want, I'm sure there are probably some fans out there who might think that, but I don't know. But yeah, this was an okay match, but... Like you said, it, at least the crowd was starting to wake up. And for these final three matches, they really do because of, of the participants involved. By the way, you mentioned Road Dog is, is extremely over. It's hilarious because he's an Armstrong, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't get over with his wrestling. He gets over with the mic and, and all the extra in the ring. The, 
the humping while he's doing the pump handle slam or like the shaking of the knees before he does the knee drop. That's what's getting him over. The juking and jiving when he does mm-hmm. the punches. Yeah. I think you may have inadvertently named that move now, too. I think it probably should be called the hump handle slam now that, it, now that you mention it. <laughs> That's fair. And so it is now time for our next match, and it is a strap match to determine who will become the number one contender for the WWF title next month at SummerSlam, The Rock versus Triple H. And just so you're aware, this is thankfully not one of those strap matches where you have to touch all four corners to win. This is just a good old-fashioned strap the shit out of your opponent and pin him match. And by the way, in case you were wondering, why exactly is this match a strap match? The answer is... I have no idea, actually. There was literally no involvement of any strap in the weeks leading up to the show, and neither man ever actually challenged the other guy to a strap match at any point. It was just kind of like, hey, Rock and Triple H are going to have a strap match. Tune in this Sunday. Pretty much. And before the match begins, Michael Cole gets to interview The Rock backstage, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. Rock tonight, fully loaded strap match. You and Triple H to determine the number one contender for the WWF Championship. Michael Cole, The Rock says, know your role and shut your mouth. Nice shirt, 25 cents. The Rock says, Triple H, you go on Sunday Night Heat. You do your little interview with Jim Ross and you cry like a baby. They sit there and they kept me down for five years. For five years, they kept me at the bottom of the barrel. Well, The Rock says they didn't keep you at the bottom of the barrel just because you wanted to say goodbye to your Rudy Pooh friends in Madison Square Garden. No, The Rock says they kept you at the bottom of the barrel because you absolutely suck. And on top of all that... And on top of all that, The Rock says that you run your mouth in four weeks, 28 days. I'm going to SummerSlam, and I'm taking what I want, the WWF title. Well, The Rock says in 28 seconds, The Rock is going to give you exactly what you don't want. And that's The Rock taking that strap, turning it sideways, and sticking it straight up your candy ass. Triple H, The Rock says he is the people's champ. The Rock says he is the people's choice, and The Rock is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most electrifying man in sports entertainment, period. If you smell what The Rock... ...is cooking. So first of all, I love how The Rock mocks Michael Cole by saying, nice shirt, 25 cents, while Michael Cole was actually wearing a WWF-branded shirt, so clearly Rock doesn't think too much of the company's merchandise. But we get some good stuff here with Rock making fun of Triple H's interview from earlier, and he also reuses that line from his Billy Gunn promo where he says, you absolutely suck. I wonder if he was trying to make that a catchphrase too, because certainly he doesn't have enough of them at this point. I know. As for the match itself, we get off to a hot start here as The Rock and Triple H start brawling outside the ring before Rock can even tie the strap around his wrist. And while they're fighting, Rock actually grabs a camera from a female fan in the front row, takes a picture of Hunter, punches him in the face, and then tosses the camera back to the fan. The People's Champ clearly living up to his nickname. And while Rock and Triple H are brawling around the ring, I couldn't help but notice that one of the Spanish commentators tonight is the aforementioned Savio Vega. How fitting, since he is the originator of the Caribbean strap match. Also, by the way, nice of them to give Savio something to do, since he's been sidelined for almost a year at this point, ever since he suffered an injury to his arm 
during the Brawl for All. Yeah. In fact, Savio never wrestles another match for the WWF, and they release him from the company just two months after the show. So, gotta love the Brawl for All. Still paying those dividends, huh? Killed the poor man's career. Wait, so that's why Savio Vega stopped being on TV? Sure is. Oh my god, I didn't even realize that. Yep, once again, the Brawl for All. I don't know if you saw the Dark Side of the Ring episode on the Brawl for All. It's actually, it's probably one of the more lighthearted shows they did, even though obviously a lot of people's, you know, people got injured and it also killed Dr. Death Steve Williams' career. But if you haven't seen that show, it's it's worth a watch because it is pretty enjoyable. Did you, did you catch that one? I did catch that one. Uh, it's really good. Most of them are pretty good, actually, I think. Most of the Dark Side of the Rings are pretty good. But then, because... We're in a match in the Attitude Era. We have to have at least one where both guys brawled through the crowd. And although, to be honest, I'm surprised this was the match where they went through the crowd because they both have a long-ass leather strap attached to their wrist. Because if I were me, I'd be worried about some ass, some drunk-ass Buffalo fan trying to yank it. But thankfully, that, that doesn't end up happening. And eventually, they exit the stands and start brawling by the entrance. And at this point, we can see that this particular strap match has some very unique rules. Why? Because Triple H knocks Rock down with a clothesline, and then he goes for a pinfall on the stage, but it only gets a two count from referee Mike Kyoto. So yes, this is a falls count anywhere strap match, folks. Mark that one down in your history books. And so they make their way back into the ring, but shortly after they do, China emerges from backstage, and she immediately makes her presence felt because Rock nails Triple H with a rock bottom and covers him, but Kyoto doesn't see it because China is distracting him. To which I say, isn't this also a no disqualification match? Shouldn't China just be able to waltz on into the ring and beat Rock's ass if she wants to? I'm so confused. But from there, Triple H starts choking Rock in the corner with the strap, and Hunter sits on the top rope to get some extra leverage. But eventually, Rock recovers and throws him down to the canvas, or, as Jim Ross puts it, quote, The Rock just jerked Helmsley off! <laughs> the top rope! <laughs> he did that on purpose. He did. I, he's done that a couple times he in his career. He even added in the delay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he purposely gave it a pause and then went, the top rope. It's definitely intentional. I'm pretty sure he also does that. I think it's at WrestleMania X7 where Lita pulls Edge off the ladder and he does the, Lita just jerked Edge off. Yep. The ladder. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. So, yeah. So continuing on at one point, Triple H just says, oh, the hell with it. And he takes the strap off his wrist. But that proves to be a mistake because it gives Rock sole possession of the strap. And the Great One finally gets to do some strapping of his own. But once they return to the ring, China once again distracts Mike Kyoto, which enables Billy Gunn to run in behind Kyoto's back and smack Rock in the head with some sort of club. And I know I've said this before, but if he doesn't call that weapon the Billy Club, then frankly, he's really just dropping the ball. But anyway, Hunter goes for the pinfall, but Rock kicks out at two. So Rock once again goes on the offensive, and he manages to hit the people's elbow on Triple H, but before Kyoto can count to three, Billy Gunn yanks the strap to break the count. Billy then runs into the ring to try and interfere, but he gets a rock bottom for his troubles. But unfortunately for The Rock, though, when he turns back around, he gets a kick to the stomach, followed by a pedigree. Hunter makes the cover, Kyoto makes the count, and ladies and gentlemen, your winner and the new number one contender for the WWF title at SummerSlam is Triple H. Yes, Triple H. 
the guy who's basically been the fourth in command in the corporate ministry over the past few months, is now set to headline SummerSlam, one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year. No offense to Hunter, but like we said earlier, Sal, I know he's had a, a fantastic career. I think at this point, it might be a little bit early. Might have been a bit of a surprise slash disappointment to fans back in July of 99, but I know you said you were more in favor of it than I was, but on that note, what did you think of the the strap match here with The Rock versus Triple H? Well, hold on, because I was in favor of Triple H looking like a main eventer, but I was not in favor of Triple H beating Rock in this match. Okay. (laughs) Fuck that. No, 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 no. They, they... They did a fantastic job of pissing me off. (laughs) <laughs> once The Rock turned face. Because all I wanted when The Rock turned face was to, for him to win the WWF title. That's it. That's mm-hmm. all I wanted. Now, granted, it ended up working out in my favor because a year from now at King of the Ring 2000, I got to see that live. Yeah, in Boston, that's right. In Boston, which was fantastic. But there were so many times where I wanted The Rock to win, and this was one of them, and he lost, and I was fucking pissed. That being said, I will say this. When Hunter took the strap off, I was about to be done with this match. I was really fast forward it because I was like, what is the, what are the rules of this match? What is the point? What are the rules? How do you win? None of this makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. So you're saying you wanted Hunter to have the strap on? Mm. But I will say that Rock got, Rock saved it from me because when he started laying into Triple H, I was like, yeah, get him. Get him. <laughs> yeah. So that so it ended up working. Now, obviously, I believe in a uh, little pre-match promo, Triple H was like, I don't need Billy. I don't need China. I'm going to do this on my own. Which, of course, anytime a heel says that means they're absolutely not going to do it on their own. Right. So it was good heat. But, yeah, this match, although it made no fucking sense, it still was entertaining because it's The Rock and Triple H. Right. Yes. Everybody always talks about The Rock versus Austin, and rightfully so. But I just think Rock and Triple H have such great chemistry. They do, absolutely. They play off each other really well when they get in that ring. Yeah, and this this feud, surprisingly, I didn't remember this feud going on for so long. It's pretty much been going on for, I think, since probably about maybe late April, early May. It, I just didn't remember it being like such a passionate rivalry. But now, obviously, we're, we've kind of come to the culmination here, I think. For a little while, obviously, they're definitely going to they're gonna go back to this feud, spoiler alert, in the coming eh, coming months or so. But yeah, I didn't remember them having this kind of like mini feud for a couple months with corporate ministry Triple H versus freshly face-turned Rock. And here we go. Now Triple H is going to be headlining SummerSlam. And, you know, they're obviously, they're going out of their way to make Triple H seem like a real threat with that interview that we saw earlier. You know, your mileage may vary as to whether or not you think it was too soon, but I think at the time people were probably surprised about this. It seemed like the crowd when the finish happened was a little surprised. Like, really? Like, Triple H? But he's he's going to headline SummerSlam? So we shall see. In my recollection, I haven't, I haven't watched any of the Raws ahead of this, but in my recollection, there are some very interesting twists and turns in terms of the number one contendership coming up before SummerSlam. I don't know if it was a case of like the WWF potentially being a little wishy-washy on whether or not they wanted Hunter to be the guy, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. And we'll also see if my memories are correct on this. But in terms of the strap match, I did enjoy it. I thought it was very entertaining, like you said, and I'm very, very glad it was not the touch four corners strap match that we've become so used to because that just wouldn't it wouldn't work it would not have worked for this match but this was you know two guys strapping the shit out of each other much better much more enjoyable format and i don't want to spoil anything but i i 
do have to mention that I feel like there's so many twists and turns going into the next pay-per-view with the number one contendership because certain people were like, well, hell no, son. I'm not losing to that guy. Yeah. Uh-uh. Which may or may not carry over into the pay-per-view itself. Mm. Potentially. Yeah. We'll see about that. And so, it is now time for our main event. And it is the first blood match for the WWF Championship. Champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Challenger The Undertaker. And in case you need yet another reminder of the stakes here, if The Undertaker wins, Stone Cold will never again be allowed to challenge for the WWF title. But if Austin wins, we will never again see Vince McMahon on WWF television. And speaking of Mr. McMahon, never ever. That is ironclad. His on-screen career is over. That's right. You cannot go back on that stipulation one month later. You cannot do it. And on the note of Vince McMahon, by the way, before the match begins, he crutches his way down the aisle for what may be his very last appearance in his own company. And by the way, Sal, as Vince is coming to ringside, Jim Ross on commentary actually confirms that rumor that we've heard for years. Quote, do you know that in a boardroom, if you sneeze in a board meeting, he'll fire your ass? (laughs) We have official confirmation. And on the note of commentary, by the way, Vince will be joining JR and Lawler on commentary for this match, which got me a little nostalgic because it made me think of like the old days in 96 and 97 when these three used to commentate all the shows together. Fun times. And interestingly, before The Undertaker and Stone Cold make their entrances into the arena, we follow both of them around backstage before they make their ways through the curtain. And for some reason, as we follow them around backstage, they play that music that they typically play when like the steel cage lowers from the ceiling even though obviously this is not a cage match so a bit of a strange choice but i assume they were doing that because they wanted it to feel like a big moment yeah it's that big fight music they did yeah. it they they actually did it with um austin and michaels going into uh their match at 14 oh did they really okay. i remember that because they did that whole dun, 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 and and michaels was waiting for his his cue for his music to hit and he's like, this is for you, Earl, because Earl ended up getting hurt at, uh, before the show. So they, that's when they utilize this, is when it's a big, big fight feel. They they actually have done it in the present day a couple times, particularly in recent years in NXT. And, and I always enjoyed it. I always enjoy the little addedness to it. Okay, interesting. And we get off to a hot start here because The Undertaker actually meets Stone Cold in the aisle before he can even get to the ring. And so we get a bit of brawling near the crowd for this match as well. Although I have to say, when Austin and Taker are fighting near one of the barricades, you can clearly see that some fans are throwing drinks at them. I mean, I expect that sort of treatment at an episode of Nitro, but this is the WWF for Christ's sake. So tone it down a bit there, Buffalo. Tone it down. And so the two of them start making their way toward the ring, and we get a spot I've never seen before. When Taker throws Austin over a barricade at ringside, he then grabs the steel steps and throws them at Austin, but Stone Cold moves out of the way and the stairs go bouncing onto the concrete, and thankfully security had already cleared out the area, so no fans were accidentally murdered by flying metal stairs in their direction. So finally, they make it into the ring, and at this point, I have to question Stone Cold's strategy a little bit, because instead of trying to bust The Undertaker open again, he spends a good amount of time working over Taker's left knee, which seems like a bit of a waste of time to me, unless I guess he could somehow make Taker's leg bleed, I guess. See, you say that, but 6'10", you're chopping him down to size. If he can't stand up, then you have free reign to to hit him in the face with a chair. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose. 
And so after a bit more brawling through the crowd, Taker grabs a chair and tries to swing at Austin's head, but Stone Cold moves out of the way, and when he tries another chair shot, Austin trips him, and Taker goes face first into the bottom part of the steel stairs, and Stone Cold then slams the Undertaker's head into the stairs a few more times, but somehow, no blood. So we go back into the ring, and at this point we get a spot that looked a little bit clunky. The Undertaker went to bounce off the ropes, but he accidentally knocked down referee Earl Hebner. Austin then went for a stunner, but Taker pushed him away. However, when Taker backed up to get away from Stone Cold, he accidentally tripped over the fallen Hebner, causing Taker to fall backwards and get his arms trapped in the ropes. And yes, this was exactly as awkward as it sounded. And I need to note also, by the way, that Hebner was never actually knocked out. He just kind of fell to the mat for a moment, but then he was able to bounce right back up. But regardless... That convoluted setup provided Stone Cold with an opening, so he rolled out of the ring and grabbed a steel chair, but Shane McMahon ran into the ring to try and prevent Austin from using it, and, well, that proved to be a big mistake for the boy Wonder, because holy shit, does Stone Cold ever lay him the fuck out with a chair shot to the skull. Good lord, that was brutal. Frankly, I'm surprised Shane wasn't bleeding after that one. So Austin then boots Shane out of the ring and prepares to hit The Undertaker with a chair, but that interference actually provided Taker with enough time to escape from the ropes. Taker then goes back on the offensive, and he actually unties one of the turnbuckles with the goal of throwing Stone Cold into it, but instead, Austin hits him with a low blow, followed by a Stone Cold stunner. And at that point, Vince McMahon realized that his minutes may be numbered, so he got up from his commentary position and tried to swing one of his crutches at Austin, but Stone Cold shrugged it off, left the ring, and just punched him right in the face. Austin then re-entered the ring, but when he did, The Undertaker hit him in the back with a chair, knocking him down to the ground. And at that point, for some reason, Earl Hebner told Taker not to use a chair, which is odd since there are clearly no disqualifications in this match, and so The Undertaker responded to that, to that, by grabbing Hebner by his throat and throwing him into one of the corners. And at this point, now we did indeed get a full-on ref bump. And so, with Stone Cold down on the mat and The Undertaker holding a chair, it certainly seemed like Taker was in position to bloody the rattlesnake. But, well, take a listen to how Fully Loaded concluded and try to keep up with all this action. Austin rolling to the corner trying to pull himself up. But The Undertaker is ready. The Undertaker is taking aim. Take her up. 
he's insane. The Undertaker's deranged. My look, God, look at all the where we can go. Look at Austin. We're trapped like rats. Oh, come on. McMahon's crutch. Austin's bleeding bleeding like a hog. Austin and the Undertaker are busted wide open. Okay, so this was probably one of the most chaotic endings to a show I've ever seen, but here's the quick synopsis of what you just heard. With The Undertaker getting ready to nail Stone Cold with a chair, of all people, fucking X-Pac snuck into the ring behind him, and while Taker was holding the chair, X-Pac hit him with a spinning heel kick, causing the chair to hit Taker right in his own face. Stone Cold then took that opportunity to, for some reason, steal a camera away from one of the cameramen, and he smacked The Undertaker in the face with it. Shane McMahon then re-entered the ring and tried to ambush Austin, but it didn't work, and Stone Cold easily disposed of him. But once Shane was out of the way, Taker got back to his feet, and we could see that he was, indeed, bleeding from the forehead. However, referee Earl Hebner was still knocked out, so Taker tried to pick Austin up for a tombstone, but before he could hit it... Hebner got back to his feet, he looked at Taker's bloody face, 
and he called for the bell. Your winner of the match, and still WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, which of course means that Vince McMahon will never again be seen on WWF television, which also means that, of all people, X-Pac just contributed to Vince McMahon being taken off television forever. I certainly would not have expected that. And by the way, Taker was clearly not happy with that decision to stop the match because he then punched Hebner right in the face, but once he turned back around, Austin hit him with another stunner. A despondent Vince McMahon then tried to hit Austin with his crutch, but Stone Cold moved and hit Vince with a stunner as well. And because this wasn't overbooked enough already, Triple H then ran out from backstage and attacked Stone Cold for a little bit until The Rock arrived right behind him to get some revenge on Hunter. The Rock and Triple H then brawled through the backstage area, but while they were doing that, The Undertaker clobbered Austin in the head with a chair shot, and frankly, I'd be pretty pissed off if I was Stone Cold because the camera almost completely missed him getting hit with the chair. But as a result of that chair shot to the skull, Stone Cold is now bleeding as well. And honestly, I'm really not sure what the point was of having Austin bleed yet again once the match is already over, but I guess it's a pretty cool visual. And with Austin and Taker brawling at ringside, a groggy Shane McMahon then tries to talk with Taker, but The Undertaker punches Shane in the face instead. From there, Austin and Taker start brawling in the aisle until referees and officials finally manage to separate them. The Undertaker then heads backstage, and Stone Cold goes back into the ring, where Vince McMahon is standing. And Sal, I found this part to be interesting, because Stone Cold offers Vince a handshake in a preview of what we'll see in a future pay-per-view, spoiler alert, and Vince does indeed shake Austin's hand... But of course, he then gets nailed with another Stone Cold Stunner. I would say that's a pretty fitting way to end Vince McMahon's on-camera tenure with the WWF. And we then go off the air with a bloody Stone Cold celebrating with his Smoking Skull title. Did you get all that, folks? Because just that explanation for the final five minutes of this pay-per-view took up an entire page of my notes in Microsoft Word. Quite the ending, to say the least. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of our main event, First Blood Match? Well, it was certainly dramatic. (laughs) I will say this. Although the setup was clunky, when Taker's arms got caught in the ropes and all of a sudden Austin had a free shot, you popped. You were like, oh, shit. How's he going to protect himself? He can't. This is it. So then Austin grabs the chair and Shane gets in the ring. And good God, that fucking chair shot. Oh, my God. I hope that was a situation where they sweeten the audio or, or something because... First of all, the sound that it made was whoa. And then just Shane dropped like a ton of bricks. Like it looked like he ran into that chair at first. I would say he sold it, but I don't know if it was selling. I really don't. Also, by the end of this, all I wanted to see was uh Austin Rock and Triple H in a triple threat at SummerSlam. Oh yeah. That seems like that's where they were going. But I will say this it was fun. Because of what Undertaker did earlier in the night, haha, now Xbox back to to ruin your day, and you kind of reap what you sow, because if you didn't pick that fight with him earlier, you, you wouldn't have had to worry about that here. I remember, like, at the time, too, way back when I watched this, um, thinking, like, oh my god, Taker's bleeding, hello, he's bleeding, the match should be over. So I, I did pop when um, Hebner finally kind of, like, stood up and was like, oh wait, you're bleeding! Ring the bell! Yeah. That was some good shit. And then... Like you said, probably a little bit egregious to have Austin bleed after the match. 
But I guess if you're trying to sell the encore, then you have that visual of, of Stone Cold being bloodied at the pay per view. Yeah, that that could have been the reason. I suppose I was just I was just so confused by that because I was like, you're really you're gonna have Austin do yet another blade job here after after he's already done three in the weeks leading up. But oh, and plus the one earlier tonight as well. So yeah, poor Stone Cold man. He must he quite a few. He did enough blade jobs for a fucking year in this. But entire then, uh, um, as you mentioned, the very end where he shakes hands with man, but then hits him with the stunner anyway. That was great. That was a great. Oh, yeah. That was a perfect end to the Vince McMahon Stone Cold Steve Austin rivalry. Definitely, and and I said it before on one of my previous episodes. This is this literally is the end of the feud. Well, we might have some stuff happen on Raw, but I mean, in terms of the Attitude Era, Austin versus Vince is done. They're like the the feud is no more as of tonight. So they really do. They they live up to their promise on that. Maybe not necessarily on Vince McMahon never again being on WWF television. Uh, spoiler alert. But they do live up to the idea of no more Austin versus Vince. Although it, they kind of kick it up a little bit during the invasion. But again, that's after our that's after this podcast timeline. That's after the Attitude Era. So, you know, for the most part, they really do stick to it. This is pretty much the, the end of Austin versus McMahon as we know it. Actually, on that note too, Sal, do you have a particular favorite... Austin versus Vince oh my moment. God. So this is this might be a little bit surprising. Okay, I love the Zamboni because they had the the title in the glass in the case in the ring, and and Austin gets on top of the Zamboni and launches himself over the police um, or the security to to clothesline Vince. That was great to me. I'll always remember that one. But what I love, and it's a very low key moment, is when. Going into St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Shane is training Vince. <laughs> oh, yeah. That might be, that, I think that might be before the Rumble, actually. Yes, yes. Oh, that's correct. You're right. It was before the Rumble because cause Vince was going to be in the Rumble. Vince with his winter coat and, and carrying the big log on his back. Going, yeah. And Shane going, who do you hate? He's like, I hate Austin. I hate yes. him. <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. He has him chasing a chicken in the snow for some reason. Grease lightning, baby. Grease lightning. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. What were, one of you, what were some of your favorite Vince uh, Austin moments? Oh, man. I think if I had to go with one, and it's it's tough to just pick one, I'd probably have to go with the hospital attack. Oh, that was good. Because not only is it pretty hilarious, actually, the fact that he hits him in the head with a bedpan, but it's also kind of brutal as well, with Austin, like, really, you know, beating the shit out of Vince's leg, which, by the way, he had injured the previous week. Austin, I shouldn't say Austin injured the previous week, because it was actually Taker Taker and Kane. Taker with the stairs, yeah, and Kane. Yeah, but it was literally right after the Zamboni incident, because Vince gets pissed off, because Taker and Kane didn't protect him, so they break his ankle, because he gives him shit, but yeah, it's... And, well, there's also the forgotten moment at the end where Vince, like, shoves, or where Austin shoves something up Vince's ass at yes, the end of the hospital. He's going to give him an enema, as it were. And we also get Mr. Sacco out of that as well. One of the things I loved, absolutely loved about that segment, that feeling that you felt as a fan when you hear Austin's voice go, well, I'll take it from here, nurse. Yes. That was so crazy. Yes. And then, you know, not only do we get the bedpan, it's like him uh, it's like austin and vince at the same time realize that vince's foot is in a cast and they both look at the cast and austin's like oh maybe i'll beat on you beat on your broken foot and he starts punching the cast yeah. and vince just screaming like ah ah <laughs> fucking hilarious he absolutely sold it well i'll, I'll take it from here nurse oh, so good such good shit i think i've mentioned this before as well but literally in consecutive weeks you have the zamboni 
And Taker and Kane, after the Zamboni, they, they injure Vince's ankle. So the next week, he's in the hospital. So Austin attacks him in the hospital. The week after that, Vince drives himself to the arena. So we get the Corvette full of the cement. Corvette, yep. And the week after that, we get the moment where, because Austin was fired at the pay-per-view the previous night, we get Bang 316. Oh, my That's God. We literally... get Bang 316. I completely forgot that happened in succession. <laughs> yep. That was literally four straight weeks where you have Zamboni, hospital, cement and then you have the bang 316 with with vince pissing himself so i mean that just really shows you when they were still you know head-to-head with wcw fighting for rating supremacy they were like one-upping themselves with this feud every single week so yeah there there are so many good moments and you know i think i think i guess i would have to go with the hospital but i mean you can't go wrong with any of those moments they're all so so classic how about during the bang 316 where jr yells the phrase mcmahon 316 says i just pissed my pants yeah, yeah, Austin says that too, actually, yeah. So, yeah, well, on that note, too, I, I think, actually, I enjoyed the main event quite a bit. I don't know if it was enough to save the show. What do you think? Was it enough to save the show? What, you, what was your uh, your overall verdict on Fully Loaded 99? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? My my overall verdict is, is oh, my God, the, the work that Steve Austin put into carrying the WWF on his back. I understand you had you had Rock and Triple H, and that's fine. You had Taker. And I'm not saying those guys didn't do their job, but the most exciting parts of the show were Austin. Austin, 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 Austin. <laughs> and it yep. never felt overdone or forced. It was it was great TV every time he was on the screen. Dramatic TV to the point, like when he said he was going to get The Undertaker, you knew he was going to get him. You just didn't know when. Yeah. But other than that, the rest of the card really fucking sucked. <laughs> but by the way, on the note of what you were saying of how Austin is carrying the company, it's really interesting. It's actually pretty impressive how they do this because in a couple months, spoiler alert, we don't have Austin. He's gone for almost a year. And yet in 2000, the ratings go up and they do that. They, I think they have their most successful year ever in the year 2000 up to that point, a year when Steve Austin is gone, I think for like the first 10 months, basically. Yep. So it really shows them how they were able to kind of adapt to the times there and still make a really compelling product. And it also helps that at this point, too, they really focus more on the in-ring product as well when you have the rise of the Hardys and Edge and Christian and the Dudley Boys who haven't debuted yet, a certain guy named Kurt Angle who hasn't debuted yeah. yet, uh, four guys who make the jump from WCW in January of 2000. So they really focus more on the in-ring product, and you know they, they do a great job of making some new stars as well. Oh, and of course, the guy who, uh, the Millennium Countdown, who hasn't debuted yet too, he has a, has a hand in that too. So they do a really good job, even though you know in a little while Austin's gone, they do a good job making new stars and really keeping people's interest because uh, people weren't switching to WCW, that's for no, sure. No, they do a good job making new stars, but to me, the MVP of that time period was The Rock. That's when he yes. really came into his own. And Triple H, too, has a big hand in it sure. as well. I'll say that as well. Uh, Triple H, you know, once 2000 rolls around, again, for all the, the crap I was giving him earlier about being you know fourth in command in the corporate ministry now, he has a fantastic run in the year 2000. Triple mm-hmm. H does. And obviously, Rock does, too. But Triple H is sort of the main antagonist throughout the year. Really, really good. So, oh, oh, and also the other thing too. In a couple of months, we're not going to have the Undertaker anymore either. Yep. So you're taking one more guy out of the picture, and yet they're still, you know, full cylinders, full steam ahead. So, oh, my, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. You know what? Just because you said that, it just reminded me one thing I was going to say about about this night of fully loaded. I don't even think we appreciate that the Undertaker has been part of the main event scene since late ninety, or, or not even like mid ninety seven. And he has been consistently in this title picture, and he hasn't felt 
stale at all. No. He's always felt like a threat. He's always felt dangerous to the point where he's the one guy who you think can beat Austin for the belt. So give it up for The Undertaker, man, staying on top of the, uh, for that long and not be and, and keeping himself fresh, you know? Definitely, definitely. He's had some good rivalries over the past couple of years. Obviously, the one with Austin. Mm-hmm. Most notably, I would say, not so much fully loaded, but SummerSlam 98, The Highway to Hell. Oh, yeah. Was really good. Uh, obviously, the feud with Mankind, where he almost killed him, throwing him off the cell. And, uh, and Kane. Yeah, so the whole thing with Kane, yeah. Yeah, he's been really entertaining. I mean, the, the in-ring product has suffered a little bit in 99 because he's been, I think, dealing with injuries most of the year, which is also the reason why he's going to be gone relatively soon. But yeah, Taker, definitely one of the one of the people who's always in the mix and always a legitimate threat. So there you go. That's Fully Loaded 99. My verdict on the show is probably a little more thumbs trending downward, even though I'm, I'm usually the more, more positive on these things. But the main event, fantastic. Strap match, really good. But, I mean, that undercard, you can tell why the crowd is kind of asleep for the undercard because it was uh, not great for the first, you know, probably hour, hour and a half of the show. I was going to say, that first hour was so boring. It really was. And, and, and to me, it didn't even pick up until the until the boss man Al Snow match, which tells you something. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so before we wrap up, here are a couple quick stats about this pay-per-view, Sal. So Fully Loaded 99 was purchased by an estimated 360,000 viewers, which actually makes it the third lowest buy rate of 99 for the WWF. But however, when you factor in 360,000 people paying $30 a pop, they're still bringing in almost $11 million in pay-per-view revenue. So... Not too shabby. And last year's fully loaded 98 pay-per-view did an estimated 329,000 buys, so they did actually improve year over year. And meanwhile, this month's WCW pay-per-view, Bash at the Beach 99, did an estimated 175,000 buys, so less than half of what fully loaded did. So in comparison, pretty good times for the WWF, not so much for Atlanta. But with that being said, Sal, are you ready to get into Monday Night Raw? Oh, absolutely. Perfect. Now, before we do that, though, since Fully Loaded 99 marks the end of the legendary Austin McMahon feud, I'm going to play a clip from a DVD that the WWE put out in the year 2013, and the title of that DVD is The Top 25 Rivalries in Wrestling History. And why am I playing this clip? Because, as you could probably guess, the rivalry which comes in at number one on this list is Austin versus McMahon. Again, this is by the WWE's only admission, or this is by the WWE's own admission, I should say. Even all these years later, they still consider Austin versus McMahon to be the greatest rivalry in wrestling history. So when you listen to this clip, you're going to hear Vince Russo breaking down his thoughts on the rivalry, since he was obviously there the entire time, helping to progress it every week. So enjoy that clip, and when we come back, Sal and I will dive into the July 26th 1999 episode of Monday Night Raw. It was just the perfect storm. Here I am, little old Steve Austin, a redneck from South Texas who happens to have a belt. And then you've got Vince McMahon from Greenwich, Connecticut, a guy born with a silver spoon in his mouth, the owner of a multi-million dollar company, an entrepreneur, a leader... I mean, the perfect storm. And and I don't know if that perfect storm can ever happen again because it was that perfect. If Austin would be reasonable and be molded into a respectful WWF champion, that would be one thing. You ain't going to mold me. You ain't going to break me. 
What you see, Vince, is what you get. If Austin becomes WWF champion as we know him now, that would be a public relations corporate nightmare. I hate you to do things your way. I will continue to raise as much hell and create as much chaos and give you more gray hairs every single day of your life. When you've got two performers, like a Vince McMahon. I'm the proud owner of the World Wrestling Federation. And furthermore, Mr. Austin, I'm your boss. And a Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin was born pissed off. And Stone Cold Steve Austin representing that blue-collar worker. What you see is what you get with Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I'm not a redneck from South Texas. You're damn right. And I ain't gonna change for nobody. Who is saying everything to his boss that everybody wishes they could say. If anybody wants to see Vince McMahon get his ass whipped, give me a hell yeah. And Vince McMahon representing everybody's hated boss who they got to look at every single day. You are either a certifiable lunatic or you just don't give a damn. Austin, you will be humbled. I guarantee it. I will fire your ass. And living out their fantasy through Steve and what he was doing to Vince. You want to understand right now, Stone Cold Steve Austin does what he wants when he wants. Austin's raising hell! I don't give a rat's ass who you are. Now what I want you to do is bow down for Stone Cold. I don't know if that can ever happen again. And we're back. But before we dive into Raw here, Sal, I have to quickly note something. So Steve Austin, Vince McMahon, Triple H, and The Undertaker have all been heavily involved in the storylines here on our current timeline in July of 1999. But just to pull back the curtain a little bit, a little bit, I should say, here in 2022, since we recorded part one of this podcast, WrestleMania 38 has now taken place, and Austin, Vince, Triple H and The Undertaker were all featured prominently during WrestleMania weekend. Austin had his first match in 19 years against Kevin Owens. Vince McMahon also had a match, if you can call it that, against Pat McAfee. Triple H is now officially retired due to medical issues, and The Undertaker was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So what did you think? Did you enjoy the involvement of all those Attitude Era personalities here back in the present day? I will say that first and foremost, they were going to Dallas, Texas. So Austin's involvement, I think, was crucial. But I did not expect him to do all that he did. I didn't think, I actually didn't think we were going to get a match. Agreed, yeah. And then even after that, I was like, oh, he's, you know, some shotgun punches, maybe uh, the the Luthez press, and, and then the stunner, and then we'll go home. No, they fought into the crowd. <laughs> he took a bump on the concrete. <laughs> yeah, a suplex. Yes. I couldn't believe it. It was, it was unbelievable, but it was awesome to hear... Uh, that reaction for Stone Cold. Vince, I could do without. That was completely unnecessary. As far as Triple H goes, here's the weird thing. I know everybody's like, oh, this is the end of his in-ring career, but let's be honest here. For the past few years, I'd say right when he tore his peck against Taker in Saudi Arabia, we kind of figured at that point he wasn't going to get back in the ring after that. And I think he did like once, but... Yeah, his body started breaking down towards the end. That's why he was doing only one match a year. 
Yeah. Well, hey, you never know. I mean, that's what they said about Edge and Daniel Bryan. So maybe give it three years and we'll see Triple H at WrestleMania 42 or 41. <laughs> sure, you never know. But, well, the difference is those guys had neck injuries. Triple H has had a cardiac event. True. And is now has now has a pacemaker. So probably actually not. <laughs> you never know. Then again, Jerry Lawler, I think, got in the ring after his heart attack, so... Yeah, right. There you go. So, there, so there, go. Is, there is precedent. There is precedent, folks. You heard it here first. We called it. And also, of course, in case you were wondering if the Attitude Era was the greatest time of all in the history of wrestling, just remember that they're still doing Austin versus Vince 23 years after this show. They're still doing Austin versus Vince at WrestleMania in the year 2022. I'm just saying. And it's still getting a reaction. <laughs> Exactly. And again, I want to point this out, folks. For those of you who watch WrestleMania 38, Sal and I, we've been watching Fully Loaded here and we've been watching 1999. Vince was taking good stunners. Okay, he yes. actually was taking good stunners. You know, people people think of obviously the first one that Austin ever gave him and Vince flopped around like a fish, but he was taking good stunners here during 1999. So it has happened. It, it just did not happen uh, in, in 2022. It, it was kind of catastrophic actually but you know well what did you guys expect i mean did you expect he was gonna do what austin theory did and like sh shoot himself into the air 10 feet <laughs> now that would have been good i'd like to see that That's i'd like true. to see him try i don't know if vince could even get off the ground at this point but yeah that was sad to see but you know but it's okay you know i'm assuming that'll probably knock on wood hopefully be the last one he ever takes but you know there you go here you go in the year 2022 WrestleMania 38, we still got Austin versus McMahon. So, But on that note, Sal, now that Fully Loaded is over, are you ready to head down the road to SummerSlam 1999? Oh, hell yeah. There you go. Oh, more, more on oh, hell yeah later, yes. by the way. <laughs> it is Monday, July 26, 1999, and we are live from Gund Arena in Cleveland, Ohio, now called... Ugh, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse in the present day. Wait, was it wasn't it Quicken Loans at one point? Yes, it was. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah, even, when when LeBron was dominating. When LeBron was there, right? It was, and and that was even better than Rocket Mortgage. Ugh. Yeah, these corporate sponsorships, man. I don't know. I gotta say, I hate the names of of most of the the newly named arenas. I don't care who's sponsoring it. I don't need the Smoothie King Center. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because, like, I basically – I'm trying to be healthier now, and I kind of, like, live off of Smoothie King. Okay. But I think of the same thing because I always think of – that's the New Orleans arena, the Smoothie yep. King Center. I'm like, that is the dumbest name. I understand, you know, it's corporate sponsorship and, you know, you want to put your name on everything. But maybe, you know, can't you just, like, call it maybe, you know, New Orleans Arena, Smoothie King Center, Dunkin' Donut Center like we had in Providence? I don't even – Dude, you know, Denver, Some of these just don't sound right. In Denver, it's called the Ball Arena. Oh. And it's the jar company. Like, you know, the jars that have, like, ball on the side in cursive? Yeah. That's yeah. that's now at the three-point line <laughs> for the Nuggets games. Jeez. Uh, the worst. Uh, they, and they change it. The thing is, too, like, these arenas, like, it's not just, and it's not just, like, the NBA arenas, the NHL. Like, it happens in basketball, and, or it happens in, uh, rather, baseball. It happens in football. I'm like, it's hard, it's hard for me to keep track of all these name changes, but, yeah, so... Yeah, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Again, another great sounding name. I guess at least they put Fieldhouse at the end. That makes it sound a little nicer. Yeah. Well, I got to say, Gundarina actually had a ring to it. It reminds me of those old school Michael Jordan versus like Craig Elo basketball games. Yeah, there you go. For, for all I know, Gund might be a corporate sponsor too. I don't know. Uh, but at least it sounds At least nice. it sounds better, exactly. 
there's the, there's the ballpark in Cincinnati in Major League Baseball. It's called Great American Ballpark. I was like, that's a perfect name. And then I actually found out that Great American was the name of the sponsor. So I was like, oh, oh okay. Well, I, I got fooled. I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they worked me, bro. They worked me. Fair. Anyway. So, yes, we're in Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Uh, again, it was Gund Arena at the time. But we are live in front of a whopping 16,340 fans. And some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include a massive 25 episodes of Raw, with the most recent one only being a couple weeks ago on March 7th, 2022, 14 episodes of SmackDown, and a handful of pay-per-views, including No Mercy 99, which will be coming up on our timeline just about three months from now, SummerSlam 96, Survivor Series 2004, Unforgiven 2008, and perhaps most notably in July of 2001, Invasion. And we open the show with still photographs from last night's first blood match, courtesy of WWF Magazine, with snippets from Jim Ross's commentary as well. And we then hear JR tell us that last night marked the end of an era, but tonight, a new era will begin. And from there, we queue up the opening credits the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include I'm white, Pete Gass is my hero, who cut the cheese, I came on the hoe train, Austin 100% pure suck ass, I peel potatoes, I Rudy pooed my pants, and on a related note, McMahon's pants are fully loaded. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I forgot to tape Nitro. Viscera ate my other sign. Forget Jesse Ventura, I'll ref SummerSlam. Stone Cold, rattle your snake. I've got a butt rash. I slept with this for tickets to Raw with a picture of an overweight woman on the sign. Roses are red, violets are blue, Vince is gone, who gives a Rudy Poo? And finally, I have to note that it appears that the same guy who had the sign at Fully Loaded that said, The real Big Show is in my pants, has seemingly made the trip to Cleveland and gotten almost the exact same seat in the front row, and he still has that same Big Show sign. Now that is dedication. Went from Buffalo to Cleveland. And after that opening crowd scan, we immediately cut backstage where The Undertaker is beating the crap out of X-Pac, really jumping into the action this week. Beef. Before we talk about that, I did just have a couple other signs that I noticed. Oh, please. Yes. I rode the hoe train. Cleveland likes it doggy style. <laughs> hey, Bruce, suck it. And I'm hoping to God that's right at Bruce Pitchard. Please, God, please. And then one of them actually said, and this was weird for this time period in the summer of 99, is said Kid Rock is a derogatory slur that I'm not going to repeat here. Oh, God. But that sign got on TV. <laughs> oh, yeah. They were, there were kind of a lot of those signs around 1999 where it was like, you know, so-and-so is gay and blah, blah, right. blah. And I, I tend to skip those when I do the thing because there are, there are a lot of them. Usually it's like, you know, it's usually probably like um, somebody's friend where they put it up like, oh, yo, Ted is gay. Right, you know, like that right, sort right. of thing. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. Well, the surprising thing was, A, the slur, and B, I, you know, Kid Rock was pretty popular in the summer of 99. I he was. Although he was from Detroit, so maybe this is like a thing because it's Cleveland. Yeah. Detroit. It's a Cleveland Detroit rivalry, yeah. yeah. Th they would have liked, uh, who is big from Cleveland? Bone Thugs, I guess, maybe? I don't sure. know. <laughs> yeah, why not? So, yeah, well, on that note, by the way, because you mentioned Cleveland liking a doggy style, the road dog Jesse James then quickly arrived on the scene to try and back up X Pac as he was getting beaten down by The Undertaker, but Taker incapacitated him by throwing a giant cooler 
full of Hansen's Energy Drink on him. Fun fact, Sal, Hansen's Energy Drink eventually gets renamed Monster Beverage. So yes, it does still live on in the present day. And then for good measure, though, to- Taker just chokeslams Road Dog through a nearby table. So thanks for coming, D-O-double-G. Looks like you weren't too much help here. No. Oh, sorry, were you saying something? No, I was just saying no, not, not any help at all. Not at all. So Taker then turns his attention back to X-Pac, and both men actually then go through the curtain, so they're now out in the arena, and Taker quickly rolls X-Pac into the ring and starts choking him, and, well, let's pick things up from there. This is a a savage, brutal attack by the, the Phenom, the Prince of Darkness, the Undertaker, now literally choking the life out of the career of X-Pac. Come on, Undertaker! That X-Pac And here comes Kane! Here comes the Undertaker's little brother, Kane! Kane! Coming to the aid of X-Pac! Oh, is that Undertaker? What is this? Oh, there's gonna be some hell to pay! Kane and the Undertaker, toe to toe! Kane! 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 Right hands! Overpowering his brother. Uh oh, wait a minute. Here comes the big show. What in the hell is this 500 pound monster doing here now? I think we're fixing to find out, and so is Kane. Yes! And the big show going to fight for Kane, and Kane retaliates. Kane's trying to fight off both the big show and the Undertaker. This is. I don't think the 82nd Airborne can fight off the big show and the Undertaker. X-Pac lying motionless in the ring. He's history. And now it's King being pummeled, being brutalized. Give it to him. By the Undertaker and the big show. This is enough. King is going to be ripped apart. But why is the Undertaker... And the big show seemingly cooperating on this situation, King. I don't understand this. I think they're joining forces to eliminate Kane once and for all. They're going to strip the gears in this big red machine. King trying to, still trying to get up. Can you imagine the heart and the will to, to survive that Kane is showing here? Pound him down. A normal human being. Would have already been eliminated, but yeah, you answered your own question. Kane's no normal human being. I don't even know if he's human at all. And then the Undertaker going back to assault the helpless X-Pac. Oh, and a low blow by the Big Show. What is going on between the Undertaker and the Big Show? Now they're looking at each other, sizing each other up. The Undertaker extended his hand, and the Big Show accepted. My God, can you imagine if these two, the Undertaker and the Big Show, are together? Kane crawling desperately to his friend, X-Pac, his tag team partner. As you see, the most destructive force, no doubt. So as you heard there, The Undertaker was really taking it to X-Pac until 
His brother Kane emerged from backstage, and he proceeded to beat the crap out of Taker, at least until the Big Show arrived on the scene. And just like we saw last night at Fully Loaded, The Undertaker and Big Show once again teamed up to put a beating on Kane as loud chants of, We want Austin, rung out from the crowd, alas, to no avail. Now, in part one, when we recap Fully Loaded, I said it was still ambiguous as to whether or not Show had joined up with Taker, but, well, not tonight, because The Undertaker extended a hand to Big Show, and indeed, Show proceeded to shake his hand, and they walked back to the locker room together. So for those scoring at home, Big Show started off as a heel when he debuted in February, then he turned face by punching Vince McMahon at WrestleMania in March, and now four months later, he's back to being a heel again. So only five months in the company, and he's already gone, heel face heel. Gee, I wonder why we still joke to this day about Big Show making too many turns. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of our opening segment here? And how do you feel about an Undertaker-Big Show tag team? I loved the the start of the night. Very chaotic. And it's, and it's deserving because Taker got basically screwed because of X-Pac and fully loaded. So it makes sense the Undertaker is going to beat the shit out of X-Pac. <laughs> Kane came out to make the save and then out comes Big Show. Now, I remember thinking at the time, Oh my God, Big Show just just agreed to team up with The Undertaker. This is going to be the most dominant two-man team in the history of wrestling. Mm-hmm. It was disappointingly not. <laughs> yeah, not quite. <laughs> not exactly Spoiler. what I was expecting. But yeah, this was the genesis of it. This was uh, their, their alliance, the Unholy Alliance. That's right, as they'll soon be called. Spo- spoiler again. But um, Kane got the shit kicked out of him, which kind of made no sense for later, but we'll get there. (laughs) Right. right. Yes. Yes, we will. There's more on this coming up for sure. And on that note, once that segment concludes, we cut backstage where a limousine pulls up. And by the way, holy shit, if you want to talk about an all-time mullet, take a look at the hair on the limo driver because it is a sight to behold. But anyway, the driver opens the door of the limo and we see that the man inside is Vince McMahon. Banned from television forever, and yet here he is 24 hours later on television. Although I suppose he's probably here to say goodbye. And I also have to note that even though he was on crutches last night at Fully Loaded, he gets out of the limo and walks out on his own power, albeit with a bit of a limp. So looks like he's feeling slightly better. And after a quick ad break, we come back to the Rocks getting Sheffy with it commercial once again. Don't be a jabroni, eat your fucking beefaroni. And frankly... <laughs> Since this commercial is such a ripoff of a Will Smith song, if I were The Rock, I'd probably start ducking him at those award shows. I mean, Will Smith has already slapped a man named Rock, so I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And also, Sal, on the original broadcast here, something was actually edited out. So if you watched live, you would have seen The Undertaker and Paul Bearer do a promo for the short-lived USA Network show G versus E. And I would ask you if you had any memories about this show, but I think that would be pointless because clearly no one does. If that was a trivia question, I would have lost that. <laughs> I, all I remember, I do slightly remember this show, but my only memory of it is G versus E was good versus evil. That's it. I, That's all I remember. Sure. I'll take your word for it because I have no recollection of this. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't blame you. It didn't last very long. I like The Rock's stupid chef. Point. It was dumb as shit, but I liked it. I don't know why. It was catchy. It seemed like a strange fit for The Rock because it's it's kind of goofy and The Rock is anything but goofy. Sure. You know, he's just kind of like the, the commercial is goofy, but he's just standing around looking cool. Right. You know, he's kind of like standing on a boat while women are dancing. But I don't know. And anyway, he, he himself does not look goofy, but the commercial is kind of weird. Right. But anyhow, 
And from there, we see footage from during the break where Kane pulls a fallen X-Pac out of the ring. And I know this was supposed to be dramatic, but Kane literally drops to his knees, looks up at the sky, and lets out a loud yell. And I just thought that was unintentionally pretty hilarious. It's like on The Simpsons when McBain's partner gets killed and he looks looks up to the heavens and yells, Mendoza! (laughs) Yes, uh, that is a very good analogy. I also had, hey, that's the noise Andre used to make when they used to tag him in when he was part of the Colossal Connection. (laughs) Nice. It was so comical, dude. It's so over the top. That's why Kane said, and now I sell the World Tag Team Championship to Ted DiBiase. Uh, and they're like, what was that? Fucking Lawler and um, JR. Like, that was, that sounded animalistic. It's like, that came from his soul, King. Like, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> really laying it on thick, yeah. Yeah. And so after they show that during the break, the break replay, we then come back live where X-Pac is being loaded into an ambulance with a neck brace on while Kane watches. So pretty serious stuff. But Sal, I have to say I'm a little confused by this because is it just me or did nothing that bad really happen to X-Pac? Because when Kane made the save, The Undertaker was literally just choking X-Pac on the mat. And then when the big show arrived, Taker and Show spent all their time beating up Kane instead of X-Pac. So he never took a choke slam. He never took a tombstone. So are we to assume that Taker doing a standard choke just resulted in X-Pac having to be hospitalized? Because that's pretty fucking lame. Think about poor Road Dog. He got choke slammed through a damn table, so he should be dead. I mean, did I did I miss something here on this? This didn't seem like it would be ambulance worthy. You're, you're correct. And, and there wasn't anything in the segment that made you think, oh, that guy needs an ambulance. But look at the size of, of Sean Waltman. Look at the size of his neck. I mean, if they come back next week and say that X-Pac is suffering from a partially crushed, like, larynx, you could kind of buy it, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I guess it was maybe, like, the cumulative effects of, like, Undertaker beating the crap out of him backstage. I guess in theory, because we we were joined in progress, maybe we don't know what Taker did to him before. It was such a hellacious beating that he just, he needed immediate medical attention. He could have given him, like, six tombstones onto the uh, Hanson's energy drink cooler, for all we know. We, we didn't see the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. That, that's definitely ambulance-worthy. So from there, we go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is for the WWF Tag Team Titles, New Champions, the Acolytes, versus Edge and Christian. And I have to note that the special guest ring announcer for the match is the Big Shot, Hardcore Holly, and in case you need a reminder, two weeks ago on Raw, the Acolytes beat the crap out of Holly, but I'm sure he will clearly be able to remain impartial at ringside. And by the way, before the match begins, Holly absolutely pie-faces Tony Chimmel and takes the microphone from him, which I actually thought was pretty funny. He then announces Edge and Christian's combined weight as, quote, about, let's say, a buck and a quarter, and that's with Christian's legs wrapped in ace bandages to make him look bigger. And as for the Acolytes, Holly says they weigh a combined 2,000 pounds, and he calls them, quote, the poster children for the ab roller because they need a lot of work on their abs. And by the way, Sal, in case you were wondering, the ab roller is the fitness product that Sable was currently advertising at this point in time now that she was gone from the WWF. So the Big Shot's got some jokes here. And also speaking of products, by the way, I also have to note that there are cans of Hanson's energy drinks sitting in front of Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, as well as directly behind Hardcore Holly on the timekeeper's table. So if I didn't know any better, I'd say there was a bit of product placement going on. I don't know. Just a little bit. A little bit. 
And anyway, shortly after the match begins, Jim Ross gets an update in his headphones from someone in the back, and he tells us that Ken Shamrock, of all things, has been hit by a car just outside the arena. And I wonder if the guy who did it was the same guy who had to jam on his brakes for Al Snow and the Big Boss Man last night, like... Like, what, another fucking wrestler in my way? Oh, I'm not stopping this time. As for the match, it was pretty short, so I'll just go to the finish. With the Acolytes in control, Gangrel ran out from backstage and pulled Christian out of the ring, and he then carried him back to the locker room. Now, Jim Ross was playing this up as though Gangrel was rescuing Christian from taking a beating from Farouk and Bradshaw, but obviously once he did that, it left Edge alone in the ring with the tag team champions. And I'm going to play the finish of the match for you here, because once it concludes, things go in a rather interesting direction. Well, Gangrel is pulling Christian out of harm's way, but that's certainly not going to do any favors for Edge, who's left all alone with both these uh, these acolytes. What's it? Gangrel just abducted Christian. And we saw how well, well three men fared last night. Oh, oh my, the double power bomb! Wow. The same move that the acolytes utilized to win the tag titles that fully loaded and and your winner, me, the Big Shot Hardcore Holly. Holly, what? Holly just announced himself as the winner. And Holly, <laughs> that gutty Bob Holly, the crazy Bob Holly, he made me a little nuts. Holly announced himself as a winner, and then Holly stepped right in the, the mouth of the lion's den to assault or attempt to assault both acolytes. Oh, a double spine buster. Make take some of that spunk out of Hardcore Holly. Oh, God. Here comes Kane. What? Here comes Kane back. Now what is the pit red machine going to do? You know he's got, he can't be more, he's got to be more unstable than he's ever been. What's he doing? What? After what has transpired earlier to Kane's friend, that's pop. But that, like, yeah, uh-oh. Okay, so as you might expect, once Gangrel took Christian to the back, Edge was left to fend for himself against the Acolytes, and they proceeded to wallop Edge with a spike powerbomb. Bradshaw made the cover, referee Teddy Long made the count, and that was good enough for the victory. Your winners of the match, and still WWF Tag Team Champions, 
the Acolytes. But as soon as the match ended, Hardcore Holly grabbed a mic and declared himself the winner, and he then ran into the ring to try and beat up the Acolytes all by himself once again. And as you heard there, it didn't go very well, with Farouk and Bradshaw spiking him with a double spine buster, but once they did that, Kane emerged from backstage yet again, and he then proceeded to nail Bradshaw, Farouk, Holly, and even Edge with choke slams. And then, surprisingly, Kane asked for a microphone. And I have to say, when the fans realized he was about to speak, huge pop. So yes, Kane pulled out his voice box and said that because The Undertaker and Big Show hurt him and Sean, he was going to hurt them later tonight. To which the entire crowd responded, Who the hell is Sean? Who the fuck is Sean? (laughs) And for the record, Sal, I think this is the first time Kane has spoken since the lead-up to King of the Ring 98 last year, when he said he would set himself on fire if he lost his first blood match against Stone Cold. So it's definitely been a while since they've gone back to this, but... I'll ask you, what did you think of the tag title match, and do you find Kane's voice box to be a cool effect, or do you find it to be kind of, like, goofy? Oh, man, there's a lot to unpack in these very short segments on Monday Night Raw. When Vince, <laughs> Vince Russo. Yeah, when Vince Russo still had the book. Okay. Previously on Fully Loaded, we watched <laughs> Gangrel assist Christian and then cost Edge the Intercontinental title. Therefore, I was very confused as to why Edge and Christian were even getting a tag title shot to begin with. Fair. They have the match, and not surprisingly, Gangrel plays a hand in it. And we'll see, because they kept talking about Christian being Edge's brother. And I'm like, oh, this is the whole leave-my-brother-alone story bullshit with Gangrel and Edge that never really went anywhere. But then Kane comes out. Oh, by the way, why the fuck is Hardcore Holly doing this whole weird gimmick where he's just, like, there... It kind of spun off because he was having like a like a quasi feud slash like friendly rivalry with the Big Show, so he called himself the Big Shot, and he kind of I guess fancies himself to be a one man wrecking crew. I guess maybe even a super heavyweight. Stay tuned for that. But it just kind of has sort of slightly evolved week by week. But it really is just basically his gimmick right now is basically just hardcore Holly thinks he can kick anyone's ass essentially, which ends up being his same gimmick for the rest of his career. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, it's just so pointless. So then Kane asked for a microphone. <laughs> I mean, he kept it simple, but that also makes him look really dumb. He's like, you hurt Sean. Like, yep. You hurt me. And I'm like, oh, God, we're doing this where he's like a Neanderthal who can barely speak English. <laughs> I think that's the worst part. I don't even mind the voice box part of it. Because I, I guess it makes sense storyline-wise, but the simplicity of the words he spoke was just like, ugh. It's just was kind of a little eye-rolling for me. Yeah, the crowd did eat it up. Though. I was going to say, I guess it got the desired reaction, though. Yeah, I still think it's retroactively a little bit goofy, but whatever. I suppose, to each your own, it, let us know at Raw Attitude Pod if back in 1999 you thought Kane doing the voice box was cool or if it was goofy. And the reason I say that is because he's not gonna he's not going to be using it very much longer. We'll get to that in a couple weeks, but yeah. We'll see. It kind of always reminded me when he would do this. It reminded me of the uh, the character on South Park yep. at the time. Yep, 100%. Which Vince Russo was probably watching, and he was like, I have an idea. That's the problem. That character on South Park was there before Kane. So, yeah, you instantly compared it. Because that, I mean, if you were a fan of wrestling, most likely you watched South Park too. Oh, yeah. Hey, just <laughs> ask the oddities. There you go. So. Just, well, if you could still, if you could find them, they've all been fired by now, but still, you know. Yeah. What can you do? 
So from there, we then go backstage where Ken Shamrock is sitting on a stretcher and clutching his left arm while refusing medical attention. And we then cut to footage from earlier tonight where we see an alternate camera angle of the ambulance with X-Pac leaving the arena. And the camera then turns its attention to Shamrock and he legitimately gets hit by a car. I want to be clear if you're listening at home, this was not a stunt double like we may end up seeing when someone gets run over at, spoiler alert, Survivor Series 99. We literally see a car back into Ken Shamrock, causing him to go up onto it and then fall onto the concrete. And I know it's not like the car was going 50 miles per hour, but still, Ken Shamrock's not a fucking stunt man, and he basically had to be one for this segment. So major props to him for agreeing to do that. And of course, once he gets run over, the door of the car opens to reveal that the driver was Steve Blackman. What the fuck? <laughs> we'll pay back. Well, it's because clearly he was upset with losing that Iron Circle match, I would say. But on that note, so were you impressed by Shamrock's bump here? Because I-, I was quite impressed. I actually was not necessarily impressed as I was more like, why would you take that? <laughs> yeah. Why the fuck would you agree to take that? It's a great way to break <laughs> your fucking hip. Because uh, that's the thing. So obviously the gimmick, to pull back the curtain a little bit, if you're going to get hit by a car in wrestling, you got to kind of throw yourself on the hood of the car. And the the way Shamrock took this bump was like almost on his side. It just, it to me, it was like it, 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 so many things could go wrong. I, I wouldn't have taken that bump. I would have definitely gimmicked it. But then Steve Blackman gets out of the car, and I'm like, oh, man, really? I thought we were done with this last night. <laughs> he lost. Go away. Fuck's sake. You don't, you don't want more Blackman versus Shamrock? No, as much as I thought I did initially, this has been awful. <laughs> By the way, Sal, I have a bit of a theory here. Would you like to hear my theory? Austin? Oh, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> that, that comes later. Yes. So you, you might say I'm being a conspiracy theorist here, but over the weekend, remember, Shamrock missed the Toronto House show, which is why Edge filled in for him and beat Jeff Jarrett. So Shamrock didn't make a date. And it's already common knowledge this time that Shamrock is leaving the WWF to go back to UFC. So if I were a conspiracy theorist, I might say this is the WWF's way of punishing him while acting like, oh, it's just an angle, even though Shamrock could have legitimately been seriously hurt because, you know, he got hit by a fucking car. So what do you think, Sal? Am I reading too much into this that they're trying to, like, maybe punish Shamrock a little bit here? Look... I wouldn't put it past some of the people that Vince surrounds himself with. Not even necessarily Vince himself. But I wouldn't put it past some of those people to be vindictive for somebody who's going back to the ultimate fighting world when, in their minds, they're like, well, we made you a star since we brought you in at WrestleMania 13. Like, there's always a little bit of vindictiveness from this company when when someone decides to go do other things. Not even go to the competition. I think they I think they respect that more than if you go and do something that's not wrestling. It's funny you mention that too, because it always reminded me of WrestleMania X7 when we get to that one, how it's like on the night of WrestleMania, it's like, hey Rock, can you do a blade job? And oh, can you do another blade job the following night on Raw as well? We know you're going to Hollywood where obviously your face is hugely important, but can you scar your forehead for us twice before you before you go? That'd be nice. That'd be really nice. Again, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, clearly, it seems like, but, uh, you know, I'm just trying to make some sense of these things. Anyway, so after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where Vince McMahon walks to the ring. And by the way, when Vince is walking out, we cut to the crowd where we can see the star of Mystery Men, Ben Stiller, in attendance, giving the chairman a thumbs down. And let's just say you may want to remember that little tidbit for later on tonight. 
So Vince grabs a microphone for what will certainly be his final appearance on Monday Night Raw, and he tells us that he knows the fans don't want to remember him the way we saw him last night at Fully Loaded, down on the mat in pain after taking two stunners, and so he's here tonight for a more formal farewell so we can all remember him as the handsome, affluent entrepreneur who made a mark on all of our lives. Very generous of him. But of course, that brings out your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And so, let's take a listen to how the final Austin McMahon confrontation of the Attitude Era plays out. You know, I'm glad you came out here. What? Because I'd like to get something off my chest. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Austin, you know... Oh, please. Austin, you know, and I know, that on the surface, on the outside, it would appear as though we're worlds apart. But down deep, on the inside, way down inside, Austin, you know damn well we're just alike. What do you mean by that? I don't know. What does he mean? The only difference is I always have been and I always will consider myself the better man. Oh, yeah. Let me say, oh, hell yeah. I don't mean it that way. Just to prove it. Just to prove it. Oh my gosh. Put her there. Look at this. Mr. McMahon is offering his hand to the rattlesnake. He'll bite you. Could get ugly. Put her there. Oh. Uh-oh. You want me to put her there? You just want me to come out here after two years and shake your little hand just like that. I got a problem with that. If you want me to break Vince's arm and shove it straight up his ass, give me a hell yeah. Make no mistake about it, Vince. Just like that, I could dump you right on that stack of dimes. You call a neck, and that's all I got to say about that. You come out here and say you're the better man because you got so damn much money, because you got all this power. Well, I'm here to tell you that you can take your money and your power along with that hand and shove them all straight back up your ass. That's an interesting visual. It's awful. As much as you tried, Vince, to make my life a living hell, I got to sit here and tell you face to face that the worse you made it for me, the more fun I had because I'm living proof that a sorry son of a bitch like you will never, will never beat a son of a bitch like me. Oh, don't push him. Don't get him riled. 
So before you step through those ropes and get your ass up that stage, before I decide to kick the crap out of you, Jim Ross, get your ass up here. I got something to tell you. What? I don't know what he wants. Come on, son. I ain't got all day. Jim Ross? Now just come on. Oh, oh, I hope hope Austin stuns him. Give him a stunner. Stunner. I know the son, bitch. Stunner, inspired you a couple of times. You probably feel the same way about him as I do. And I ain't much of singing, so I want you to sing a little song for Vince McMahon. Sing a song? It's not Vince's birthday, was it? I ain't gonna sing it. All right. No, no, no. No, no, no. Hell yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Stone Cold is suggesting that we sing goodbye to Mr. McMahon here tonight. Oh, no. Wait a minute. Not not that song. With a little... No, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, hell yeah. Goodbye. No, 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 no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Oh, hell yeah. Good. So Vince McMahon offers a handshake to Stone Cold, but instead, the rattlesnake grabs the microphone from him, and Austin says he won't shake his hand, but he might rip his arm off and shove it up his ass, which is certainly a visual. However, he almost pays Vince a compliment by saying that the more he tried to ruin his life, the more fun Stone Cold had. And then, in a moment I certainly wasn't expecting, Austin invites his good friend Jim Ross into the ring, and he tells JR to lead the crowd in a rendition of Na 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 Na... Na 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 na, oh hell yeah, goodbye. And Vince then goes to exit the ring, but not before Stone Cold flips him off one last time. And I'm not going to lie, I was definitely expecting this segment to end with a stunner, but no, Vince just limps away. However, when the chairman gets to the top of the ramp, he turns around 
and flips Austin the double bird one last time. I was also kind of surprised by that. I assumed our last image of Vince would be him sadly walking away. But no, he's actually quite defiant before he makes his way through the curtain. And then back in the ring, Austin and JR share some beers. And that is how the segment ends. But we're not totally done yet. And I didn't play this part of the clip, but... After a commercial break, we get to watch Vince McMahon sadly walk to his limousine. But before he gets into it, of all people, Howard Finkel approaches him. And, and he tearfully tells Vince that he's meant so much to him over the past 24 years and he loves him. To which Vince responds by telling Finkel to get the hell away from him. So yes, Vince McMahon leaves the WWF the same way he ran it, bullying Howard Finkel for no apparent reason. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of the final Austin McMahon face-off in the Attitude Era? First, allow me to imitate Vince and Howard Finkel. Get the hell out of here. Yes. (laughs) Oh, why the fuck do they always pick on him? This just doesn't seem fair. I don't know. And of all the things, too, like at at this time, like if you really thought this was Vince McMahon's final appearance on television, I would be like, that's how he goes out. He goes out making fun of Howard Finkel. Like, that's our last visual of him. He has to get that last dig in on Finkel, I guess. Apparently. So first of all, I was very annoyed. And I remember being annoyed back when I was 15 years old when I watched this live. Because I remember him showing up in the limo and the first thought to my mind was, oh, come on! (laughs) <laughs> he wasn't supposed to be on TV anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, at the very least, he should have at least done the segment by satellite. You know what I mean? So that he's not at the arena and he's, like, getting on a plane, getting ready to, like, fly away forever or something like that. But right. but the fact that he's there and he comes out to the ring, I'm like, you got to be shitting me. And it wasn't worth it to me. It was just, ugh. like you said, first of all, you're expecting a stunner. Yeah. And okay, I was like, if they do a stunner for the Cleveland crowd, I kind of get that. But uh, no, instead we just get the song for about, mm, I don't know, two minutes. Because then they stop. They don't even continue the song. It wasn't like um, in other wrestling, uh, other times in in the history of wrestling, where like the whole crowd is singing you out the door. It was like they said it twice and then they gave up. (laughs) Yeah. That was the other thing too, is that it's... Vince McMahon is being, you know, serenaded by Jim Ross, who on camera does not really have any sort of rivalry with Vince McMahon. You know, it's like, obviously the rivalry is Austin, but Austin is clearly friends with Jim Ross, so he brings Jim Ross in. But, like, Jim Ross has had no involvement in the Austin-McMahon feud whatsoever. So it's like, it's not like there was any history here to draw upon. It was just kind of like, Austin didn't want to sing it because... You know, that would kind of ruin the mystique of the character. Right. So he's like, uh, uh, hell, Jim Ross, you can sing it. And, the, and there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, a little a bit of an awkward finish to the Austin McMahon rivalry. Look, you had the moment last night. You had the, the blood, you had the stunner, you had the, the shock, Vince's face. It was, it was perfect. Just leave it alone. Yeah, leave the memories alone. 100%. <laughs> Don't change a thing. And instead, we just kind of had to shoehorn this in here. That's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess technically, since we mentioned at the top of uh, of part two here, I guess technically it's not the end of the feud because they're still going even today in the year 2022. So, you know, it's technically, I guess, it's the end of the feud in the Attitude Era, but the feud does still live on in the present day, clearly. Just like Hulkamania, it will live on forever. <laughs> it, it absolutely will. It probably is the greatest feud in WWF history slash WWE history. Would you think so? Because I feel like there aren't too many feuds. Like, if you wanted to 
like bring up a feud from the past in the present day, you can still go to Austin McMahon. And like you said, the fans will still pop for it. I feel like there aren't many feuds that you could draw upon now that were relevant like 20, 25, 30 years ago, you know? If he was still alive, you could argue that you would always get a reaction for Hogan versus Savage. Oh, they okay, yeah, there you go. That's the only one that I think, like, those two are going to fight forever. You know what I mean? Right. Just like Austin and McMahon. Because even, and I know we talked about this before, uh, a couple WrestleManias ago, back, I think it was 31, or maybe even before that, I don't know, Triple H ran into The Rock, and, like, they had this moment, and they were, like, staring each other down. And, yeah, it was the one where Ronda was at, the first appearance of Ronda Rousey. Yeah, I think that was 31, yeah. And, uh, you know... For Triple H, oh, I'm looking at like my greatest rival. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. You know, and, and Austin was Rock's greatest rival, so they kind of retconned it and was like, oh, these two have been fighting forever, and I'm like, eh, eh. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have that same weight like Vince versus Austin. Yeah, I would agree. I wonder who who would Triple H's greatest rival rival be now that I'm thinking. I, about I would it. think it would be it would be Cactus Jack or McFoley mm. in general. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible because that goes actually all the way back to like '97 when it was Mankind versus Triple H. It was Dude Love versus Triple H, and you know, like you said, eventually we might get Cactus Jack versus Triple H. Actually, I guess we did get it in '97 that first yeah. uh, appearance in Madison Square Garden. We did, yeah. So I think you might be right about that because Foley really did, in my opinion, a whole lot for Triple H's career at a time when he really needed it. Because again, uh, we've kind of brought this up in part one. Well, going back on this now, I'm still pretty lukewarm on Triple H going from you know fourth in command in the corporate ministry to now being the guy headlining SummerSlam. We will talk about that as this episode goes on. Absolutely. Also, you you, you do have to kind of throw out uh, Triple H and, and Randy Orton. I guess they're been longtime rivals, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. They have the, the evolution history. Sure. And they did main event WrestleMania, I think, just the one time. So I guess that's something. Again, you put Austin in a ring with Vince, even in 2022, and people lose their shit. That's right. There you go. It's just not the same with anybody else. And and like I said at the end of part one, they did that DVD. I played the clip of it. They did that DVD, their own DVD that literally said Austin versus Vince is the greatest rivalry in WWF slash WWE history. So there you go. I can't say I disagree. I can't say I disagree. And so from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is a tag team street fight. Val Venus and the Godfather, who are accompanied by four hoes, versus Draws and Prince Albert. And by the way, when the Godfather makes his entrance, they cut to Ben Stiller in the crowd again, and he appears to be quite pleased. I think we can definitively say that Ben Stiller is indeed pro-ho. And also, when Draws and Albert make their entrance, JR informs us that as soon as Raw ends tonight, you can turn on the Home Shopping Network for some sort of promotional tie-in with the WWF. And in case you're wondering, Sal, yes, I did try to find footage of this, and no, I was not successful. However, there is footage out there of The Rock and the very drunk New Age Outlaws on the Home Shopping Network immediately after Survivor Series 98 went off the air. So yes, Sal, you heard that correctly. Moments after The Rock turned heel and won the WWF title for the very first time, he cut his first promo as world champion on the Home Shopping Network, just as we all expected. Anyway, go look that up, by the way. But back to our tag team street fight. And also, in case you were wondering if all the competitors obeyed the proper rules of a street fight, I'm here to inform you that, in fact, they did. All of them were wearing jeans, so you can check off that box. Even Godfather? Even God? I think he was. They were, like, orange jeans. Okay. It's almost like his regular gear, though. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) 
it scared me when I realized that Godfather and Val were teaming up so close to what comes next in their careers. And I'm like, oh, oh, that, you know, what a way to get heat, though, right? Like, let's take away everything sexual that made these characters popular. Well, that, that's, I think that's more like about a year from now, actually. Well, we're already in the, the lead up to SummerSlam. So what isn't, isn't it like by Rumble 2000 that, that that's kind of thing, right? I thought it was closer to, to next year's SummerSlam, but I could be wrong. You might be right. I don't remember the exact dates because I, I vividly remember I kind of stopped watching around, around January 2000. Yeah. I was on it. I was in and out. I'll put it that way. You, I hope you watch Rumble 2000 because that is worth watching. But that was other good. than that, other than the whole big show bitching that. Nah, never mind. I don't want to get into that. (laughs) Spoiler. So, yes. Anyway, as for the the street fight here, essentially, Godfather paired off with Albert, while Val paired off with Draws, and they each took turns brawling inside and outside the ring. And at one point, Godfather and Albert actually headed into the crowd and started fighting there. But when they did that, a quote-unquote fan threw a drink into Godfather's face and started clubbing him in the back until that security security guard with the patty cap intervened and pulled him away. At this point, you might say to yourself, those were some pretty convincing-looking strikes that fan was laying into Godfather there maybe that was real but here's how you tell you can tell that it wasn't because when the security guy grabbed the fan the camera panned away from godfather and albert and zoomed in on the fan so i dare say that's a telltale sign i don't think they'd want to give that much airtime to someone who legitimately attacked a wrestler so who was he oh oh i've got more on that in just a moment okay okay because I had no idea. I was just like, I know it's not a real fan. Because first of all, the guy was wearing an all-white suit. And nobody goes to a wrestling event and wears an all-white suit unless you're part of the show. With white hair to match. Right. And I, my first reaction was, Mordecai? <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a good callback right there. And I'm like, wait, no. that's a, We're a little bit too soon for that. But I was definitely like, no, that's a plant. There, there's something with that person. <laughs> I thought Mordecai had potential in the beginning there, too. Ah, and maybe I'm the only one. Oh, no, I, I thought it was a cool kind of a portrayal. Like, uh, it just didn't go anywhere. But I thought it was a nice idea. He was kind of, I think he was supposed to be like the, the sort of like antithesis of The Undertaker, where he of was course. the all-white and Taker was the all-black. And then Taker beat him, and then they didn't have nothing else for him. <laughs> oh, did they, I, did they even have a match? I didn't even remember them oh, having a match. I don't even know if they had a match. You're right. That, that shit ended very, very quickly. <laughs> So yeah, so there you go. So Mordecai basically attacked the Godfather, but then they head back into the ring where Godfather hits his hoe train splash on Albert, followed by Val Venus coming off the top rope and nailing him with the money shot. Val made the cover, referee Tim White made the count, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winners of the tag team street fight, the Godfather and Val Venus, and yes, you heard that correctly, a fan interfered on behalf of Draws and Albert, and they still lost. I think that shows you where they are in the pecking order right about now. But on that note, so you asked me about the the fan here, who this fan was. And as an ECW aficionado, I'm surprised you didn't recognize him because the man who interfered here was, in fact, Vic Grimes. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Now, he actually, he only ends up making a few appearances here in the WWF, and I'm going to give you some quick background info. So he's brought into the WWF to portray a character named Key, and it is heavily implied that he is Draws's drug dealer because you see the word key slang for kilo oh 
that's who this guy is. Okay. Yeah. Now, he only ends up wrestling in one match in the WWF, and it's a six-man tag match where he teams with Draws and Alberts to beat some jobbers on the August 14th episode of Shotgun Saturday Night. However, I do recommend you check out this match because Key ends up scoring the winning pinfall for his team, and his finishing move looks horrifying to take. So, Sal, picture hoisting a guy up for the razor's edge. But yeah. the opponent is facing downward toward the mat instead of toward the ceiling. Basically, for you AEW fans, he picks the guy up the same way that Lance Archer does for the blackout. For the blackout, yep. Yeah. But instead of dropping the guy back first to the mat like Lance Archer does. So picture this, Sal. Key gets a running start and turns the move into a sit-out pile driver all in one fluid motion. No. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't like that at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> Seriously, go go look up that one match he's in because I I like if he had more than one match he would have paralyzed somebody I think with that move. I think there was a guy in Lucha Underground that that did something similar, like one of the bigger guys, either Matanza or somebody else. But no, that's not okay. <laughs> was that Vic Grimes in a mask? No, because okay. Vic Grimes didn't really wrestle after New Jack threw his ass off the scaffold. Oh, see, that's exactly what I was going to say next, actually. That's the only reason I remember Vic Grimes is because New Jack fucked him up, and he deserved it too. So, On that note, I was just going to say the WWF basically after this brief run, they encourage him to go work in ECW, and of course that's where things go horribly wrong. Fast forward, like you said, Sal, to ECW's Living Dangerously 2000, a pay-per-view where both men are on a 15-foot-high scaffold about to do a spot where New Jack puts him through a table. And, well, let's listen to New Jack tell the story on his episode of Dark Side of the Ring. In the year 2000, Vic Grimes is booked to wrestle New Jack in a match featuring a dangerous climax. When we climbed up on top of the scaffold, it was shaking. Vic was like, I can't do it, it's too high. Now we on pay-per-view. There's no time for error. I said, Vic, let's go on three. He said, Jack, I can't do it. I said, fuck you, we going on three. I said, one, two, three, and I pulled him. He did this flip, and his back landed up against the side of my, my head, and I cracked my skull. I never recovered from that. I broke my leg. I lost my sight in my right eye to this day. I get headaches every day. I have insomnia because I cracked my skull. Vic, see, this is all your fault, you dumb fuck. So yeah, New Jack was clearly still harboring a grudge against Vic Grimes, even in the year 2020 when they filmed that episode. Now let's fast forward from... 2000 to 2002, where a promotion called Extreme Pro Wrestling tries to capitalize on the notoriety of the first scaffold incident by booking New Jack versus Vic Grimes in a scaffold match. And going further into that episode of Dark Side of the Ring, New Jack claims that Vic Grimes never reached out to him to apologize or check on him after the concrete bump in ECW, but he tried to apologize to New Jack before their XPW match, and, well, New Jack wasn't having it. Now, I have to emphasize the phrase, according to New Jack here, because a lot of what happens in this match is disputed as to whether certain things were a work or a shoot. But when they're up on the scaffold that night, New Jack claims he hit Vic Grimes with a taser, and instead of throwing him onto the stack of tables below the scaffold, he tried to throw Vic over the tables so he'd hit the floor outside the ring. Of course, though, in other interviews, New Jack has claimed he wanted to throw him headfirst on top of the turnbuckle, so again, a bit of an unreliable narrator here. But did New Jack actually try to murder the man in some fashion? fashion. I don't know, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. But what we do know is that he threw Vic Grimes off the scaffold, but Vic actually did 
hit some of the tables below the ring, but he only kind of grazed them before crashing into the ring ropes. So he didn't land on the floor, but still it resulted in a horrendous looking bump where he dislocated his ankle. So either way, New Jack certainly got some measure of revenge. And that right there, Sal, is pretty much Vic Grimes's career in a nutshell. So I have to ask you, as someone who watched ECW, do you have any fond memories of Vic Grimes? And also, what did you think of our tag team street fight on Raw here? The tag team street fight was was all right. It's so hard to take draws in Albert as a like seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, weren't they just arguing about wearing dresses a couple weeks ago? Yes, yes, they were. Uh, what the fuck? <laughs> I don't give a shit about about these two when they come on the screen. And and Val Venus and, and Godfather are fine, but yeah, the the whole fan incident thing was really kind of misplaced. Like, it wasn't like they showed a GTV of draws in an alleyway with this guy, like, buying fucking crack or anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, we literally thought it was a fan or some weird clown. I don't know. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And then, like you said, it didn't even play into the finish. So what the fuck was the point? Yeah. Although I will say I did like the fact that this was still the era where it seemed like most tag teams, you know, even if they weren't effective tag teams, even if they were jobber tag teams, like Draws and Albert, they're at least kind of, you know, they're together for a reason. Draws is a weirdo and Prince Albert is his, you know, his personal piercing artist. And now you're bringing in Key, who is apparently the drug dealer. But um, but yeah, at least they kind of like, it makes sense that they go together because they both lead, as, as JR would say, they lead alternative lifestyles. So. Mm-hmm. I do I do appreciate the fact that even however low on the totem pole they are, there's still a reason for them to be a tag team, if that makes sense. Sure. Oh, as far as Vic Grimes goes, um, fuck Vic Grimes. So, yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. You, you and New Jack share the same mindset, that's for sure. Or, or used to, I guess. Look, th- there are a lot of things that New Jack did that were very bad and horrible things to people, and he's not a nice person. But... I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a fan of New Jack back in the day. So Sure. And in this case, this may be the one time where New Jack actually had like some justifiable anger since the guy landed on him and cracked his skull. There you go. There you go. All the other times when he like beats a guy with a baseball bat and does all those sorts of things, stab- the mass transit incident where he cuts the guy's forehead open, those times maybe not. But in this case, I think I would also be pretty pissed off if a guy cracked my skull and made me you know completely blind in one eye, so... And also didn't, like, check on me or nothing like that, so... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He should, probably shouldn't have tased the guy and tried to murder him, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's Vic Grimes. Nobody's gonna miss him. <laughs> Fair enough. Honestly, but now, Sal, actually, now for some sad news, because that tag team street fight we just witnessed ends up being the final Monday Night Raw match for Darren Drozdov. Now, I'm sure most people listening to this podcast probably know Draws ends up suffering a horrendous career-ending injury in October of 1999. I'll go further into that once we come to it on our timeline. But yes, this was Draws' final match on Raw. But to be fair, he does have some more matches on Heat, Shotgun Saturday Night. He makes an appearance on SmackDown. And he's even on the card at SummerSlam. So he does still have quite a few televised matches left. But this is his final Monday Night Raw match. So on that note, Sal, do you have any fond memories of Draws' tenure with the WWF? I thought the kid had something when he was the other LOD member. Puke. Yeah, minus the name. But then he started getting really scrubby. Like, literally, he would wear, like, flannel pajamas to the ring. And, like, <laughs> yes. Yep, that's right. And it was just like, if he don't care, then I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's the thing. He just kind of faded into obscurity. And obviously nobody wants to have what happened happen to him. But I didn't really notice he was gone from television for a while. Right, right. It's just straws. It's like Chaz. <laughs> yeah, I think probably the, the enduring memory for most people of draws is probably that uh, from beyond the mat, the, he's gone up you. Oh, he's yeah, coming up you. Yeah. So there you go. Not even something produced by the WWE. Like. <laughs> right, right. Ugh. Sorry, Draws. You know this is the end of Draws's tenure on Monday Night Raw. So, but he still he still is uh, alive to this very day, which is uh, no small feat because I mean that accident he's suffering. You know that's that is tough to come back from. So good on you, Draws. Good good for you still going all these years later. So hope you're doing well. And from there we go backstage where Michael Cole is with The Rock, and the People's Champ has some rather unkind words for Triple H, China, and Billy Gunn. Rock, last night it fully loaded. It was a controversial win, but a win nonetheless for Triple H over you in the fully loaded strap match. Well, sure, you're standing out here with a little cute goatee, but nonetheless, you're an idiot. First of all, Michael Cole, what do you think about wearing The Rock's brand new electrifying t-shirt? It doesn't matter what you think. You will wear it, and you will like it. Here's The Rock's brand new electrifying t-shirt. As a matter of fact, Smackdown Hotel. Check in for one right across your head. And here's The Rock's brand new people's elbow pad. You hold it right there. Don't move, you puppet. And give The Rock the microphone. Don't move, jabroni. Cameraman, over here to The Rock, where only The Rock gets all the glory. Triple H, The Rock says this. Did you beat The Rock? you damn right you did. Did you do it by yourself? you damn right you did not. Remember this. Triple H, you are to the rock a one-trick pony and a cheap trick circus. Your one trick is China and your cheap circus is your ability, period. Now on to you, badass Billy Gunn, Mr. Ass. The Rock says this. He's going to take them little lips you got on your trunks, take them off lip by lip, turn them sideways and stick them straight up your candy ass. <laughs> now, speaking of lips, on to you, China. The Rock sees the way you lick your lips, the way you pucker your lips. Every time The Rock comes around, you obviously got a fetish for The Rock, and you suffer from rock fever. The Rock says this, next time you go one-on-one with the great one, instead of nailing The Rock and the people's jewels, he wants you to get down on your knees. Uh-oh. Don't get excited, China. No, don't get excited. Not yet. He wants you to pucker your lips like this. And when you do that, The Rock will come in, he'll pucker his lips too. Close your eyes and get ready to feel The Rock's electricity. Then The Rock will bring his lips about an inch from yours. Step back, look at you, take his boot, kick your teeth so far down your throat, you'll stick a toothbrush straight up your ass to brush him. You three jabronis, remember this. Out there, there are literally millions and millions of Rocks fans, and they all chant his name. Rocky! 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 Cameraman, you back up. Get a shot of this puppet holding all the Rocks. Co- <laughs> Michael Cole, this microphone stinks. What is on your hand? What is the prompt? <laughs> if you smell... What the Rock... So once again, we get a promo where Rock takes the opportunity to sell some merchandise by placing one of his t-shirts over Michael Cole's face. I approve. And from there, he proceeds to mock Triple H and Billy Gunn, 
He saves some of his more interesting insults for China as well, particularly the fact that she has a fetish for him and she suffers from rock fever. Yes, he's still trying to get that rock fever line over for some reason. And then, Sal, we get a rare moment where I'm pretty sure rock legitimately breaks character. He tells Michael Cole that the microphone stinks and he asks him what's on his hand. So Cole holds up his hand to his still covered in a t-shirt face and rock shoves Cole's hand right into his own face. And at that point, as you heard in the clip, Rock proceeds to laugh at Cole for somehow falling for that old trick. And frankly, I don't blame him. So, Sel, what did you think of this promo? And did you also get the impression that Rock kind of slightly broke character for a moment there? Yes, Rock, that was a real laugh. Because I I can't believe, I don't even think he thought Cole was going to fall for that. Right. But here's the thing. I've been saying... Many times on this podcast, specifically, we get we get some pieces of what The Rock would turn into, but we're not all the way there yet. Even since WrestleMania 15, I felt like we haven't turned that corner to where he's the great one. There was something missing, and this promo had that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but this this promo, I was like, there it is. There he is. There's the most confident man in the wrestling business. There you go. And and not even in a in a heel sort of way or like a Ric Flair sort of way. It's just that he has the crowd in the palm of his hand and he knows it. And that's the first time I saw that was tonight. Yeah, and he knows he can say whatever the hell he wants and the crowd's going to be on board. Even if it's something goofy like rock fever, he, can, he still knows the crowd is going to be up for it anyway because there's a reason why he becomes the top guy relatively soon obviously well obviously an injury happens but also in the year 2000 he is pretty much the top guy so there is a reason why he's able to carry the company like you said he's got that charisma he's able to he's able to do a lot with a little that's for sure I, i i don't mean a little as in a little ability i mean he just has to say a couple things and the crowd is just like yep i'm in (laughs) <laughs> yeah, even the millions and millions line for tonight, it just felt different. It just felt like he knew it was, it was come on, Cleveland, let's go. Like, you're going to go on this ride with me, and, and we all know where it's going. Absolutely. And it's great to see, because he's, um, he's got some very memorable po- promos coming out coming up in the next few months and i and i look forward to hearing them on this podcast indeed and it's always nice to see michael cole get slapped in the face oh yeah <laughs> sorry but it's true especially 1999 michael cole yeah with his own hand no less oh even better and so when we come back from commercial break we once again get a shot of ben stiller in the crowd and amusingly tony chimmel announces him as quote the star of the new movie mystery men and the man who loves deborah's puppies and Sal, on the original broadcast here, it then segued into a trailer for Mystery Men, but obviously that has been edited out on Peacock. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> right. And again, I say, more on Ben Stiller a bit later on. But from there, your new number one contender, Triple H, heads to the ring with China by his side, and Hunter then proceeds to grab a microphone, and, well, let's see if he can sell us on the idea of him being a legitimate threat to Stone Cold Steve Austin at SummerSlam. You come out here, you call JR in the ring, you get these idiots to sing your little song. Uh-oh. Well, I really don't give a crap. Because as of last night, it's no longer about you. And it's no longer about Vince. It's about one thing. 
It's about me. Uh-oh. Rattlesnake looking on here. Because Austin, man to man, I can beat you. We'll find out at SummerSlam, that's for sure. For the last six months, I have watched you like a hawk, Austin. I have seen your every move. You have not taken a breath. You have not blinked an eye without me seeing it. Austin, I know you like the back of my hand. I know your strengths. And I damn sure know each and every one of your weaknesses. Yeah. Well, he exudes confidence, doesn't he, JR? A lot of, a lot of arrogance, a lot of attitude. At SummerSlam, Austin, no matter what the hype says, it's not going to be an out-of-body experience. To hell with Jesse the Body Ventura. Uh-oh. There's a referee at SummerSlam. Because he's not going to be a factor. And as great as she is, the ninth wonder of the world, China, is not going to be a factor. Well, that'd be different. Ventura stands for law and order. I guarantee that. Because Austin, it's going to come down to you and me. It's going to come down to one-on-one, face-to-face, man-to-man. Yeah. And Austin, I know you. You're like me. You eat, sleep, breathe this business. But Austin, while you might be a student of the game, at SummerSlam, I'm going to show you and I'm going to show the world I am the game. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Helmsley has got tremendous confidence and obviously great skills. He's hyped up. He is hyped up for SummerSlam. Now, what is up? Uh, what does she have to say? China. She is hot. Hey, Rock, you talk real tough from the back. Now, apparently, you have something to say to me. It's just too bad that you don't have the balls to say it to my face. Woo! I don't know about that, young lady. And excuse your language. We're out chanting for the rock. You smell what the rock is cooking. And the rock's going to deliver. Uh-oh. 
So as you heard there, Triple H says he's been watching Stone Cold Steve Austin for the past six months, which struck me as a little bit arbitrary. I mean, Hunter has only been watching Austin since January. They've been in the same company together for like three years now, but whatever. So Hunter then says that at SummerSlam, it will come down to him and Austin one-on-one, to which I say, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. And interestingly, Triple H finishes his promo by once again saying that he is the game, so clearly he feels like he's onto something here. And from there, China grabs the mic and tells Rock that he's too scared to talk trash to her face, which of course brings out the great one, but it was all a ploy because Billy Gunn then jumped Rock from behind as he headed down the ramp, and Billy then held up the Rock so China could deliver a low blow to him, and Mr. Ass informed him that, quote, Now you know your role, bitch. Hunter, Billy, and China then headed toward the locker room, but before they got there, Rock got back to his feet, grabbed the mic, and challenged Billy and China to a one-on-two handicap match later on tonight. And as you heard JR say in that clip, presumably they will accept. So, Sal, did you think Triple H did a good job selling himself as a threat to Stone Cold here? And are you enjoying this ongoing feud where The Rock appears to be single-handedly feuding with these three former DX members? Triple H really came into his own in the early 2000s. Much like Rock wasn't there yet for the past few months, Triple H has got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. This whole, like, I've studied you, I've watched every move you made, like, it never caught on, thank God. He became more of an assassin, the cerebral assassin, where, where he would, he didn't sound like an obsessive guy who was at the library for 70 hours a week. He <laughs> sounded like a guy, like, when he saw that you hurt your leg, he would zone in on that and, and destroy your knee. Like, that That made sense for the game character. This whole, like, for lack of a better term, stalker portion of the game character makes no sense. 
And it doesn't put him on par with Austin. To me, it just seems like, almost like he's a Stana Austin. Like, like I've watched you every single minute of the day, and Austin's just like, pfft. So. Dear Steve, I wrote you, but you still ain't calling. <laughs> and then, like you said, um, Rock is outclassing all three of these clowns. But I did appreciate Billy's line of, uh, now you know your role, bitch. I was like, okay, all right. Yeah, that was good. Decent. Yeah, I'll say too, I agree with what you were saying too, because like, Triple H right now, not too convincing. But I mean, if you go back just, you know, back to when he was the leader of DX, if you wanted to put Triple H in a main event as a threat to whoever the champ, if it was The Rock at the time, absolutely. I would have been totally on board with that when he was the top guy, like in DX leading a stable. When he's behind The Undertaker in a stable, when he's basically behind Shane and behind Vince, you know, he's the, like I said, he's the fourth in command in the corporate ministry. His role, once he turned heel after WrestleMania, was really quite, kind of like downplayed, and now they're trying to build him back, but it just feels like a little bit too soon, you know? And, and this is not, this is no shade whatsoever on what Triple H eventually becomes, because we know he's going to be an all-time great, but just at this particular time, it seems like they tried to force it a little too much with right. him, in, in my opinion, you know, at, at this point in 1999. In 2000, fantastic, but th- right now he seems like not where he needs to be, in my opinion. And to your point, they, they, you can tell they're a little bit on the fence with this whole thing. I mean, we'll, we'll you'll talk about it in the next few episodes, what the match ends up being at SummerSlam. But mm-hmm. think back to even just last week, Triple H comes out there and he's like, you know, Vince, you can't trust The Undertaker with your career. Let me do it. And then Triple H loses. So you are inferior to The Undertaker. You just told me that. You know what I mean? Right. You don't hold a candle to him, which is why Undertaker fought Austin at Fully Loaded. And now it just seems like, oh, well, he beat Taker, so I guess we'll go to Triple H next. Yeah, pretty much. It doesn't feel, it does not feel like a, oh my God, when those two collide at SummerSlam, it feels like, meh. <laughs> right, right. It almost like seems like if you're going to turn the big show heel, it would even make more sense to have the big show face Austin because. I mean, at least he won his match. Like I said, of course, in part one, he's been pretty lukewarm when it comes to pay-per-views. But it's still so early in his run, you could probably say, yeah, let's do Big Show versus Austin. And, you know, that would be, that's a legitimate match I feel like you could headline SummerSlam with at this point in time. 100%, especially, you know, a Big Show who is just turned heel, who has The Undertaker backing him, so it kind of ties into whole, you know, Taker and Austin's story. Exactly. That would have worked. And then you kind of build it as, how is Austin going to, to take on both Taker and Big Show, you know, because Taker's in his corner or whatever. But this thing, I mean, they're, they're, they are trying some things with Triple H. We'll get to it a little later, but uh, it's falling a little flat for me. Yeah, agreed. I want, I'm wondering if he really came into his heel character a little bit when, with his feud with, um, you know, somebody who hasn't debuted yet, who ends up pinning him in the middle of the ring and... <laughs> I feel like that actually helped his character a lot. I want to make sure I'm talking. You, you're not talking about uh, Batista, are you? Or is this is this much sooner than Batista? This is much sooner than Batista. Oh, okay. Then I, I got the wrong person. Sorry about that. <laughs> this is about 333 hours away in Raw 99 time. So, oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. I gotcha. That's what I, when he his heel work with that person and with Earl Hebner's assistance. I thought that really kind of put Triple H. On a different level. Great moment, too. Because you hated him. You really hated him for taking that moment away. Yes. We'll get to that one. I think that's April of 2000, if I'm not mistaken. It's right around there. Yep. So we will get to that eventually, but... Definitely. 
So yes, Rock has challenged Billy Gunn and China to a one-on-two handicap match. But speaking of one-on-two handicap matches, it is now time for our next match, and it is the newfound alliance of The Undertaker and The Big Show, who are now accompanied by Paul Bearer versus Kane. And on that note, by the way, if The Big Show is aligning himself with the Lord of Darkness, he needs to drop his goofy-ass, well, theme music. It doesn't exactly scream evil, if you ask me. And anyway, this match only lasts about two minutes, and the finish comes when The Undertaker clotheslines Kane over the top rope and down to the floor, and Taker then chases away referee Mike Kyoto, and I'm pretty sure Kyoto either runs all the way up the ramp or to the backstage area because he just completely disappears entirely for a little while there, but unfortunately the camera isn't focused on him, so we can't really tell where he goes. But that disappearance enables the big show to grab a steel chair, but before he can use it, Kane takes it away from him, and clobbers Big Show in the skull with an unprotected chair shot. The Undertaker then comes over as well, and Kane spares his brother the brain damage by hitting him across the back with it. But again, Kyoto is nowhere to be found, so there's no disqualification. So Kane tosses the chair into the ring, and he and Taker proceed to go back inside, at which point, now Kyoto has finally reemerged from wherever the hell he went. And that part is crucial, because the Big Show then mixes it up with Kane for a bit, which enables The Undertaker to grab the chair... And he nails Kane in the head with it. And this time, Kyoto sees the chair shot. So he does indeed call for the bell. Your winner of the match, via disqualification, is Kane. But interestingly, though, Kane quickly does one of his Michael Myers sit-ups right after the chair shot. And so, while Kane is still seated, The Undertaker swings the chair sideways right into Kane's face. Good lord. For those of you who remember it, think of that sideways chair shot that The Rock hit Ken Shamrock with back in 98. It was strikingly similar. Emphasis on striking. Ouch. So needless to say, Kane didn't get up from that one. Taker and Big Show then started beating on him again until the road dog Jesse James ran out from backstage to try and help out. And well, that probably went about as well as you would expect because Big Show just grabbed him by the neck and chokeslammed him to the mat. And on this night, Sal, Road Dog is basically groundskeeper Willie from that Treehouse of Horror episode. He shows up to help X-Pac, and he gets chokeslammed through a table. He shows up to help Kane, and he gets another chokeslam. So for the Road Dog, this is indeed a disturbing universe. <laughs> so Taker and Big Show continued beating on Kane, ultimately culminating with Show delivering a jumping elbow drop to Kane. A pretty dominant performance here from the new team, of Undertaker and Big Show. So, Sal, what did you think of our one-on-two handicap match here? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a lot here. First of all, I like how the elbow drop is supposed to be, like, the most vicious thing that that they did to Kane. Not the chair shot to the side of the head. Yeah, that, that did seem like a strange way to finish it. So, Kane nails Big Show with the chair unprotected. And then it was almost like Taker saw that and was like, oh, you know, Glenn, you went a little stiff there. I'm going to have to give you a receipt for my boy. And then just fucking walloped him. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Twice. <sighs> or or maybe he sat up too good. And Taker was like, hey, 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 hey. This is my fucking gimmick. Yeah. Yeah, and then Roadog honestly appeared useless, <laughs> just like he did at the beginning of the night. It's like, dude, I appreciate you trying to help, but maybe get somebody bigger, because you're having zero success. Right. Poor Roadog. And again, though, I will say that this is what made me think that Undertaker and Big Show was going to be a great, dominant heel team, like the Twin Towers. 
It would make sense, too, because, like, you have that whole moment at the beginning where they take out X-Pac, and then Kane is like, no, I'm going to get revenge on you. And then Big Show and Undertaker are like, ah, no, you're fucking not. We're going to beat your ass. And then we're going to beat Road Dog's ass for good measure. So, yeah, that it definitely made Taker and Kane, Taker and Kane, excuse me, Taker and Big Show uh, look very strong from the start and make Road Dog look uh, pretty weak because that's literally the only time we see him tonight is twice when he's getting his ass kicked. But, yeah, it is a good start for them. We'll see where it goes, but yeah, don't get uh, don't get too attached. So after that match concludes, we cut backstage where Deborah is apparently doing a photo shoot, but Jeff Jarrett interrupts and says she has to come with him immediately because it's time for him to head to the ring. And so we head to another commercial break, but when we come back, we once again get a countdown to the millennium, and we are now down to 335 hours and change, which still puts us on pace for August 9th, a mere two weeks from tonight. Oh yes, folks. We're almost there. Just you wait. But anyway, after that, we go into the arena where your WWF Intercontinental Champion Jeff Jarrett and Deborah are indeed heading to the ring, and Double J grabs a mic. So take a listen because, well, he invites a special guest to join him. Hey, hey, baby! Put a muzzle on it! That's you, JR. <laughs> there are no puppies in your future tonight because tonight is about the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. The greatest puppy party pooper. That's right. Ben Stiller. Hi, baby. I heard Ben Stiller was here. Ben, yeah. come on up here. Security, let him go. No, no, let, let him go. Come ben on, Stiller. Ben. I want you to be my personal guest. The big Hollywood movie star. He loved the puppies. He loved the puppies. That's right. Asking for some. I know you're a puppy lover. I know you're a puppy lover. Oh, oh, on this side, on this side. I know you're a puppy lover. Whoa! Very gallant, Ben. The puppies are in the doghouse tonight. My doghouse. He's trying to smooch the pooch. You know, I know your new movie's coming out, Mystery Men. But what brings you to Cleveland? Perhaps the greatest intercontinental champion of all time? Perhaps. Puppies? Well, I just wanted to see some... I wanted to come to Cleveland and see some world-class wrestling, some WWF wrestling. Yeah? And? And, uh, you know, I've been on the road promoting uh, Mystery Men opening August 6th. So uh, it was a good break, and it's been a great night, and you kicked Edge's ass last night. All right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Good for you, man. But now, Ben... You're great, man. Ben, I've been meaning to talk to you about this movie. Why didn't you cast me? I am the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. Well, of course you are, Jeff. Of course you are. You know, there are a lot of superheroes in the movie. There's uh, my character, Mr. Furious. All right. right? Yeah. There's the bowler that Janine Garofalo plays. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman is in the movie. He plays... Good to see Pee-wee back in the theaters. Yep. He plays the spleen, a character that blows gas out his ass. That's his power. (laughs) And uh, we thought there just wasn't a superhero who had enough power that you could play because you're the best. And and there just wasn't a guy who was powerful enough because you're so powerful and you're the best, Jeff. Ben, one more favor before you go because i got to finish up this interview. I know the answer, but I want you to tell everybody in here, who is your favorite WWF superstar. And why that's is that? That's easy. Jeff, that's easy. There, there are two of them. 
happened to be him. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, hey look, Cal. Hey, what in the world? Jared, come on. Now, this is, that's a little bit, that's a little bit overreacting here, Jared. Uh, and Deborah, no like it either. And now Jared almost, Jared taking exception to Deborah. Whoa, 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 whoa. what's he doing? Deborah does not like this, and, and why should anybody? It's somewhat distasteful, quite frankly. Oh, no, you know what? I think, what is Jared doing? It's the figure four. Oh, come on. On Ben Stiller. <laughs> that is, this is not. Somebody stop this. Jeff Jarrett has a figure four leg lock on Ben Stiller, and that ain't no mystery, man. So as you heard there, Jeff Jarrett invited Ben Stiller to join him in the ring. And as a reminder, last week on Raw, Stiller was caught on GTV talking about how much he loved Deborah's puppies. And earlier tonight, Tony Chimmel flat out told the world how much he loves them as well. So clearly, this was a real treat for him. So yes, Ben Stiller gets to plug Mystery Men. And we got a quick, funny little moment here when Ben said that Pee Wee Herman was in it, to which Jerry Lawler said, quote, Good to see Pee Wee back in theaters. I'll admit, I, I, I laughed at that. I did laugh at that. And it was, uh, it was something Jerry Lard doesn't do. Subtlety. <laughs> right. Uh, but then, yes, Double J asked Ben Stiller who his favorite WWF superstar is, to which he, of course, responded, the puppies, as though we didn't already know. Unfortunately for Ben Stiller, though, that proved to be the wrong answer because Jeff Jarrett then jumped Stiller from behind, and he even put him in the figure four leg lock with Ben Stiller rapidly tapping out and screaming in pain. Now, for you present-day WWE viewers who are accustomed to celebrity matches, I'm sure this was a bit of a shock because if this was 2022, Ben Stiller would have had a competitive match with Jeff Jarrett and beaten him cleanly, even though he has no formal wrestling training. So it's a little bit different. A little bit different. You loved the Johnny Knoxville match, for the record. I, but that was that was a better use of celebrity, because he was having his friends back him up. Sure. And he also had to use a bunch of, like, booby traps and stuff. Fine. <laughs> it was not like a straightforward, like, I'm Bad Bunny, I weigh 150 pounds, and I'm going to have a competitive match with Morrison and Miz. All right, that's fair. <laughs> And not that I'm still bitter about that a year later or anything. <laughs> Bad Bunny looked great, don't get me wrong. It just it just annoys me that he can come in and have a competitive match because they're just giving the impression that anyone can do it. I was going to say, I have fair. more of an issue with Logan Paul doing it, but never mind. Yes, him too. Him too. So, <sighs> Jeff Jarrett comes out to the ring, and I know I just saw him fully loaded, but we're in July, we're at the end of July of 99, and my first thought is, why are you still here? Don't you fucking lose the title to China pretty soon? Give it a few months. 
few months too many. Go be <laughs> the chosen one with your fucking stroke in WCW. Oh, it's coming. Dude, it must be nice to be a very famous Hollywood actor that you can get your face shoved in Deborah's tits just because you feel like it. Jesus, this whole friggin' thing was just... It was literally just so Ben Stiller can put his face in Deborah's moves. <laughs> Pretty much. And maybe set up a intercontinental versus European title match, it seems, as well, with D'Lo coming yeah, out Yeah, what's just the other thing? Because I'm like, really, D'Lo? Where the fuck did that come from? Yeah, there's there was no indication previously of a Jeff Jarrett versus D'Lo feud. I will say I did I did enjoy Ben Stiller's selling. I think the whole the plugging for Mystery Men was obviously completely shameless, but I did think he did a pretty good job sh- selling the figure four while he was in there. And I think this was actually a pretty good at the time a pretty good get for the WWF because we're only a year removed from something about Mary, which was a huge huge hit, and Ben Stiller was the star of that. And I guess I'm guessing they probably thought because of that Mystery Men would be a huge hit, which spoiler alert, it was not. So I th- I, I did enjoy the way he was used as a celebrity here where he just came in and got his ass kicked and he was willing to sell he didn't make the business look stupid so i don't know i i enjoyed that part of it would you agree on on that aspect at least i think he eventually sold the figure four nicely at first when jared locked it in first of all ben still had no idea what to do with his legs Oh, that's true. Yes, because <laughs> uh, it took it took Jeff a few minutes to get him into. He kept trying to like squirm on his stomach, and he was like, "No, stay still." Yeah. So then, when he locked it in, still is kind of rolling back and forth, and then after about ten seconds, he goes, "Ah, ah!" <laughs> and then he's like pounding at his knee, and I'm like, "Okay, now it looks better." Originally, it was more like a flopping fish, but he did okay. I, I did think the the visual at the end, too, of D'Lo Brown carrying Ben Stiller backstage like a damsel in distress was kind of amusing, too. Do you know what it reminded me of? Remember when Jeremy Piven hosted Raw? Oh, yeah. The Summerfest? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, and Cena caught him off the top and just carried him around before he laid him out. Uh, yeah, that's what that reminded me of. How come we never got Ben Stiller as a guest Raw host in those days? I, did we not, though? Because I wouldn't be surprised if we did. It was just We got a lot. Yeah, maybe we did. I, maybe I just don't remember. Very difficult to remember all of them other than, God, Snoop. Bob Barker. Snoop, Bob Barker, maybe Mr. T. I don't know. Mike Tyson, I think, did one too. Did The Rock ever do one? Or cause It was during that time period that he made his return to the WWE. Yeah. But it maybe. was like, ladies and gentlemen, the host of WrestleMania 27, and then he came out. So I don't think he was actually Raw GM, but I don't know. I don't know. I think if I recall correctly, when the A-team came out, they had all the stars of that, because I was like, oh, they actually got Bradley Cooper on Raw. Not bad. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's a, that would have been a, a bigger get later on in later years, but he was, was still a pretty big star at the time. There was um, there was an episode where they had the Muppets host Raw. That's right, when, when Seamus talked to Beaker about being at the family reunion. That was pretty funny. That actually was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, after a commercial break, we head backstage where Triple H is walking around, and he comes to a locker room which is labeled Austin. He opens the door and goes inside, but then we cut away. Quite the cliffhanger. And by the way, Triple H was shirtless and wearing his wrestling tights, but he also had his little leather paddy cap on as well. I just thought that looked kind of funny. You know, he's ready to wrestle, but he's not quite ready to take off his little cap yet, so little amusing there. But from there, we go back into the arena where your WWF women's champion Ivory is heading to the ring. And Sal, to be quite honest, 
Ivory hasn't been on Raw in several weeks, and I legitimately forgot that she was the women's champion. But needless to say, they haven't exactly been placing a lot of emphasis on this particular title. And Ivory begins by telling us that her bodyguard, Nicole Bass, has become a pain in her ass, and she is no longer good enough to stand next to the champ. And Sal, in case you aren't aware, the reason for Ivory saying this is because... Nicole Bass has officially quit the company, and soon Nicole will actually be suing the WWF for sexual harassment, retaliation, sex discrimination, assault, battery, and negligence, and specifically she is also suing Steve Lombardi, yes that's right, the Brooklyn Brawler. You can Ew. actually find the transcript, yeah, oh it gets, it gets better. Because you can find the transcript of all this online. It's a pretty interesting read if you want to look it up. The quick synopsis is they took a flight to the United Kingdom in May of 99 to do a tour there. And on the flight, Steve Lombardi told her he wanted to touch her chest. And when she refused, he grabbed her breasts anyway. And she also claims that male wrestlers would frequently intrude in the women's locker room. And as such, she ends up suing the WWF for... $120 million, and the crazy thing is this lawsuit actually ends up dragging on until 2002, and there was even a trial in September of that year where Vince McMahon himself had to testify, and honestly, I'm not sure how this hasn't been an episode of Dark Side of the Ring yet. But anyway, tying this back into tonight's episode of Raw, one of the other wrestlers who testified against Nicole Bass in September of 2002 was indeed Ivory, and under oath, Ivory actually said that the WWF proposed doing a lesbian storyline with her and Nicole Bass, but Ivory turned it down, in case you were wondering where that whole bodyguard angle was initially heading. Ugh. Anywho, back to Monday Night Raw, and just like she did last month, Sal, you may remember this previously, when Ivory asked a fan in attendance if any of them were brave enough to come into the ring and face her, and sure enough, she does indeed pick out a lucky volunteer with dyed red hair. The young lady gets in the ring, and Ivory immediately smacks her in the face with the title belt. She then rams the plant's head into the turnbuckle and takes her down to the mat with the bulldog. And by the way, as for the identity of this planted fan, I was not able to find out who this one was, so if anyone has a clue, be sure to tweet me, at Raw Attitude Pod. Sal, two angles tonight so far with fans being involved. But anyway, Ivory taunts the fan, but while she's doing that, Tori makes her... Uh, grand return. She's been off TV for the past few months, but if you recall a few episodes back, she was actually being shown in seductive vignettes that looked like perfume commercials, and so she runs to the ring to help out this fan, and she proceeds to hit Ivory with three of the worst clotheslines you'll ever see, followed by some terrible-looking mounted punches as well. Big old yikes here. They weren't good. No. And eventually, a bunch of officials run down to the ring to separate the two of them, but not nearly soon enough, in my opinion. Quite frankly, those officials should have probably run out and blocked Tori from ever entering the ring in the first place, but that's a whole other issue. But what do you think, Sal? Am I being too hard on Tori's appearance here? No, I don't think you're being hard on it. I think that her punches look like shit. Her attack itself was flat. It just didn't seem to really do anything. And God damn it, is Ivory underrated. I mean, maybe not now, but little did we know back then that this girl was like the cornerstone of like the original Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, Tina Ferrari. Like, I didn't know that. And you know Me what? Neither. They probably should have told us that because <laughs> I would have been pretty impressed. She's so good, even at this point, just with her her heel work, like her mic work yeah. and her selling. She She tried to make this girl a little bit you know this girl was a trained worker by the way you could tell by the way she tied up with her oh yeah um so i have no idea who the fuck she was but even if she was an extra i thought she did a good job too 
that that fan did a better job than Tori did. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I didn't understand how we got from the perfume commercials to Tori is now a baby face ready to fight Ivory. Yeah, Tori, if you go back and watch the segment, Tori does something I've seen people do before, like where she does the clothesline where she doesn't follow through. She just kind of like hits Ivory with the clothesline and then she kind of like lets her arm fall limp so it just looks completely awful. Yep. And she basically does that three times. So, yeah, it's... It's very, very bad. I don't know how she went from sexy perfume spokesmodel to now being, uh, you know, the number one contender for the women's title. But, you know, we'll see how that all plays out. But I do with, I do agree with you the fact that Ivory is a little bit underrated here because especially at this point in time where the women's division was not heavily emphasized at all, it's tough to kind of like get any traction. But she is, she is very, very good at what she's asked to do here. Yep, 100%. So after that segment ends, we cut backstage where we see Triple H now leaving Stone Cold's locker room. We have no idea what actually happened, but Jim Ross speculates that Austin was not inside at the time, so perhaps we'll find out shortly. And after a commercial break, we go somewhere backstage where Al Snow is with Head, saying that it's got to stop and it can't get any worse. And I'm not sure if he's talking about the voices in his head or this angle in general, but both would be accurate. But then while he's saying that, a chihuahua randomly shows up out of nowhere, and then it runs off almost as quickly as Al begs for it to come back. I'm not going to spoil where this angle goes, folks, but let's just say uh, I don't think PETA will approve of it. Fair warning. You know that um, very, very well-known gif of uh, Michael Scott from The Office? And he's like, no, no, dear God, yes. no. That's yes. what I thought of when I saw the Chihuahua. I'm like, no, why? Yeah, yeah, that's coming. That's coming. <sighs> yeah, hopefully not too soon. But I, I honestly don't know when they pay that angle off, but we'll see. One of the, the final marks that Vince Russo makes before he, uh, spoiler alert, ends up leaving the company relatively shortly thereafter. <sighs> And so we head into the arena for our next match, and it is Triple H, who is accompanied by China, versus Ken Shamrock, or, well, at least this match was supposed to be Triple H versus Ken Shamrock, because, as you may recall earlier tonight, Shamrock got hit by a fucking car, so presumably he's in no shape to wrestle, and sure enough, they do reshow that footage from earlier of Blackman hitting Shamrock with his vehicle. And by the way, Jim Ross also informs us that he's getting a report on his headset that, indeed, Steve Austin was not in his locker room when Triple H entered it, so apparently Hunter defaced it and broke a bunch of his stuff. This man is truly a menace. And so after they show that footage of Shamrock being hit by a car, we go back to the ring where Hunter now has a microphone, and he says he was looking forward to kicking the world's most dangerous man's ass, but Shamrock is probably backstage nursing his wounds, and Hunter then proceeds to call him a puss, which is a word I can't say I've heard too many times on a wrestling broadcast, and apparently being called a puss is too much for Shamrock to ignore, because then he does actually emerge from backstage with his ribs all taped up, and so our match is on after all. And as you might expect, Triple H ends up controlling the majority of it since Shamrock is barely able to fight back. Hunter wisely focuses on Shamrock's injured ribs by hitting him with a few gut busters and putting him into an abdominal stretch. And at one point, we can see that Hunter's offense has caused Shamrock to bleed from the mouth because he has internal injuries. And honestly, Sal, I can't even count how many times they've done this angle specifically with Ken Shamrock. He always seems to be suffering from internal injuries, which cause him to bleed from the mouth. I think the man really needs to see a specialist. Seriously. 
And folks, you may want to mark this one down in your history books because Triple H puts Ken Shamrock in a body scissors and referee Jimmy Corderas calls for the bell because Shamrock is unable to fight back. So yes, you heard that correctly. Triple H just won a match, not with a pedigree, but with a body scissors. Does that ever happen again in his entire 30-year career? I would highly doubt it. And after the match concludes, Triple H starts putting the boots to Shamrock, and he once again puts him in a body scissors. And this is where things get a bit strange because Hunter celebrates for a moment, and then he goes back to working over Shamrock, and we cut away from Triple H beating on him to go backstage with Michael Cole. And the worst part is, it's just Michael Cole standing there by himself. He doesn't even have anyone to interview. It was just one of those quick moments like, well, there you see Michael Cole waiting to get a word with The Undertaker on Big Show. I mean, poor Hunter, he's being built up to be the number one contender at SummerSlam, and they interrupt him being a vicious heel so they can instead show an announcer with a goofy-ass goatee backstage. Unreal. But anyway, so what did you think of Triple H versus Ken Shamrock? Well, see, that goes back to what we were saying earlier. They almost are reluctantly pushing Triple H. Like, they're doing these little things that don't add up. Why wouldn't you have the entire focus on this vicious, heinous act? Instead, you cut to Michael Cole. I will say this. As as many things as they're trying for the gimmick, what's working, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, but it showed it during this match, pick a body part and work it. Granted, a body scissors is dumb, but it makes sense because you saw how many gut busters he did to him. And, you know, this guy had internal bleeding from the car accident, and it was a referee stoppage. It wasn't a tap out, and I thought that was smart because it was like, basically because of the car accident, he can't continue. Right. But Triple H is a cerebral assassin for focusing in on that spot. That's what I think eventually makes Triple H what he became, is that once the bell rang, he was known as a dude who would focus in on something and, and make you suffer for it. And that's smart. That's what heels are supposed to do. There you go. And I think you can't really have, like, since Ken Shamrock is the ultimate fighting guy, you can't really have him tap out because then it's like, it it calls attention to the fact, in my opinion, that he's, like, so legitimate so it would be kind of weird for him to tap out in a wrestling match. I don't know. I always just got that sense where, like, they don't don't ever want to have a guy like a UFC guy, like a Ronda or a Shamrock or a Brock. They don't want them to like ever tap out in a match. You know what I mean? Because you could probably count on the on one hand the number of times that's actually happened with any of them. It's smart. This guy is supposed to be from the legitimate world. You kind of take that credibility away if he's tapping out to... A body scissors? <laughs> yeah. I, taking it out of his hands and making the ref stop the fight is smart. Yes. You know, everybody saw the injuries, the, the, the ribs being taped. You know, the ribs being taped is a very old school uh, thing that they, they've done to death. But for the most part, it still works because you can argue the guy can't do anything if his core is like, oh, bandaged up. It's still, even though it's like played out, it still works. Yeah, it's one of those old school things like the guy comes out with big white tape around his ribs. It's like, you know, even the guy, even the fan in row Z can see that one. Yep. I know the guy's in trouble. So, yeah, totally. It's definitely effective, especially after you see the guy get hit by a fucking car earlier in the night. Mm-hmm. And so before we go to the next segment, I need to mention that something else was edited out of this broadcast, and it was Triple H in China telling us to watch G vs. Z. So yes, the WWF was really doing their friends at the USA Network a solid here by having some of their biggest stars shill for their new show, but alas, 
to no avail. I will say, though, I did look up G versus E, and it has a 7.6 rating on IMDb and an 83% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So there is a possibility maybe it actually was good, but if only America had given it a chance. But anyway, after that commercial break, we do indeed go back to Michael Cole, who is with The Undertaker, The Big Show, and Paul Bearer. Taker immediately grabs Cole's mic and says that X-Pac is on his way to the hospital, and he then says, and I quote here, The Big Red Machine... Well, he just proved he's nothing more than a big red pussy. So yes, in the prior segment, Triple H called Ken Shamrock a puss, and now The Undertaker is calling his own brother a pussy. And to show you how confusing censorship here is in the United States, Triple H was not bleeped for saying that, but The Undertaker was. So saying puss is fine, but saying pussy isn't. I guess maybe because pussy is too sexual. I mean, if you utter the phrase big red pussy, someone could think you're talking about Lucille Ball's genitalia. So you got to bleep it out. You got to do it. But anyway, once that interview wraps up, the camera actually pans over to the left where we see Test beating the crap out of Mean Street Posse member Pete Gass. He throws him into one of those metal barricades and then he grabs some sort of metal pole and whacks Pete with it until Rodney and Joey Abs arrive on the scene to chase Test away. It only lasted for a couple of seconds, but apparently they didn't want us to forget about the Test versus Posse, <laughs> Posse rivalry. Spoiler alert, this feud actually does get pretty good once SummerSlam rolls around, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And so, after another commercial break, we get an entrance from, hey, guess who? Triple H is making his way to the ring to be a special guest commentator for our main event. By my count, this is Hunter's third appearance in the arena tonight, plus those two backstage segments where he went in and out of Stone Cold's dressing room. Five segments so far for Triple H, or as I like to call it, your average episode of Raw from 2002 to 2005. I think you mean 2015. (laughs) Sorry, yes, you're right. (laughs) And so, yes, it is now time for our main event one-on-two handicap match, Billy Gunn and China versus The Rock. And early on in the match, Triple H pretty much proceeds to steal the show here because he's being very angry on commentary and getting in Jim Ross's face. He even knocks JR's hat off his head as well. In fact, Hunter is pretty much shouting into his headset for the first few minutes here. And at several points, we cut backstage where we can see Stone Cold watching the, watching the match on a monitor and presumably listening to Hunter's trash talk. But anyway, as for the match itself, as you would probably expect, Billy and China were in control for the majority of it early on, but Rock did manage to mount a comeback. And interestingly, at one point, he basically hit a cactus clothesline on Billy, getting a running start and clotheslining Mr. Ass down to the floor, while also taking himself down there as well. But unfortunately for Rock, he landed near the commentary table, so Triple H managed to sneak in a cheap shot on him behind referee Earl Hebner's back. And from there, Billy and China went back to controlling the match. And remember how I said that Triple H was basically becoming the focus of this match due to his berating of Jim Ross on commentary? Well, take a listen to what happens next, because it leads to the conclusion of tonight's broadcast. I'm going to be holding that championship over my head. Well, we'll see, won't we? You know what? You know, I don't I know if you can do it or not. and tired of you well, get the hell out of here. me. Get the hell out of here. You know what? You know what? No anchor tell Anyone's going to get the hell out of here. You. Triple H are going at it right 
So what you heard there was Triple H getting increasingly agitated by Jim Ross to the point that he just proceeds to punch JR in the face. And as you heard there, once he did that, Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hit and he ran down to the ring. And amusingly, for some reason, instead of running straight to Triple H, Stone Cold ran through the ring and hit China with a shoulder tackle, knocking her down to the mat, which seemed rather unnecessary. But then he went over to the commentary table and proceeded to brawl with Hunter. Meanwhile, back in the ring, The Rock nailed Billy Gunn with a rock bottom. Then he took China out with a punch. And from there, Rock set up for the people's elbow and... We went off the air. So yes, Sal, they actually ended Raw without showing us the finish of the main event. And I had to double check because for a second there, I thought I had accidentally switched over to Nitro because that's their specialty, not the WWF's. But honestly, though, it may be a good thing we didn't see the finish because it looked like Billy Gunn was about to eat yet another pinfall. And this time in a match where he had a two on one advantage. Yikes. So yes, that is how Monday Night Raw went off the air, but if you're watching on Peacock, you'll see that they include a recurring segment here during these Attitude Era episodes of Raw, which is called Extra Attitude, and as you can probably guess, they basically show us what happened once Raw went off the air. Unfortunately, though, it looks like Extra Attitude doesn't pick up immediately after the show went off the air, because Rock is just exiting the ring and heading backstage, so we don't see if there was any sort of pinfall. Instead, we focus on the still ongoing brawl between Stone Cold and Triple H. So Austin backdrops Hunter over the guardrail, and the two of them continue fighting in the front row for a bit. As the fans seated there proceed to go nuts, they apparently thought this was the coolest shit ever, and I guess I, I can't say I really blame them. And eventually, though, they head back into the ring where Triple H works Stone Cold over in the corner for a bit, but then... He makes the mistake of whipping Austin off the ropes, so Hunter goes for a clothesline, but Austin ducks, kicks him in the stomach, and yes, Triple H gets a Stone Cold Stunner. Austin then has some beers tossed to him, and he goes to the second rope to celebrate, but then, and this legitimately caught me by surprise, China sneaks up from behind and gives Stone Cold a low blow. Triple H then picks up Austin and holds his arms behind his back so China can try to punch him, but Stone Cold escapes and hits China with a stunner, and then he hits another one on Hunter for good measure. And then, after Stone Cold climbs the ropes and celebrates a little bit more, a groggy Triple H gets back to his feet once again, and he takes a third stunner. So, clearly these fans in Cleveland are really getting their money's worth. And by the way, at this point, it would probably be close to 11.10pm on a Monday night, and you can see that none of those fans have left. So, Stone Cold's still in the arena? Fuck it, we're staying. Even if we get home at 2 in the morning, we're staying. So, so what did you think of our main event, and did you enjoy the extra attitude at the end? I figured the match was a no contest, even though there's no real reason why it should be. I guess Austin running in the ring and, for some reason, shoulder-blocking China, and then going out to feud with Hunter. I guess you could throw the match out for that. True. The extra attitude was fun, kind of, but it was also a little bit like, okay, what are we doing here? Like, what's, what's the point of all... What's causing all this? You know what I mean? It just seemed kind of... Uh, why are we still going? <laughs> and they did a lot to try... And this is... They've always done this. JR is a, a vehicle to get Stone Cold more sympathy. Oh, it's funny you say that, by the way. I, I will get to that in just a moment, but you're exactly right. Because uh, him getting punched in the face... I almost thought they hit the music cue too soon. Like, if Austin was really watching backstage and, he's wa and he sees JR get punched... This should be maybe a 15 to 20 second delay before you hear his music come on. And it was almost instantaneous. As soon as, as soon as Ross went down, Austin's music hit. 
Right. Like if he, if he was actually backstage watching the monitor, it should take him a while to get there. To, to run out. Right. There should be a little bit of a delay. That being said, they are trying so bad to make Triple H a thing, like a viable, loathsome challenger for, for Stone Gold. It's just, I'm not buying it, man. <laughs> well, it's a good thing they at least waited until the show went off the air for him to take three goddamn stunners, because that would probably kill his momentum if probably that was on TV. Probably one of the reasons why I'm not buying it. Like, he sat there and argued with JR, and he was like, uh, what do you think, I can't beat Austin? And I'm like, mm, nope. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can't. You, you literally aren't in his league yet. So. Yep. Not yet, pal. Yeah, interesting ending for sure there. And again, I, I, like I said, I like the no finish, but I kind of also didn't want to see Billy Gunn take yet another clean pinfall. So I'll choose to think what you said there, that I'll just assume Earl Hebner threw the match out once Austin threw that shoulder block at China, which I think is hopefully the way they went, but I don't know. Well, it will forever remain a mystery because we never get an answer for it. But before we wrap up here, Sal, I'm going to turn to Jim Ross's most recent autobiography, Under the Black Hat, because he actually addresses this very episode of Raw in his book. Just This is actually going to piggyback on exactly what you were saying. And by the way, also, Sal, in this section of the book, J.R. mentions how he had just signed Triple H to a new contract before a house show in Evansville, Indiana, two weeks prior to this episode of Raw. And this was Hunter's first ever million-dollar contract, in fact. So when you see Triple H in the summer of 99, just remember you are looking at a newly minted millionaire, in case you were wondering. So, Sal, will you indulge me while I read you a passage from Under the Black Hat regarding the events which led up to and occurred on this night? This should be fun. Let's do this. All right, then. Quote, Vince had mentioned a few weeks before that they were going to try something with me and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, or Triple H as he was now known. The boss's smile told me it wasn't going to be a typical gig. I want to get Triple H in there with Austin, Vince said, but I need you to be the conduit. Conduit? Yeah. I waited for an explanation, but Vince didn't offer one. What kind of conduit, I asked. Not that I'm... I didn't want the chairman to think I wasn't masculine, that I was scared or anything. Well, the audience knows you and Austin are friends, JR, Vince explained. So if Triple H beats the shit out of Austin's friend, it would... Vince waited for me to finish the sentence. Get him ready for Austin, I said. Exactly, Vince replied, like he hadn't just told me the answer. Okay, I can be a conduit, I told him, still not really knowing what that meant. Turns out it meant getting my ass beat by Triple H on live TV. Now, I had been used in angles before, but this was new ground. I was stepping from the announce table straight into a multi-week storyline with the biggest heels in the business. I had been the voice of the show for years, but what Vince was laying out was the birth of JR, the character, the man behind the voice, and I wasn't all that sure how to feel about it. Vince wanted to build the game Triple H into a mega heel for the hero Austin to battle, and one way to build a heel was to have him do dastardly things to someone the audience likes, roots for, and cares about. I wasn't sure that people would care to have me on their TV sets that way, but if that's what Triple H needed to get to that next level, then I was sure willing to try. The story put the game on guest commentary beside me at the start of the summer, and by this stage I knew what was coming, or more importantly, who was delivering it, and honestly, it put me a little more at ease. If someone was going to take me behind the woodshed, I was happy it was a professional like Triple H. He punched me in the mouth, I fell off my seat, and did my best impression of a dead fish. As I lay on the ground, I smiled to myself as I heard the smashed glass first note of Stone Cold's opener. The arena went nuts. It was so satisfying to lie there, face hidden, and listen to the passion in the building. Triple H had hit the wrong man, and now my friend the Texas Rattlesnake was going to serve the game the receipt he'd earned. Austin slid into the ring, 
pushed China over, continued at full speed out the other side, and met Hunter with a barrage of stiff right hands. Both men beat each other around the ring until they ended up back inside the ropes with the crowd at fever pitch where Austin could hit his signature move, the Stone Cold Stunner. I lay on the ground knowing that Austin and Triple H were set up perfectly. I could return to doing what I did best, and I wouldn't have to take any more beatings. End quote. So what do you think, Sal? Did you enjoy JR's take there? Because it kind of backs up what you were just saying, how right now they're using JR to basically, as he says in that in that little um, excerpt there, as a conduit to, uh, to Triple H's heel turn. It's smart. It's very smart. And it doesn't surprise me that uh, the chairman himself kind of pushed for this angle. This is where the good old JR character came from. He's a good old boy. He loves his mama. He loves Jesus and American Pie. Oh, wait, that that's something else. That sounds familiar. He can't defend himself. That's the biggest thing. This is not a former wrestler. Right. This is almost like when Vader beat up Gorilla Monsoon, but it's a little bit better because we have now associated Raw, uh, Jim Ross as the voice of Monday Night Raw. So we all are like, oh, why is he picking on Jim Ross? I hope Stone Cold kicks his ass. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, too, because you're you're right when you mention that, I think. I don't – to this point, I don't recall it ever really being acknowledged on camera that Austin and Jim Ross were friends. I don't think it has been up to this point. So that that does add another sort of dimension to this as well. Sure. And they kind of set this up earlier when when Austin invited Jim Ross into the ring. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, Austin's endorsing this guy. And now Triple H is, is trying to use that to his advantage. There you go. It, it's amazing, by the way. And I know we, we keep going back to it. But it's a, it's amazing how much Austin runs the show from top to bottom. And Big I, time. I mean, even in the fans' eyes. Because cause that we did that whole gimmick with Undertaker and, and X-Pac. And the fans are chanting for Austin. Yes, that's right. They just want Austin to be in every single segment. Yeah. And uh, spoiler alert for the coming weeks, Austin may be the reason why this whole Triple H heel turn doesn't uh, doesn't turn out the way we think it's going to at SummerSlam, but we'll get to that soon enough. Oh, and also, as you might expect, Sal, by the way, there was a reason why I ended on that quote of JR saying he won't have to take any more beatings because, well, that uh, that might not necessarily be the case. But anyway, that's for another time. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. The WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw scored a 6.28 rating to Nitro's 3.33. The good news for WCW is that this week, they actually bumped up slightly to a 3.43. But unfortunately for them, though, Raw went all the way up to an incredibly massive 7.11 rating. And guess what, Sal? That means that this episode of Raw that we just watched drew the highest 
legitimate rating of any of their shows in all of 1999. And I say legitimate because they did put up an 8.1 in May while Nitro was preempted. And they did a 7.14 for Raw is Owen, which is obviously special circumstances. But in case you're wondering how rare it is for them to hit a 7 rating, they won't do that again for another 9 months until April of 2000. So I think it's fair to say, even though Fully Loaded didn't draw a huge buy rate, fans damn sure wanted to tune in to see the end of the Austin McMahon feud. And just to really hit the point home, tonight's episode of Nitro featured Goldberg's first match back on television in three months, where he faced Kurt Hennig, and that segment drew a 3.5 rating, and it was up against Val Venus and the Godfather versus Draws and Prince Albert, which drew a 7.0 rating. So yes, you heard that correctly. Prince Albert doubled the ratings of Goldberg on this night, in case you need another indicator of how badly things are going for WCW at this moment. And Sal, this is usually the portion of the podcast where I point out all the noteworthy stuff which happened over on Nitro on this night, but I'll be honest with you, I was really struggling to find something worth mentioning here. I guess the most interesting thing would be that Sting is the new president of WCW, and he actually teams up with your reigning world champion Hulk Hogan in the main event, where they lose to the team of Kevin Nash and Sid Vicious. Oh, and Shane Douglas had his first match in WCW in about six years, defeating Scott Putsky and Leilani Kai, who held the WWF Women's Championship back in 1985, renamed herself Patty Stonegrinder and lost to Medusa. So um, that's a... That's pretty much all I got for you, folks. I mean, what do you think, Sal? Do you have any interest in watching this episode of Nitro, maybe just to see Hogan and Sting team together? No, absolutely not. Cause this Fair was, enough. This was after the finger poke of doom, so we did that whole Hogan's reunited the NWO, but only with the most elite, and then he turned back to babyface, and now he fought Sid, but nobody cared, and now him and Sting are going to tag up. This is all hot garbage. Yeah, and I I think I mentioned it before, too, that this is Hogan. We're now, like, I think two or three weeks into his face turn where he's gone back to the red and yellow for the first time since— And it's already old shtick. It's already old. It's already old. People are already like, yeah, that was nice for one week, but, uh, yeah, no thanks. Which shows you the difference with how smart WWE is when they book something versus WCW. Because five years later, they would bring Hogan back in WWE, and they made that work. Yeah. Oh, big time, yeah. So, whatever— I mean, I'm sure the finger poke didn't help, but I, Jesus, I gotta admire the WWE, a 7 point whatever rating. Yeah, a 7.11. That's incredible. Huge. I mean, you think about the numbers that, that Seinfeld was getting back in, in, back in the day, Friends. Other than like season finales, I don't remember any of them getting that type of number. Yeah, I mean, for cable, they are the kings of cable at this point. There's no question, like anything else... They're blowing everything away. Right. I would be interested to see what the Monday Night Football ratings were when Raw's ratings were so red hot. But when I think about the NFL in 1999, there's nothing that really particularly stands out to me. Like, I know John Elway would end up winning another title, but he wasn't a guy that, like, everybody had to tune in to watch. He didn't put an ass every 18 inches. Exactly. It's interesting because Monday Night Football, they never, Raw never beats Monday Night Football in their ratings, but they do beat them head-to-head in a couple segments where, they, like the uh, the quote-unquote, the key demo, the 18-35 to 35 or 18-49, to 49, whatever you want to call it. They did beat them in some segments head-to-head just in that, but in terms of like total viewers, Monday Night Football is just crushing. Well, of course, but it's just... Which they still do. I mean, yeah, that's the other thing, too. You compare, and I understand we're in a completely different world, but... 
Yeah, compare the raw ratings now to the raw ratings back in 1999. It's insanity. It's been a steady drop for about 20-something years now. Now, that being said, I don't really believe that outside of 1999, they start they continue to get 8s and 7s in the ratings. In 2000, they do, for a while, go back up to 7s for a little bit. Okay. But that's pretty much, that's pretty much the peak. So, as funny as it is to say, 2000, I think for a while, ends up being their most financially successful year in terms of buy rates and ratings. And it really doesn't, I won't spoil, you know, some of the reasons why, but they have people who come in, they have people who make their debut toward the end of 99. Uh, And and I will say the in-ring product in the year 2000, because of some of the people they bring in, vastly improves. It's not like this episode of Raw. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this episode of Raw, the, the wrestling was not great, but the when you get to the year 2000 and you have the tag team division also firing on all cylinders. That in-ring product really, really does improve. Kurt Angle. The rise of Kurt Angle. Yep. There you go. As we saw in the Iron Circle match. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, on that note too, so while, while I'm there, might as well just go to the raw synopsis. So what were your overall thoughts on this, the, the July 26, 1999 episode of Raw? I was annoyed at the Vince stuff because it just was unnecessary. I felt comfortable on the road to SummerSlam. I felt like, okay, they know what they're doing. I know where they're going, which is always nice. Whether it be, you can kind of look at it. Taker and Big Show are going to take on Kane and X-Pac. We got Triple H and Austin. We're going to have Billy Gunn and The Rock. Spoiler, it's going to involve a large woman's ass. (laughs) Yes, the the greatest call of Jim Ross's career. Yes. But I'm, I'm... very comfortable with with the direction that we're going into SummerSlam because they've put everything on the table now. The only person they didn't put on the table, although they did mention him, was the governor himself, Jesse the Body Ventura. Yeah. Now, they mentioned him a few times during this episode, specifically Triple H did. I don't remember when he shows up, but I know he does make an appearance before SummerSlam. Couple of them, actually. So... Not only was Raw pretty good, we are now at the point where we're looking forward to the next couple Raws because there's some big deals that happen. There is. And that number one contender changes a little bit even, too, before we before we even get there. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this as well, Sal, too, because a lot of times I've been looking forward more to the Raw after the pay-per-view. Because just, just thinking about this, if you go back even a couple months, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the next night, Rock wins the title. Yep. After WrestleMania, the next night, you don't have a title change, but they basically set up the Austin Rock feud for Backlash, and they set up the Shane versus Vince, what's going to be the split with the corporation. The night after Backlash, what happens? The Black Wedding. I'm not going to, night after Over the Edge, obviously, I'm not, I'm not going to count that one. But then the night after King of the Ring, we covered that. Austin wins the title. Austin wins the title, yep. So they've been doing some big stuff on these Raws after pay-per-views lately. So I did enjoy the show, but it seemed almost like it, it was lacking a certain like really big moment like we've been having after these pay-per-views. So I would still say thumbs trending slightly up, even though, like I said, the wrestling on the show was not was not the best. But in terms of when I go back and watch these shows, I at this point, we know what WWF in 1999 is. You, if you go into Raw in 1999 being like, well, I didn't get a five-star match. It's like, yeah, you're, you're never going to get You know you're not going to get a five-star match. You know, just enjoy the show for what it is, segment to segment. You know, We got to see Ken Shamrock get hit by a car. There was some good stuff on there. So I was going to say that there were a couple, and I know we're not there yet, but there are a couple of, of people on this on this show that do put on some good matches. Triple H is one of them. 
usually uh, Undertaker's another one. He can go out there for two segments, three segments, and it's fine. He makes it work. Rock 2. Rock 2, yeah. Even though the wrestling's not extremely amazing like it would it would become uh we're we're, we're there I, at no point was i like oh this is just the worst even things that were silly they were fine yeah i guess the good thing about the sort of like crash tv booking style is that nothing really drags it's just kind of like well we're on to the next oh thing. i'm glad you said that because when you said crash it reminded me of hardcore holly everything except <laughs> him fucked out he sucks okay <laughs> fair enough so finally, before we wrap up, I do have a few notes here from this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer. Now, Sal, did you enjoy Master P's affiliation with WCW? Initially, I kind of liked it because I was one of the few people who knew who Master P was. <laughs> yeah, in WCW's audience, a lot of people probably didn't. Which is weird because they're based out of New Orleans. I know, it's Southern audience, exactly. Right, and I get it. It's not Atlanta, but it's, it's you know, close. Yeah, it's close to the Smoothie King Center. Um, I knew Master P. I knew Silk the Shocker. I knew Mystical. So there, there was um, there was some interest there, and the wet the West Texas Rednecks did a good job to piss me off. There you go. Yes, they're making us all say "uh" in 1999 for sure. But <laughs> but the reason why I asked is because Master P's affiliation with WCW is already over after a month and a half. And as for his faction, the No Limit Soldiers in WCW, they'll be around a little bit longer. But the plan is for Conan and Rey Mysterio to leave the Soldiers and form their own group. Spoiler alert, Sal, that faction will end up being known as the Filthy Animals. So I guess that's a bit of an upgrade, although your mileage may vary. And speaking of WCW, this week in the magazine, The Hollywood Reporter, there was a story about a WCW movie, which will soon begin filming, starring David Arquette. No title mentioned yet, but according to people who have read the script, it is not good. So, okay, sure, it might be bad, but at least it will have no effect whatsoever on the actual weekly wrestling shows, right? Right? Uh, right! Uh. Stay tuned. Uh, another interesting little tidbit here. Mick Foley has been off TV since June recovering from knee surgery, and while he's been away, he has apparently been using that time off to finish his autobiography with the hopes that it will be published by the end of the year. Another spoiler alert, it's going to end up being pretty successful, and honestly, with very good reason, because it's pretty fucking fantastic. It is really good. Now, Sal, this note I honestly couldn't believe because at this point, obviously, it's already common knowledge that Chris Jericho has signed with the WWF, right? That To the point where we saw Jericho is Raw, or Jericho is, you know, is Raw's War, whatever, in signs in the crowd. That's right. But yet, Sal, believe it or not, even though he has signed with the WWF, he was still working WCW house shows because they still had him under contract. So he wrestled his final WCW match at a house show in Peoria, Illinois, on July 21st, 1999, teaming with Eddie Guerrero in a losing effort against Kidman and Rey Mysterio. And wouldn't you know it, before the match, Jericho grabbed a mic and told the crowd he would leave WCW if he got pinned. And, well, <laughs> he got pinned. Uh, I hate to give the devil his due, but that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, oh, well, you might like this little end note here. After the match, all four men hugged, and Rey Mysterio got the crowd to chant, Jericho. So Chris grabbed a mic and said he was overwhelmed by the response from the Peoria crowd, but Peoria still sucks. So there you go. Nice. I love it. 
And Sal, as an ECW diehard, you may appreciate this one, although actually, well, appreciate is probably the wrong word. On this week's episode of Hardcore TV, Joel Gertner was given time to talk about some current events in 1999, and the particular story he wanted to talk about happened just eight days prior, and that story was John F. Kennedy Jr. dying in a plane crash. So yes, just about a week removed from JFK Jr.'s plane crashing into the Atlantic Ocean, where he, his wife, and his sister-in-law were killed, Gertner pretty much did a six-minute monologue making fun of him and some other members of the Kennedy family. Now, obviously, I'm not going to go into the political side of things here since that this isn't that type of podcast, but I'll just say probably a bit too soon. I mean, they had literally just found their bodies in the ocean three days before the show, so pretty tasteless. And yet somehow, by the way, this whole segment is actually still on Peacock to this very day. If you go to Hardcore TV and put on the episode from July 24th, 1999, you can watch this entire Joel Gertner rant in all of its uh, glory, or at least until someone tells NBC about it and they pull it down. So I'll go ahead and actually play a clip of it for you here, just in case they end up yanking it. We always hear about a ratings war in professional wrestling. But really, there must be a big battle going on in the world of network news. Because for a story about an unfortunate death, this, unfortunately, is the story that just won't die. First, they tell you all about the cockpit. And, oh yes, it was a cockpit indeed. And they tell you about the size and how small it is. I personally am not here to attest to the size of John John's cockpit or John John's john john but perhaps you could ask the beset sisters about that after all altitude wasn't the only thing going down on that flight and you know a, a piper saratoga really isn't all that small when the two passengers are both sitting in the pilot's lap now i know i've said this several times over the past few episodes but let me all just remind you again ecw has secured a television deal with tnn and they're clearly causing a lot of people over there to rethink that agreement. But I don't know. What do you think, Sal? Fair game to mock three dead people on a wrestling show just a few days later? Are you familiar with Jill Gertner's character? I am indeed, yes. He's the quintessential stud muffin. He also says a lot of outlandish shit just to get a reaction. So <laughs> Indeed, it he does. It does not surprise me, but this might surprise you. Yeah, I'm not okay with doing this so close to... To when the plane crash happened. Yeah. It's 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 way too soon for that shit. Yeah, it's not even the political side of thing. It's just like people are legitimately dead. It's like um when I when I covered the um the over the edge episode where the night after Owen Hart fell from the ceiling, Craig Kilborn was on his show being like, Well, last night the blue blazer died, but his partner, the white turtleneck, is still alive. I'm like, dude, twenty four hours later you're you're making fun of a guy dying. It's like maybe maybe give it a little more time, you know. Yeah, when someone dies yeah probably not the best time to make jokes like yeah but if you want to go and watch that entire six minute rant of him making fun of the kennedys then by all means feel free to go on peacock because it's still there and earlier this week both vince mcmahon and sable appeared on entertainment tonight separately of course to discuss sable's ongoing lawsuit with the wwf huh? sal remember the days when entertainment tonight existed trick question because it still exists it i honestly I had no idea until I looked this up. Apparently, Entertainment Tonight has been on the air since September of 1981. Entertainment Tonight is actually three months older than me. So, anyway, I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna go ahead and play a clip of what was said by Vince and Sable on this week's show, and you'll also hear comments from Triple H 
Ivory, and the big show, Shit-Talking Sable as well. In this corner, former World Wrestling Federation Women's Champion Sable, also known as Rena Marrow. Her opponent, Vince McMahon, is the chairman of the WWF. At the center of this feud is a $110 million lawsuit. Last week, Marrow told E.T. details of her claims of sexual harassment and physical threats. On several occasions, I was physically threatened by not one, but many of the other female wrestlers, uh, even to the uh, extent of one of the wrestlers telling me that they were going to bite a hole in my face and disfigure me so I would not have any career. The last time I was a part of the World Wrestling Federation was the day that I picked up my belongings and they were smeared with human feces. That, to me, was the last straw. But McMahon maintains the charges are unfounded. I think you, you will find all of them going away, every single one of them. Uh, and you'll also find at the end of all of this, the World Wrestling Federation would not have spent dollar one. So you think she's going to drop the lawsuit? Is that what you're... That's what I'm saying. E.T. went straight to those who currently work for McMahon to find out what they think of these allegations. They all say Sable's story is a case of a disgruntled employee who believed her own hype. Well, Rita Merrow's filing suit. Sable's not filing suit. Sable was a character that Vince McMahon built and that Rita Merrow rode the wave of. Are we still talking about her? You're probably putting a big smile on her face right now. Because I think that's the only reason why she's doing all of this is to keep her name in the press. Yeah. Show's over. The sexual harassment... As far as I'm concerned, as far as I've seen, it has never existed. Vince McMahon believes in you and pushes you as your product, and you hold up your end of the bargain and everything works fine. Um, you start developing a prima donna, spoiled brat attitude, things are going to change. When she heard about McMahon's E.T. interview, Rena Marrow reassured us that all of her allegations are true, and she can prove them. She says, quote, I am neither frightened of nor impressed by the bullying tactics used by Vince McMahon and the WWF. So, yes, as you heard in that clip, Vince McMahon is confident that the WWF will not end up paying Sable a single dime. Funny thing about that, though, literally days later, the WWF and Sable settled the lawsuit for an undisclosed amount of money, so apparently Vince changed his tune. As part of the settlement, both sides agreed not to badmouth each other. Rena Marrow can obviously no longer use the name Sable since the WWF owns it, and she is barred from wrestling for any other company for a period of of three years. Now, Sal, now that this saga is all over and Sable is officially done with the WWF, do you have a favorite Sable memory? When she swallowed her pride, tucked her tail, and returned to the company in 2003. <laughs> yes. Gotta get that paycheck. <laughs> yes. And of course, they immediately make her like Vince McMahon's mistress when she comes back, right? Yeah. yeah. And don't they put her into like a lesbian storyline with Tori Wilson too? Yes. So here's the thing. Like, I never thought Sable was a bad character. I thought it, it worked for what it was. She was not necessarily a good baby face or a good heel for that matter, but she was Sable. She she had the handprint, you know, the handprint bra. That was the, the moneymaker. That's what you always remember. And she was everything they wanted Sonny to be, but Sonny never really got to that level as much as Sonny would hate say, hearing that. And she did something that a lot of people in this business hate, which was make it in this business even though she wasn't good at wrestling or have any prior wrestling experience. Yeah. So I will give her all the credit in the world for actually filing a lawsuit against the WWE. It was probably a moot point. But, hey, if she got a settlement out of it, good on her. Yeah, she got a little something. 
I, I still I couldn't find to this day. I don't know how much it was, but I guess maybe there was probably some sort of uh, maybe a non-disclosure in there, but that they can't divulge how much it was. But like you said, she ends up coming back in 2003. So also, I would like to quickly clarify that I am not in any way, shape, or form downplaying the accusations that Sable's making against Vince in the WWE. Right. I am pretty convinced that most of those are legit accusations. But what I'm saying is, in 1999, good luck, because yeah, in 1994, the federal government failed. I don't know how you're going to be able to change the game, but good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, so Sable didn't get the full $100 million or whatever she was asking, but she got she got a little something. But yeah, well, and, and in that clip there, she actually talks about like her bag being smeared with shit. Which I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was X-Pac who did that. And I think he's actually been open about admitting it, too. So, now I guess now that the lawsuit is settled, he can actually own up to it. But, yeah, so she she went through some pretty uh, shitty stuff. Well, no pun intended. She went through some Uh. shitty stuff. (laughs) And, finally, Vince McMahon didn't only appear on Entertainment Tonight this week. He also guested on the Canadian sports talk show Off the Record, being interviewed by Michael Landsberg. And some of the topics included Jesse Ventura, the Monday Night Wars, and whether he would ever consider bringing back Hulk Hogan, to which Vince responded, never say never. Yeah, I'll say. Still brings him back today. Sometimes. But of course, the topic of Owen Hart's death also came up. And well, let's just say Vince couldn't resist taking some jabs at Owen's brother. Uh, I want to talk about that. But before that, I want to talk about your meeting with Bret Hart. Um... Was it your first meeting since the Survivor Series and uh, the breakup between you and Brett? Very much publicized. He punched you. He spit on you. You changed the script on him on our show. You talked about how you did it. Was that the first meeting since then? Yes, it was. And what did you guys talk about? Um, out of respect to Owen, I met with Brett. Otherwise, I'd have no reason to meet with Brett. Only out of respect to Owen. And Brett carried the entire conversation. I really thought he wanted to talk about Owen. He mentioned Owen in one sentence, and the rest of it was about Brett. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was all about What kinds of things did he say? Uh, I had ruined his marriage. Uh, I had ruined his career. Uh, He wanted to go back to that incident at the Survivor Series. All he wanted to talk about was himself. Nothing to do with his brother. It was like... I was I was like looking in the eyes of a skeleton in, in some respects. It, it seemed like that he he wasn't human. It was a very weird experience. Now, okay, let's just play along here and go with the premise that everything Vince is saying here is one hundred percent true. Why would you even mention it? I get that you think Brett is a little too bitter, but dude, his brother was killed in your company, and you let the show continue. Maybe. Don't shit-talk the guy so soon afterwards. I mean, he's already in WCW at this point. His life is bad enough. I don't know, so I feel like I need to ask you a similar question to the one I asked about JFK Jr. Is it fair game to take jabs at the brother of a guy who died on your watch just a few months later? No, and it it comes across as so fucking bitter. Like, oh, I'm so mad that you left. I'm so mad. Like... Dude, the guy's fucking brother died, and this is you're going to use this time now to talk about that. It just, come on. And of all people, too, Bret Hart is, seems to be just be perpetually bitter about everything, even right. all these years later. So it's, it's just what Bret Hart does. It's just what Bret does. I realize that Vince, like, the, it seems like he always wants to go on the offensive, but it's kind of like, you know, 
maybe just let that one slide. You got more important things to worry about, you know? You're the owner of a multi-billion dollar company. Maybe just let some things go. You don't need to For, you don't need to go on off the record to talk about them. It it is amazing. I don't know. Did you happen to catch Vince McMahon on the Pat McAfee show? No, I didn't actually. I know that was where they set up the WrestleMania match, but right. that's all I heard about it. So he was really good. He was really well spoken. He definitely said like all the right things, and I I think I might be wrong. It feels like he's matured a little bit in his old age, mm. to a point. But Vince back then in the late nineties, he still came across as very uh, egotistical, very much like I'm going to be a spiteful brat. <laughs> Right. There's also that interview, I think it's maybe like a year and a half after this, that he has with Bob Costas, if you remember that one, where he kind of like puts his finger in Bob Costas' face. Yeah. Like he's getting getting threatening with him. Yeah, it's, it's kind of strange, because you would think if he's going to go on these shows, he'd want to put his best foot forward. But it seems a lot of times, like when he's on these shows, that Vince McMahon, the person, and Vince McMahon, the character, aren't too different. So it's, it's good to hear that he's kind of mellowed a little bit, seemingly, in his old age. Right. Where, where he can no longer take a, a convincing stunner. <laughs> so yeah so, the summer of 99 was certainly a controversial time in wrestling i think i think if we can extrapolate anything from the news stories this week it's that uh yeah 1999 was a time when people were not holding back on their uh on their their wrestling content or their thoughts on wrestling television that's for sure sure and so on that uplifting note I think we can wrap this episode up. So, as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just read us five stars on iTunes without writing a review because that's helpful too. And Sal, before we wrap up, would you care to remind the fans of the Raw Attitude podcast about the rundown one more time? Yes, join me and a few of my friends, Adam, Troy, Jason. We are covering the week that was in professional wrestling. We talk about WWE, we talk about AEW, we might even talk about New Japan Ring of Honor, and then we also, not only the television product, but we be sure to cover any newsworthy stories, and we typically make fun of everything, as is the tradition for the rundown, which has been on the podcast waves for 10 years years 10 plus years actually long time so we're 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 the longest running wrestling podcast in the game and uh find us on all of your major podcasting platforms you can listen to me not only on this show but i also run uh some solo shows from time to time i'll talk about SummerSlam. eventually i'll get through all those survivor series and of course nxt takeover which became the quintessential pay-per-view of the late 2000s or 2010s, I guess. I don't know. I'm still not quite sure on how to talk about decades after I graduated from high school. <laughs> but yes, follow me at WrestleMania Sal on Twitter. Talk old wrestling, old wrestling with me. I love talking retro wrestling. Obviously, that's why I'm on this show. There you go. And of course, as is the custom, whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude podcast, I will allow you to pick a clip at the end to close the show, or I should say one of the clips to close the show, because I do have something else. But uh, do you have a particular clip in mind? I do. So I will always be a guy who fights against the corporate machine. 
I love it when the fans stick it to the man, right? And there was a segment in the WWE in December of 2013. Hmm. They were in the state of Washington. Ah, yes. And they wanted you to think that for the nine millionth time, Randy Orton versus John Cena was going to be a big deal. The crowd, however, had other plans. Now, Henry, I'm going to leave it up to you. You obviously don't have to play the whole segment because it is pretty boring listening to Stephanie blow smoke up her husband's ass for 15 minutes. (laughs) But if you want to play a clip of that segment, specifically when the crowd is loudly chanting for somebody else, that would be great. Absolutely. I will do that. I will definitely do that for you. And at the end here as well, after I play that, I am also going to play something else here at the end of the podcast, because since this is the end of the Austin McMahon feud in the Attitude Era, I'm going to finish this episode with a chronological montage of some of the most noteworthy moments from Austin versus McMahon. Sal, this lasts about 28 minutes but I think it's worth a listen if you want to hear the entire feud encapsulated in audio form. Basically, think of it as like a little mini episode unto itself at the end of this podcast. I'll also say I do have to skip some stuff because I wanted it to be closer to half an hour than an hour and a half. So yes, I do skip some moments, but after I play your clip, I am also going to play that little audio montage. Again, think of it as a mini episode. You're getting even more bonus content at the end here. So in the meantime, you can enjoy Sal's clip. You can enjoy my montage of the Austin McMahon feud, and we will catch you next time. Some of you have been world heavyweight champion. Some of you have been WWE champion. A select few have actually been both. But all of you have etched your place in history in a way that only... Winning a championship can. Tonight, all of you are here to witness a ceremony that symbolizes an epic moment in time. A game-changing moment in time. I appreciate the fact that you and the World Wrestling Federation care. And I also appreciate the fact that, hell, you can kiss my ass. you're hearing is but if you don't understand what i'm saying i always got a little bit of sign language so here's to you
Do you want Stone Cold Steve Austin as the World Wrestling Federation champion? It's not just a no, it's a oh hell no! I'll tell you what, Austin must be beside himself right now in Victoria, Texas. Well, you asked for it, you got it! Hi, Steve. And Austin, that's the bottom line because Vince McMahon said so. Thank you very much. Austin back up somehow. Uh oh. Austin dumped it. Austin going for the stunner and Michael's counter. Michael's going for another kick. Austin, he got it. The stunner. Mike Tyson in. Austin is the champion. Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Wait a minute. Tyson a double cross the end. Well, we can either do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, Mr. Austin. And that's going to be your decision. That's an extremely important decision in my book. For yours and my relationship, can I have maybe 10 seconds to think about this decision? By all means. What you've seen is how to do things the hard way. If you want Stone Cold to continue doing things the hard way, give me a hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I know as a promoter, you always love the fact every time a WWF champion puts the title on the line. So tonight in Philadelphia, here on Raw, I am putting the WWF title on the line. You're probably wondering, well, Steve, who's going to be your opponent? The way I look at it, there can only be one opponent for Steve Austin, and that is Mr. Vince McMahon. What? What is he talking about? You gotta be kidding me. If you want to see Austin and McMahon, give me a hell yeah. And so in answer to the question, will I fight Stone Cold Steve Austin in this ring tonight? The answer is 
Oh, hell yeah. No! He's got to be kidding! This is absolutely asinine. Please say this is not going to happen. JR, he has no chance. No. No chance. Here we go. Oh, All you guys have got to do is coexist for 10 oh, seconds. Hell. Double choke slam. A double choke slam. The Undertaker, Kane. That's got to be. They got me. Austin has lost the title. Austin has lost the title. But who's the, the winner of this belt? champion. Austin has lost the title, but who is the champion? Vince McMahon has the WWF title. You see this? You don't have it anymore. You don't have it anymore. It's mine. It's mine. The two of you single-handedly covered Stone Cold Steve Austin for the championship. The two of you who have had tremendous battles between the two of you. to me. How about you, doctor? Oh, I'll take it from here, nurse. Oh my God, I don't believe this. You can't do that! I 
do not believe this, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. McMahon! Yeah. Mr. McMahon! That's one of the Corvettes from Mr. McMahon's collection. a $50,000 car! to keep so will your little ass out here Austin is challenging McMahon to firing I would advise everyone here to get their cameras out and take a photo of that man because you're seeing the last of Stone Cold Steve Austin what no Take it easy now. Oh my God. Oh no. Oh my. It's a toy. What? It's a toy. Austin was armed with a toy. That is not funny. You gotta remember this. It wasn't. Stone Cold Steve Austin that screwed Vince McMahon, but it was Vince McMahon that screwed Vince McMahon. I, th- I think you got a little problem there, and I think we got another T-shirt on the way, and I think that T-shirt might just say McMahon 316. Says I just pissed my pants. Oh no! Oh, How humiliating! How degrading! Oh look out! Oh, got McMahon again! This is the most humiliating, degrading night in Vince McMahon's life. Vince McMahon will not be entering the Royal Rumble as the 30th competitor, as he picked. No, 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 no. Stone Cold Steve Austin will be the first man to enter the Royal Rumble. Uh Uh-oh. 
I don't like the sound of this. And the second man who will be entering the Royal Rumble will be Vince McMahon. Whoa! in a cage match. Whoa! You and me in a cage. Wait a minute You now. ain't got to pin me. You ain't got to make me submit. All you got to do is run around that damn ring long enough, and if you beat me out over the top and on the ground, then that means you win. Uh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's your specialty, Vince. You, you're a chicken. You run. That's what you do. Let me think about it for a minute. Wait a minute. King, there oh, is no all way. The time in the world, you son of a bitch. All you have to do is King, there's no way the corporate team can let Mr. McMahon get away with it. There's no way they can let him go do, to a cage. Get over the damn cage. What do you say? You and me. WrestleMania title shot on the line. You will never ever see Stone Cold Steve give me another beer. You will never ever see Stone Cold Steve Austin in another title match. That's what we got at stake on Valentine's Day. If you got that damn guts. Or let me say this, if you've got the balls uh, to do it, give me that damn answer. All right, Austin, you're on, you've got your match. No! McMahon is holding on by one hand. Come on, Mr. McMahon! The safest place for McMahon is in the cage. Oh. The cage. Forehead into the cage. Oh, my God! He's got to be 20 feet off the floor. Yeah. No! Mr. McMahon! Kill! He may be dead! Mr. McMahon fell 20 feet! McMahon fell 20 feet off the steel cage through the Spanish and out table! Paul White is here! This guy's gotta be over seven feet tall! He's colossal! Look! Something up his sleeve. I knew it. You didn't know it. 
Austin so bad. Look at this. McMahon wants Austin to suffer what he suffered in this match. Austin is going to learn you don't cross the boss. Look at this. And the get away swing. with it. Austin manhandled. Austin oh. into the cage. Austin, the cage gave way. Austin's down. Austin's out of the cage. Austin's out of the cage. Smackdown on his candy ass. Yes. Uh oh. What? What? Wait a minute. What the hell? Kane. It can't be. Kane. Man, he's what? He's coming to take from the bear truck. Austin. Oh, the bear truck. I sit here and listen to you spend your little nursery rhymes about Jabroni Avenue or Know Your Own Boulevard. Jesus Christ, son, you better get your ass serious because Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to take his ass to Philadelphia, check right in to the SmackDown Hotel, roll right in to Route 316, and burn that son of a bitch to the ground. says you take that truck and drive it right back down know your own boulevard you drive it right back to jabroni drive and you check your candy wait a minute no cold it's beer no cold with a beer bath beer bath on the corporation
Because, Vince, I can't wait to see your face. How about it, Vince? What do you say? What do you say, Vince? Shane, I say I'm close enough right where I stand, right here and now. I say the games are over, Shane. I say the evil, demonic SOB show his face to the world now. Who could it be? It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! What? It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! Damn, I cannot believe he's... Even my immediate family bought it. Look at Shane! Every damn one of you were made fools of. And now, Austin, Austin, now you know there is no price I will not pay. There is no depth that I will not stoop to make your life here on Earth, Austin, a total, complete, living hell. I'm willing to put in writing that I will never, ever again, directly or indirectly, interfere, compromise, or in any way have anything at all to do with you here in the World Wrestling Federation ever again. Are you interested? And the stakes are getting higher here. You're damn right. All you've got to do, Austin, is agree that if, or should I say, when The Undertaker defeats you, that you will not ask for a rematch. As a matter of fact, that you will never again in your professional career ever even attempt to become the WWF champion again. Never. If you are somehow victorious, neither you nor either any of these people 
will ever see Vince McMahon again. What? My God, that is, that's earth shattering. It's unthinkable. What? Think about it. Vince, I'll accept your little challenge, but it won't be the end of an era. It'll just be the end of you. And that's the bottom line. Pistol Cold Seth so. suggesting that we sing goodbye to Mr. McMahon here tonight. Oh, no, wait a minute. Not, not that song. With a little na, 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 na. Oh, hell yeah. Goodbye. Na, 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 na. Oh, no. Na, na, 